Pastiche, part two by Jonathan Harnish, the doer and not a critic, Tony Blair once said, Pastiche, it is, in response to the heavily criticized and controversial author Jonathan Harnish's, Porcelain Utopia, 2016, etc., work and life. He offers this colossal work of erotic literary art that mixes styles, materials, etc., wildly varied in style and content. I am a troubled man, the author confesses, with feelings. I am not good, but I know how to be good. I burn bridges and build better ones. I can't make my mind up because my mental landscape is full of wondrous things. I can love, and I am learning to be in love with myself. I don't know how to trust, but I trust I am alive. I make more mistakes than I should so I am continually learning. I am always sorry, and I always forgive myself. I never change and yet I feel changes. I am afraid of letting anyone else in my life too close and yet I find I'm not running away because I am curious. The door to my life is open because I am genuine and authentic and real. People will come and go, and I'm blessed that I have known them. The door is too big for it to be blocked by anything that wants to flow free, and the current of life that goes through it pulls with it all its uncertainty. Pastiche is one of the most disconnected, confused intentionally and edited literary masterpieces of independent writer Harnish's untamed career, exploring its readers to the flighty, turbulent and often disturbing schizophrenic thought patterns, which the disorder presents. The author also struggles with schizophrenia. I don't think writing is therapeutic. It's real hard for me. It's not an enjoyable process. Harnish admits she smiles, and continues, at least these days, nobody's holding a gun to your head but you. Things might be as good as they're going to get, for now. Society-wise, I appreciate your curiosity about my condition, George answers lightly, but telling the old if I don't change isn't helping. Not here, not now. George darts away, skipping like a cripple, then runs back and dives into Heidi's arms. He cries ever so slightly. She hugs him slowly, wrapping a tentative arm around his shoulders. Moments later, he withdraws from her with a grimace. Probably we should head back, he says. Heidi and George pick their way through the graveyard. A significant life leaves its mark on the world, Heidi says finally, looking wistfully at the gravestone inscriptions. What's that? asks George. Oh, just something an old teacher of mine used to say. For a moment, silence. Have you left your mark? George asks. Heidi sighs. Not yet. I'm still hoping. George squints, jumping and flapping his arms. The more comfortable you're with who you are, the less you'll need to rebel. Heidi continues. What do you want for yourself? I don't know what I want. His foot begins to stomp. I just don't want to be taken over by these devils. Heidi ignores the display. We all have our demons, she sighs. What sets us apart is the way we deal with them. George clucks his tongue, grunts, and sniffs disdainfully. At a Wakefield diner, Ozark and Vivian share a plate of cheese fries over their cokes. The jukebox plays twangy country love songs a little too loudly. Ozark's gestures angrily with a fry. Dude, what the hell have you been doing with Mr. Twitchy? He demands. Don't call him that George Porridge. Then, Ozark says sarcastically. We're just partners. For class, Vivian folds her arms. Oh, really? Ozark looks intently at her. She glares at him. If you cared for me so much, you would have come to class. She sniffs. I would have chosen you over him, if you were there. Ozark smiles at her. All right, then, I'll trust you. I guess I have to- Jesus, Jason, all right, all right. Vivian finishes her soda. Want another? Ozark reaches into his pocket for some change and hands it to Vivian as she nods. She takes the change and appraises it, then tucks it into her pocket. I think it's more about a dollar or so. Ozark gives her twenty. He squints hungrily at her but as she walks from the booth, George frantically throws the covers from his bed as he looks for his journal. His spasms come so quickly that they are almost invisible. He grunts his frustration and finally, giving up. He reaches under the mattress for his flask and takes a swig. He pulls on a jacket, stuffing the flask in his pocket, and leaves. He shuffles into the woods, self-absorbed and lost in thought. His feet know the way. He lights a cigarette. Halfway through his second cig, George reaches the bluff. He stops when he sees somebody else there. It's Vivian she's crying. She hears his footsteps and turns toward him. Oh, hi, she says. George is surprised, but he manages a hello in return. Vivian stands. I'm sorry, I didn't think anyone would be here. She stammers. I'll go. No, you don't have to stay. George gestures. What are you doing here? Vivian shrugs. Maybe I needed a place to cry. You, what do you have to cry about? Plenty, she sniffs. Believe me, like what he insists. Like, maybe, pressure. She looks at him. Oh, forget it, she says. She points to his cigarette. 
Do you live off those things? I never see you without one. Vivian wipes away her tears. Sort of. I guess. George mumbles. They'll kill you. George looks at the cigarette. I hope so. What? Why would you say that George shrugs? Really? It's not like anyone would care. I would. Vivian says quietly. The long Atlantic rollers crash in and out behind her as he stares. Stock still. She walks over next to him and soon he seems to relax. My parents sent me here. George says out of the blue. I hated my old school. I wanted to get away. More girls here than boys. You know. Not bad odds. He hops to his feet. Smiling. They called me a minus. All through middle school. He giggles. That's fucked up. Yeah Vivian laughs with him. Shit yeah. Dude George exclaims. Like. What is normal these days? Right? What is dysfunctional? Same thing. Right Vivian laughs. Nodding. I'm only here because Dr. Ozark, Jason's father, pulled some strings to get me a scholarship. Yeah. Really. Small world. Dr. Ozark did my mother's surgery. He pays my way. As long as I keep my grades up. Same here. Vivian paused a beat. My mother's his secretary. She explained. Get out of town. George threw up his hands. Is that why you go out with that dick Jason? Pressure. That's why. Isn't it Vivian looks away. Gary fucking Ozark. George scoffs. George and Vivian lean over the side of an old stone and were bridge. They drop stones in the water, watching the ripples spread outward. I hate my parents. George begins. My real father's dead. Vivian throws another stone. Lucky you. Vivian stares at George as he lights a fresh cigarette. Vivian snatches it from his mouth, throws the burnt part in the water, and pockets the filter. George does not respond. Don't say that, Vivian says after a pause. I loved my dad. What happened to him? He was a cop. A New York City cop. He had trouble sometimes, you know, with a jab, with all the stuff you see. Vivian looks at George to see if he understands. He nods. Anyway, that's what my mom said. He'd get really depressed, and stuff. Like me Vivian smiles sadly. Two years ago, he was the first officer on the scene of a small plane crash. She continues quietly. Everyone was dead. They died instantly. She pauses, all except for this little, tiny baby, a girl. My dad tried to save her, but, anyway, he got, like, a medal of honor and stuff, and everyone told him how it wasn't his fault. He didn't seem too upset at the time, but he killed himself three months later. I still wish I was in your shoes, George mumbles. Stop it. Vivian turns and looks him straight in the eyes. I loved my dad. I'd give anything to have him back. George, anything, a pregnant silence rises between them, really George says finally, really, I used to be able to talk with him every night, when he was alive, now I can talk to him when I pray, but I can't hear him answer, you think he hears you George looks at her, his eyes blinking involuntarily, I know he hears me, I just wish I could hear him, she gets to her feet, and George follows, my parents never hear me, or see me, even though I'm right there, they just always thought of me as the freak, a freak's a good thing, George, George looks incredulous, Vivian rummages through her pockets and pulls out a dime, know what this is she hurls it under his nose, George examines the coin. A dime look at the date. Vivian commands. George looks. One, nine, five? That can't be right. It was supposed to be 1956, the year my father was born. Vivian closes her fist and thrusts the coin back in her pocket. But it's a mistake. It's what coin collectors call a freak. Because it's so different, it's actually worth something. She smiles. Your dad gave that to you my mom, after he died. It was his, though, my dad's never given me anything. George scowls at the water and throws another stone. It veers off into the brush on the side of the stream. George, well, maybe that's not true. I'm a master at manipulation. You know, maybe he did give me stuff lots of stuff. I just don't want. His head jerks spastically to the side. I don't know. Sometimes I wish I could just jump ahead and be, like, 50 years old. His brow wrinkles. What the fuck he mutters. He shakes his head hard, blowing air from his lungs loudly. Vivian, I don't know who the hell I am he cries hoarsely. I drive myself fucking nuts what Vivian puts her hand on his arm. George, are you okay please? Vivian, please don't fuck with me. Not now. You might as well just hate me. Save yourself the trouble. Vivian remains calm, waiting for George's tantrum to fade. You look fine from here. She says lightly. Why should I hate you? You will. It's only a matter of time. Vivian laughs her disbelief. George, you just think entirely too much. Let go a little. It's Friday. I'd love to see you on autopilot. You know, like just acting yourself, without thinking about it. George kicks a rock from under his feet. He gets what she's saying. 
She sees his little smirk. Yeah, no pressure, let's blow off all the pressure, you and me. George pokes Vivian on the side and she swipes at him, giggling. He skips away from her and she lunges forward, he breaks into a room. George and Vivian run together through the wood and into an open field. I'm free, being myself with Vivian in the bright sunlight, whispering wildflowers. Vivian picks a handful of flowers for her room, and George adds to her bouquet, touching her lightly on the shoulder. She ducks away from him ever so slightly, but as the bouquet grows she minds his touch less and less. Finally her hand is so full with flowers that it can't hold anymore. The two collapse onto the soft grass. My dad would have been 50, this year, the end of April, halfway to hell that's what he called his birthday. She pulls her knees to her chest. I miss him so much. George, I can't stand it. Sometimes, she laughs without joy. Every year, for his birthday, my mother would make him the same dinner. Yeah, corned beef and lime jello. George shudders. I know, I know. Vivian laughs softly. It's no gourmet, but he loved it. Anyhow, George moves closer to Vivian. His head is next to hers, in the grass, and it gave him the stupidest presents. When I was a kid, one year it was a canister of Play-Doh. They giggle. When I finally had some money of my own, I bought him a Garfield stationery set. Vivian wipes her eyes as she laughs. I miss him so much. Sometimes I just can't stand it. I just want to see him so much that I wanted I to be with him. George frowns quizzically. How you know? Like heaven she pauses and shakes her head. How about your dad? Don't you miss seeing him? Ever yet? I guess so. George says playfully. Sort of Vivian blinks back tears. It doesn't make any sense. George snarls suddenly. You lose a father you love, and I'm stuck with one I hate. Don't say that. George, Vivian insists, I bet anything that your dad and mom love you to pieces, they just don't get you, is all, George shrugs, then smiles, he pokes Vivian again and leaps up, she jogs after him until they reach a stone wall at the edge of the field, she rushes past him, come on she grins, clutching the wild flowers in one hand, Vivian scrambles atop the wall, she walks along the wall with her arms stretched out for balance, George walks behind her, happy occasionally, Vivian looks back and grins at him, George reaches out and touches her leg, surprised, she slips and loses her balance, George tries to catch her, but he trips, and they both land in the mud, George ticks and twitches furiously, he's terrified that she'll be mad at him, but Vivian just throws back her head and laughs, after a stunned moment of relief, George joins her, later that afternoon, George and Vivian walk through a street fair on Main Street, George holds cotton candy in his right hand, Vivian has a candied apple, they were gated for a week, on full restriction, George says, they put hair remover in my shampoo, that's horrible, Vivian mutters, biting into her apple, I got them back, though, George grins, what did you do they hold near a fresh dill pickle stand, George leans over so that his face is only inches from hers, he can smell the sweet apple on her breath, I put Xlax in their chicken sandwiches, he says quietly, Vivian bursts out laughing, and George is only too happy to join her, after a moment, Vivian exhales and wipes her eyes, she tilts her head, smiling, hey, look, she says, a troop of mimes approach Vivian, moving like swans gliding across a still pond, they smile with Vivian, the swans dive and scatter, a balloonist hands Vivian a balloon flower, George smiles, the balloonist makes another figure, it's a monkey, the mimes reform and pretend to be prisoners in their own cages, the balloonist gives George the monkey shaped balloon, up, ah, thanks, George says, the balloonist bows and swoops after a group of girl scouts the mimes follow silently behind, all too soon, However, the day draws to a close. George and Vivian walk down the street, nearing the Wakefield campus. I wish we didn't have to go back. Vivian sighs peacefully. This afternoon was so nice, so free she throws her hands to the sky and grins. It's good to get away. From the pressure, George darts a glance at her and hops. What pressure? More pressure what pressure? To be the perfect daughter. To get into a good college. To- Vivian hesitates. What Vivian looks carefully at George as they round the corner where the Wakefield sign announces school grounds. It's Ozuck, she says carefully. He wants me to sleep with him, Ozuck. George scoffs. Why do you keep on with him? Vivian stares at the sidewalk in silence. I mean, if he keeps pressuring you, George continues, trying to regain ground. Well, you don't want to Vivian nods. 
then you shouldn't. George's face transforms as every muscle convulses at once. Vivian doesn't see. I don't know. I'm not ready. But he won't stop bugging me. It's all he ever talks about. Anymore. We never do anything. George tries to hide a hopeful smile. It's so simple. You don't need to impress anyone. Vivian. Vivian nods. It's my friends, too. They think I'm, they think I'm frigid. Oh you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe I just haven't found the right person, though, you don't owe Ozark anything, George points out quietly, he thinks I do, he says it's normal for a boy, for a man, he says that's how guys express love, he's an idiot, as he Vivian looks into George's face, challenging him, put it another way, if you were my boyfriend, wouldn't you pressure me for sex, wouldn't you want it, tell me the truth are you killing George stops walking, he stares at her, it'd be, I'd be happy just to hold your hand, God, Vivian she holds out her hand to him, her face solemn, George's eyes widen, she grins, go on, take it, it won't burn, the first time, George whispers, nothing ever replaces the first time, right hesitantly, he takes her hand, he stares at his hand, holding Vivian's like it might disappear at any moment, you know what Vivian says quietly, trying to catch his eye, George stares at their hands, feeling the warmth of her palms spread into his, hush, he whispers, I've never had sex, George not with anyone, she whispers, shit, I'm holding your hand, George mutters, only then does he look up into her face, her eyes are open, shining, she leans forward and kisses George on the mouth, George blinks rapidly and then steps closer to her, they kiss again, then Vivian turns, like an alarm's gone off in her head, shit, she mutters, George follows her gaze, Ozark is coming down the walk, having just finished lacrosse practice, his stick, with his helmet and other gear attached, is slung over his shoulder, he stiffens when he sees George and Vivian holding hands, George self-consciously drops Vivian's hand as Ozark approaches them, Ozark's face contorts in rage, what are you doing with her she squirt he yells, what does it look like she snaps at him, Ozark looks at her clothes and at George's, how did you get so dirty he demands, we were having sex, Vivian is his sarcastically, Ozark's eyes flash at George, and a brilliant red flush covers his cheeks, well, good for you, Ozark says, his voice terrifyingly calm, flowers, too, isn't that sweet, he takes Vivian's arm and jerks her away from George, guess what, show's over, he says, Vivian pulls away from him, don't tell me what to do, Jason, she threatens, Ozark shrugs, you want to pick flowers with freaks, pick flowers with freaks, he turns to George, twitchy, you are so easy to make fun of, I can't stand it, Ozark lunges at George, who backs away, or Ozark laughs, Our George repeats, what Ozark squints, wondering if George is making fun of him, George is silent and still, hell, yeah Ozark struts to Vivian, don't forget about tonight, he commands, I won't forget, Vivian says, her voice as cold as steel, see you then, Ozark spins and swaggers off down the walk, Vivian and George look at each other in amusement, rolling their eyes, I'm sure glad he didn't show up a second before he did, George says finally, oh, George, Vivian sighs, her hand twitches, but she leaves it at her side, George stalks the library stacks, thinking about the Winterbourne, he might just enter, he might, as he strolls slowly towards the back, he hears the sound of murmuring, of hands roving over cloth, damn, wow a voice says lowly, you're good, Jason don't tell anybody, okay Ozark whispers, a minute later, George sees Susan trotting down the center aisle, a smug grin on her face, George waits until she's almost to the door, then he follows slowly, George sets his bag down on a table and starts to stuff books into it, he watches as Wyman enters the library and Susan meets him by the door, hey, baby, I'm late for class, Susan says lightly, she kisses him on the cheek, catch up with you later she calls, Wyman takes a few steps into the room and then stops, looking down the aisles, George follows his gaze he sees Ozark approaching, Ozark holds a thick science textbook lightly in his hand, hey, brother, Ozark says quietly, George twitches, what do you want, Ozark George mutters, I'm not a book, hi not, I'm not, Ozark snorts, 
He looks over and finds Wyman, who is thumbing through a magazine. Yo, Wyman, get over here, wanna see something he grins. Ozark brandishes the huge, heavy science book. George twitches, and the zipper in his backpack gets caught in the fabric. He yanks at it impatiently with one hand, then uses the other to steady himself on the counter as a full body shudder overcomes him. Yes, you drunken wastrel, Ozark kisses, I do want a book. This fucking book. He slams the book's sharp edge down on George's fingers. George bites back a yell as pain sears up his arm. Ozark leans in close to George as he struggles to pull his hand away. Keep away from my girl, you little bastard, or he'll kill you, Ozark growls. You hear me, I'll fucking kill you, personally. You feel that Ozark leans hard on the heavy book, pressing it into George's fingers. George whimpers involuntarily, his eyes shoot hatred. You hear me, George's neck arches with pain, Ozark leans still harder on the book, grinding it into George's fingers. With an effort, Wyman pulls Ozark's hand away. George snatches his hand up from under the book, holding it to his chest. His eyes scrunch with pain. Jesus, dude, take it easy, Wyman says. You're gonna break his hand. Ozark looks like it's all he can do not to jump over the table and begin pounding George into a faceless nothing. George wraps his arm around his backpack, not caring about the zipper, and backs slowly away. Come on, man, let's get out of here. Wyman looks around pointedly. A few students who have just entered are watching the trio. He leads Ozark away. Ozark's face is bright red. He looks back at George, whose face is also inflamed. Ozark gives George the finger. Remember what I said he yells. This isn't about you, you faggot freak. Faggot George says wonderingly. Ozark stops. He yanks his arm from Wyman's grip and stalks over to George, pushing his finger into George's chest. You, watch your ass, he commands. D don't worry, Ozark. I will. The next day, George and Heidi walk down to the cemetery to enjoy their weekly lunch. George smokes, as usual, with one hand. His other is shoved into the front pocket of his hooded sweater. He feels bright, animated. For some reason, he helps with a sense of purpose. How about we meet somewhere new for a change Heidi suggests as the cemetery looms in two sight. Why George says quickly, I like it over there. It's hard to get away, to be alone. On campus, I mean, I like getting out. Somewhere where it's quiet, you're a good kid. George, Heidi says kindly, I'm a good boy, Charlie Brown, George smirks, Heidi laughs, they enter the cemetery and quickly find a secluded grassy area, beneath some young trees, they sit, George digs into his food, eating rapidly, for a while, all is silence, then George looks up from the remains of his lunch, you're the first adult I've ever felt I could really talk to, he says matter-of-factly, you encourage maturity, somehow. Thank you. Heidi grins. You seem especially bouncy today. I'm off my medication. George nods three times. I've been good lately. Heidi sighs open wide in surprise. You're kidding me. The doctors approved of that. George shrugs. Yeah, I tapered down for a little while. And now I'm off completely. It's liberating, I think. He looks down at the grass. George. Heidi pauses, assessing him. She sighs. Well, maybe you really don't need them. She concedes. Hey, Heidi, can I ask you a question? George says suddenly. Heidi nods. How come you're not married? No one's ever asked me. Heidi says evenly. Really, really, I can't believe that. George says, believe it. Heidi responds lightly. But, but you're attractive and you've got a good job. Not to mention that you're mentally stable and mature. All that, he stops, blushing. Heidi smiles. Thanks. She laughs. But men, I think, tend to find me off-putting. That's just a two-dollar word for bossy. Not all men, George says solemnly. Maybe I'm just destined to be an old maid. Heidi says lightly, seeming to study the bark of a nearby oak. Number, don't think that way, George says. Not unless you want to be that old maid. Heidi's face seems overcome by relief. Yeah, I guess I didn't really think about it that way. She grins at George. You make me feel young and alive again, George. Thank you. Don't thank me, George says earnestly. You've done so much for me. He blushes awkwardly and digs through his backpack. I decided to go ahead and enter the Winterbourne, he says, pulling out a book and showing it to her. The book is such as being in nothingness. I'm writing an essay, I think he'll call it, on bad faith. That's great, George Heidi hands the book back to him. Really, anything I can do to help, you just let me know, okay? George nods and returns the book to his backpack. He has to use both his hands to yank the zipper into place. As he does so, Heidi suddenly notices the swollen mess of his fingers. She takes George's wrist. What happened to your hand? George George tries to pull his wrist free, but Heidi holds it tight. I'm alright, he insists. 
Who did this Heidi demands, no one, well, me, I slammed the window on my hand, okay, I'm alright, Heidi looks closely at his face, are you telling me the truth why wouldn't I George shrugs, Heidi looks at him silently, did you go to the nurse George jerked his wrist out of her grasp, I told you, it's alright, I don't need the nurse, Heidi takes another look at his bruised fingers, here, she says quietly, pulling a cold soda from her lunch, she holds the can to his hand, George catches his breath at the cold, and then relaxes as the pain begins to numb, tell me something, Heidi, he says a few minutes later, why do you take so much interest in me, Heidi looks him in the eyes, George, for once, makes direct eye contact with her, do you feel sorry for me he demands, because if that's why, Heidi takes a deep breath and he holds, at first, I admit, I was drawn to you because of your Tourette's, yes, she answers, you interested me, intellectually, but since I've gotten to know you, my reasons changed, you remind me of someone you remind me of myself, you you might as well mistake a slug for a horse, he thinks, well, maybe I should say that you remind me of my sister being with you reminds me of how I used to feel when I was with her, you both talk about yourselves the same way, Heidi wraps her arms around her knees and looks away, she was a bright girl, and she had cerebral palsy, it wasn't a bad case, just enough to make a different, the other kids laughed at her and teased her a lot, she had no friends, she drank all the time, and she started having sex when she wasn't ready, she stands abruptly and walks around George, fingering the headstones that surround them, eventually she had a baby, and then went into therapy, all that, but she overdosed a few years later, and her heart stopped, just like that, and you couldn't stop it George prompted her, I couldn't get out of my own head, in a way, I forgot about my sister until it was too late, she turns to George, she looked up to me, you know, she'd have done whatever I told her, if it bothered to take notice, so you feel guilty, George concluded, and to make up for what happened to her, you want to save me, I see a lot of her in you, George, you have a lot to offer the world, even though it seems like nobody notices, maybe not even you, you think, like I owe the world something because of this he knocks his knuckles against his head, this gift, it's bullshit, I can't stand it, what about what I want, ha Heidi trembles slightly, what better head back, George, okay George doesn't know what to say, he plays with a fresh cigarette, but doesn't light it, Heidi looks at her watch, come on, it's almost time for class, detention hall is an old, silent lecture hall, with yards of empty floor space behind the built-in desks and chairs, the jerkily ticking wall clock reads 7.06am George lay flat out behind the back row, on the floor, using his jacket as a pillow, his iPod is on, although his eyes are closed, classical music drifts dinny from the headphones, some of the kids in the back row peek over at him jealously, a few slight whispers echo through the cavernous room, the hall monitor, an elderly man named Mr. Givens, hasn't the faintest clue what George is doing, he sits under the world clock, behind a desk facing the students, he reads a newspaper as he listens to the students scratching their pencils against paper and flipping through books, occasionally, he wipes his fingers on his green polo shirt as though to keep them clean of newspaper print, he looks down his glasses at Elizabeth Winters when she comes in late, still yawning, she's wearing pajama bottoms, a terracloth bathrobe and slippers, her hair is a straw nest, sorry, Mr. Givens, she says, seeming to shrink at the glances of other students at her bedclothes, Mr. Givens doesn't even look up, you're late, he says, turning the page, I'll expect to see you here next week, as well, shit, Elizabeth mutters under her breath, and the week after that, Elizabeth, he says calmly, she sits down heavily, dropping her books loudly on the desk, Mr. Givens raises an eyebrow, and she is silent, George smiles, although he didn't hear a word of the exchange, he's in his own world, now, George and Vivian walk into Heidi's class together, talking and laughing, they take seats with the rest of the students, near the open window, a very slight breeze cools the overly warm room, Heidi stands before them, last week we talked about bad faith, she begins, bad faith, we decided, comes from reducing another person to a prescribed role, can anybody give me an example of bad faith, Vivian raises her hand, Heidi points to her, Vivian a daughter, yes Heidi smiles, in the case of the daughter, he or she is draped in nothing but a paper gown that confines him in an inauthentic identity, temporarily, at least, Heidi walks down the center row, and then sits at one of the desks, we all play different roles, she continues, some are authentic, some inauthentic, for example, I'm acting as your teacher, right now, but I'm not just a teacher, in this classroom, I play a role that doesn't fit the whole me, therefore, I'm in bad faith, 
Her Hendricks asks, looking at her like she's just cartwheeled from an alien spaceship. Heidi grins wolfishly, that reminds me, Hendricks, I have your test results back, the students groan and complain as Heidi begins to hand their tests back, then begin chattering with one another comparing scores and answers, as George turns to Vivian, a pebble flies in through the window and hits him in the back of the head, George grunts and rubs his head, George Vivian looks at him, puzzled, huh, he says, still rubbing his head, nothing, Vivian turns back to her test, another pebble hits George in the head, as George turns toward the window to see where the pebbles have been coming from, a large arc speeds through and hits him in the eye, his glasses shatter, with a cry of shock and pain, George tumbles from his chair and grabs his face, fuck, how he howls, Heidi hurries to the window and sees Ozark and Wyman running away, Ozark, Wyman she shouts, stop right there the boys halt and look back at her, their faces as ignorant as frogs, what Ozark asks quizzically, you know them well what Heidi hollers, she climbs swiftly out the window and charges toward the boys, meanwhile George doubles up on the floor, groaning and holding his eye, Vivian comes over to him and crouches down, are you okay she asks, trying to pry his hand from his face, let me see it, George resists her, no, he mumbles, they can be such assholes, George, let me see it, finally, Vivian pulls George's hand off and reveals his injury, his eyes turned an angry red and is quickly swelling shut, distraught, Vivian strokes George's back and the side of his face, murmuring, George puts his hand over his eye again, they don't even know you, they don't even fucking know you, not like I do, Vivian says soothingly, George shoves her away and gets back on his feet, I'm an opened book, Vivian, he says loudly, not caring about the other students, who stare at him wearily, I told you that, I'm an open fucking book, George picks up his books and begins holding them around the room, the other students duck beneath their desks, he grabs books off their desks and throws those as well, the pages flap wildly as the bindings boom and crash against the hard walls, an open book, an open fucking book, I told you, he screams, he tosses his desk and then grabs pencils, notebooks, anything within his grasp, he throws everything, screaming incoherently at his fellow students, many of them break away from their desks and run for the door, he kicks a chair across the room, you wanna get hurt? You wanna get fucking killed he panels heavily as the others run from the room, Vivian stares in awe, knowing better than to speak to him but still unable to leave, then leave me alone, everyone just leave me the fuck alone George screeches, and leaps out the window, out on the lawn, Heidi has Ozark and Wyman by the arms and is leading them toward the dean's office, they watch as George runs from the academic building, big baby Ozark sneers, Christ, you hit him with a rock Wyman exclaims, Heidi casts a worried look toward George, who runs wildly to the dorms, holding his face, shut up and keep moving, she growls, both of you, when Ozark and Wyman leave the dean's office, Ozark looks cocky, he finds Vivian waiting for him outside, hey, he smirks, I hope you're proud of yourself, I really hope you are, Vivian says coldly, before he can answer, she turns and walks away, they suspended me Ozark yells at her, Wyman, too, we can't even play in the Knowles game, Ozark looks at Wyman and spreads his arms, as if to say, what did I do Wyman looks very much as though he'd like to punch his friend in the face, meanwhile, in a drunken rage, George destroys his room, blind without his eyeglasses, he kicks the trash can and throws the ashtray and lamp, tosses his books and clothes onto the floor, he rips the drawers out of his chest and hurls them across the room, there's a loud knocking at the door, but he ignores it, he smashes his radio against the wall, he rips the sheets off his bed and tears them apart, when everything else is gone, he beats his fists helplessly against the wall, when the room's a wasteland, George stands there, breathing heavily, sweating, he still ignores the pounding and shouting at his door, he looks around, trying to figure out what to destroy next, he digs a carton of cigarettes out of the mess, he empties a pack onto whatever's left of his bed, it's either now or never, he mutters, slowly, carefully, he begins shredding the cigarettes, watching the bits of tobacco sprinkle onto the floor, more negative thoughts I just can't afford right now, he raps, later that evening, George comes across Vivian as she pokes around aimlessly on Main Street, looking in shop windows, he approaches her cautiously, his eyes still a mess, he still doesn't have his glasses, at least ten band-aids are taped to his hands, hiding cuts and scrapes he made in his rage, hi, he says quietly, Vivian turns away, George catches up to her, he walks erratically, stretching his groin every other step, pushing his neck out awkwardly in front of him, I'm sorry, he says, she keeps walking, 
He follows. I mean it. I'm sorry. She turns on him. You're sorry she accuses. You're sorry Vivian great. Good for you she rages. What do you want me to do? Feel sorry for you um. Forgive me George suggests. For what? George he looks at her in silence, afraid of the wrong answer, for yelling in class. He says finally, for scaring you she looks at him with disdain. You don't get it, do you Vivian snarls. You didn't scare me, and I don't care that you yelled. What gets me, George, is that you treated me like everyone else. You turned me into someone no different than Ozark, so you hate me now he pleads. She stops, looks George in the eye, and then walks off down the street. George watches her walk away, struggling with himself not to follow. Then he turns and heads back toward the school. When darkness falls, George puts his room back together again. He's taken his glasses to a shop and had them repaired. They are stuck back on his face. George paces back and forth, sweating. He rips off his shirt. He tries to find something to do with his hands, but he can't find anything that satisfies him. Finally, George just lies in bed, staring at the ceiling. He can't sleep. After an hour, he rises and makes a small pot of coffee. The machine funnels the last few drops of fresh brew and George carries a cupful to his desk. The ashtray's gone, lost somewhere in a dim corner of his closet. A ream of fresh paper stacked neatly in his printer. George sits at the desk in front of his computer. He opens a writing program and begins to type. From the inside, chapter 1. He deletes from the inside and rewrites the title to read, A Part of Me, then, below it, by George Schaefer, he thinks again, and then begins write, things really can't be as bad as they seem, the worst parts are exaggerated in the mind, he stops writing, and then takes a long sigh, he raises what he's written, he shuts his eyes, thinks, he deletes everything and starts again on an empty screen, a few weeks later, George and Heidi have lunch together at the cemetery, George seems even more restless and on edge than usual, Heidi studies him as he twitches and exhales, you look different, George, she says, musingly, she thinks a minute, and then snaps her fingers, no cigarette she declares proudly, I gave them up, and I gave up drinking, too, George says fiercely, good for you, George, I'm proud of you, Heidi smiles, it's tough, though, I want to tear down a wall with my bare hands, sometimes, but I fight the urge, you need something to take their place, something to keep your mind occupied, something positive, like what Heidi shrugs, I know you, you'll think of something, have you talked to Vivian lately I don't see much of her since I went crazy in class, you know, that day, anyway, she's Ozark's girlfriend, George snorts quietly, and looks thoughtful, later that night, he sits at his desk in front of his computer, all the lights on campus are out, except his, his shadow is hard at work, that weekend, a limousine pulls up in front of the school, the chauffeur unfolds himself from the driver's seat and opens the back door, Ozark gets out, he's holding a small duffel bag, his suspension is over, although he still can't play in the upcoming game, Wyman and Susan stand to greet him when he steps to the curb. Vivian looks on from the entrance to the dorms, then she turns and walks inside. That afternoon, at the highly anticipated Wakefield vs. Knowles lacrosse game, the usual hangers-on cheer riotously in the stands. Parents, girlfriends, and faculty clap and hoot as the home teams take the field. A number of students from both schools have come to watch. Ozark and Wyman stand on the sidelines, dressed in street clothes, watching a pep squad of six chanting and waving blue and gold bonbons in the breeze. The game is a brutal affair, and though Wakefield fights tooth and nail, their offense is no match for Knowles' defense. Time and time again, Wakefield fans moan as their boys are sent flying off a rebound of powerful screens and tackles, with each dissatisfied grumble from the crowd, Ozark's shoulders hike up closer to his ears, at long last, the final gun fires, the scoreboard reads, Wakefield 10, Visitor 13, the Knowles fans cheer and rush onto the field, while dejected Wakefield players shake hands with the winners, and then walk to the sidelines, Ozark purses his lips and Wyman's head is hung as their teammates pass them by, way to go, you guys, one of them sneers, yeah, thanks a lot, another says disdainfully, the rest of the players file past in silence, a Knowles player smiles at Ozark as he marches off the field, great game, Brossy mocks, Ozark grits his teeth, that little pricky growls, Wyman looks back and shakes his head, just let it go, will you George, of course, is utterly oblivious to the tragedy that has befallen his school's honor, rather, he types steadily through the weekend, resting only to rub his eyes and sip at a cup of coffee, weeks pass, 
The snowy winter blows itself off and begins to melt into spring. George smiles as he checks off a Friday on his calendar, which indicates the month to be April. Saturday's box says, no detention, meaning there's a free weekend ahead. He rubs his eyes. Later that day, George and Heidi have lunch under the shade of an oak tree near the river. Heidi looks preoccupied. She's not really eating. Still off her liquor and cigarettes she prompts. Yes, George knows. I found something to replace them. Heidi raises her brows in silence. My entry for the Winterborn, George explains. On band faith? The one you were talking about last semester she asks hopefully. Kind of George looks at her from the corner of his eye, his chin jerking upward. Heidi smiles, kind of. How mysterious George blinks rapidly. Not really, he'll let you see it when I finish. If you want, Heidi swats him playfully on the head. Of course I want. How's it coming a lot of it's finished already. It's hard work, but it's fun. He pauses a moment to look up at her again. It's really pretty rewarding. All on its own, Heidi beams, looking for the entire world like a proud mother. I can't wait to read it. I hope you'll get an autographed copy she winks. Hand delivered, George assures her solemnly. There's a slight pause and George notices her preoccupied expression. What? What are you thinking? He asks nervously. That might not be possible. She says slowly. Why? What do you mean I'm afraid this may be our last lunch together? Dude, what are you talking about? George demands. The school is reconsidering my tenure. George's jaw drops. The way that you and Vivian outperform everyone else has made people think I'm favoring the two of you. That's ridiculous, George says, near yelling. Of course it is, but it's their school, and, who knows, maybe I have been too hard on the students. Heidi shrugs, trying out the idea. That's bullshit. You're the best teacher here. Thank you. George, she smiles at him, I appreciate that more than you know, is there anything I can do just your best, enter the Winterborn, she squeezes his arm, and win it, when George returns to his room that afternoon, he inserts his key in the door, it seems to have already been unlocked, that's weird, he mumbles, he enters the room, stops and stares, he drops his books, his computer has been knocked over, the monitor kicked in, give me a fucking break he snarls, standing there, staring at the wreck, an inarticulate howl of rage rises in his throat, his first reaction is to lash out. He looks around wildly for something to throw. He can't find anything. George starts methodically to smash his fist into the wall and then stops. He stumbles helplessly around the room, holding his head, which throbs with pain. Tears and sweat drip from his face. He paces and walks in circles. Turn it around. Turn it around. Just turn the whole negative thought around. He drops to his knees at the side of the bed, hands together. He starts to pray. God, I'm in need of a blessing. Right now, he says firmly. George's twitching has almost stopped. He closes his eyes, and then takes a deep breath. Peace seems to come over his features. George stands and begins cleaning the room. After putting everything back in its place, George gets a fresh cup of coffee. He removes a wad of chewing gum from his mouth and aims, not at the trash can near the door to his room, but at the lithograph print of it that munches the scream. Huh? You must be the artist himself. He accuses the man in the foreground. Not screaming, huh? But protecting yourself from the scream of nature. He throws his gum and it's the artist himself right in his gaping mouth. That, my friend, is a reflex, a reaction typical of anyone struggling to keep out distressing noise, whether actual or imagined, so there. Take that he smirks at the poster. Nice throw, he congratulates himself. George sits back down at his desk, in front of his sadly abused computer. Okay, he says, looking at the dented monitor with only the slightest hint of distress. He opens up the precious file, relieved to see that all 200 pages are still intact. He ponders the title for a moment, and then reformats it. A part of me he stares at it and shakes his head. Apart from me by George Schaefer he scrolls down to the last page and waits for inspiration, but it doesn't seem to come. He creates a blank page and types, get out of my head. Scrolling back, he deletes the last three words, until the page reads only, get out, and nothing else. He prints the page. George rolls his eyes and stretches his fingers. He lifts his hands to his pounding head. 
H.M., those must be what they call intrusive thoughts. You're so welcome, strangers. I am George Schieffer, and I have Tourette's. Or maybe Tourette's is me. That's not the word of God. They are just thoughts. Just let them roll by. They hate me, so fuck me, then. Okay, okay. I fucking love, love, love this shit. I really do. George breathes heavily, a growl of rage starting to build. He looks over at the door, stifling a false sense of calm. He grabs the page from the printer and tacks it to the gum on the munch print. Get out, it screams at him, and George does, slamming the door behind him. George is hunched up over his knees at the bluff, looking out to see, ever so slightly subbing. Light footsteps tread behind him, a shadow falls over his small body. He looks up, it's Heidi, please, leave me alone, he mumbles, are you alright please, I'd really like to just be alone, that's not going to happen, George, she sits beside him, you can run all you want, but you can't run from yourself, George looks at her, don't you get it everybody's got issues, you haven't the faintest clue, about the Tourette's about anything, about everything, yes, and the Tourette's, you only see what's on the outside, he twitches, what you don't see, what you can't know, is what goes on inside, he starts crying again, Heidi puts her arm around him, I'm scared, I don't know where to begin, he sobs. Heidi wipes a tear from his eye, I'm everything I don't want to be, he pauses, shit, I don't know whether to laugh or cry, maybe it's not even Tourette's, maybe it's me, Heidi waits a moment and then opens her mouth to speak, George rushes on, it all makes me so Heidi grabs him by the shoulders, welcome to the world, George, you're human, finish with it no, stop it, I can't yes, it's true, you're human, you're one of us, she shakes him gently, deal with it, accept it, all of it, never, nobody can he yells, he jumps up and runs to the edge of the bluff, he poises himself to leap from the edge, he looks back, Heidi hasn't moved, aren't you gonna stop me let me know how it goes, she says coldly, he stares, disbelieving, go ahead, if that's what you want, she gestures for him to continue, George hesitates, teetering on the edge of the bluff, I'm tired of feeling sorry for you, George, I'm tired of hearing you feeling sorry for yourself, he rounds on her, I don't feel sorry for myself, I hate myself well, okay, then, whatever you want to call it, haven't you been listening to me, I can't take it anymore don't hide your problem, she commands him, flaunt it, laugh at it, you can't be beaten by something you laugh at, you don't understand, I do understand, she insists, her eyes blazing, that's what you can't accept, yes, I can, I welcome it, do you George looks out longingly over the sea, if I tell you that I do understand, and you believe it, then what happens to all these lies you've been telling yourself, all these years Heidi insists, he turns again, takes a step toward her, what lies how no one will ever understand you, accept you, she pauses, love you, she continues quietly, what happens then, George has nothing to say, Heidi points to the tree where George has carved the word rebel, a significant life leaves its mark, she says, what happens when you start living that significant life, George, when you start admitting that people do understand, what happens then George watches her, his chest heaving with strain, with tears of frustration and clenched teeth, every nerve in his body misfires, Heidi walks away, when Heidi begins class that afternoon, several students, including Vivian, have their heads down, Heidi goes to the blackboard, and writes, Friedrich Nietzsche, 1844-1900, she turns back to the class, who can tell me a little about Nietzsche, what was his contribution to philosophy Hendrix snorts, he said God is dead, Vivian looks up, shocked at his initiative, Hendrix shrugs, is that what you mean by yes, she stammers, and what are the implications of Nietzsche's statement pause, finally, Vivian raises her hand, yes, Vivian, how can God be dead if he's eternal Vivian asks, George raises his hand, Heidi points at him, George that's the point, Nietzsche wasn't arguing God had died, exactly, he was arguing that God never existed in the first place, then what about heaven Vivian asks, a couple of students laugh, there is none, George says lightly, there is so Vivian frowns, Heidi interrupted, what George is getting at, Vivian, is what Nietzsche argued, that there's no heaven yes, Heidi nods, but what about all the people already up there Vivian insists, most of the student laugh, some uncomfortably, that night, George sits in his room, writing, my parents did their best trying to raise a kid like me, I'm a weirdo, a freak, I'm a real challenge, so I can't blame them if they didn't always succeed, if things didn't always work out right, there's a knock on the door, George opens it, Vivian stands in the hall, he stares silently at her, 
Can I come in? Vivian says, shifting uneasily. Please. George opens the door wider. She enters the room and notices he has been working at the computer. Oh, you're busy. I'm sorry, she says. She turns to leave. George tugs her back. No, it's fine. Come here. You're writing. She peers at the monitor. What is it? My memoirs. Sort of. George shrugs. Jibber jabber. Trying to sort things out in writing. For the Winterborn. That's great. I'm tying it into what Heidi told us about bad faith. Remember Vivian glances down at her shoes. About lying to ourselves she asks quietly. George nods. Yeah. Heidi thinks I could win. That's great. Vivian says sadly. It would pay for college. You know. All four years I know. He stares at her. It's my dream. That and becoming a rich, famous writer. Vivian teases. She stands on tiptoe. Kisses him. And heads towards the door. Wait. What's up? What do you want? Nothing important. It was my dad's birthday today. I wanted to tell you. George grins. Halfway to hell. He says. Vivian smiles back. You remembered. George nods. That was it. Though. To tell you about my dad. To say hello. Goodbye. Nothing important. She blows him a kiss. Bye. George. Vivian closes the door quietly behind her. George turns to his writing. Smiling slightly still. George continues to work at the computer late into the evening. At one point. He stops and looks around as if he hears something distant. Water crashing against rocks. He frowns. Then he returns to writing. The next morning, George walks across campus to class. Students are gathered around the entrance to the academic building, talking excitedly. Susan catches his eye and, for once, she actually looks happy to see him. She rushes up. Have you seen Vivian? She's gone. Susan pleads. Gone George echoes. Gone. Susan repeats, irritated. We can't find her. Can't find her. What are you? Deaf. I said Vivian's gone. As in, nobody knows where she is. Have you seen her? George feels a faint dawn of understanding. He shudders. Last night I did. What time Susan presses? Eight? Nine? I don't remember. Susan rolls her eyes in frustration and walks on. Shit. What kind of help is that she mutters? George thinks. Then he turns to Susan, who's hurrying away from him. Did anyone check the bluff he calls? Susan keeps walking. She doesn't appear to hear him. George turns around and strides quickly to the woods. He hurries up the path, glancing all around for Vivian, desperately hoping to find her. When he reaches the bluff, it's completely deserted. Vivian he yells. All he hears is his own echo. He searches every inch of the bluff, calling. On the ground at his feet, he finds the freak coin and starts to get frantic. Vivian his voice squeaks. He looks to the edge of the bluff, sees the waves rolling out to sea. Finally, he makes himself go to the edge of the bluff and forces himself to look down. He says, nothing. George sinks to the ground, relieved, laughing at himself for worrying, sighing with relief. He stretches out flat on his back and cradles his hands under his head, still laughing. That's when he says, Vivian, a crooked, bent body hangs in the bow of a tree, caught in broken branches. George screams, paramedics, rescue personnel, Dean Winterborn, and Heidi stand on the bluff with George. Heidi has her arm around George. His face is white and his body shakes regularly with shock. Together they watch the paramedics and rescue personnel remove Vivian's body from the tree. George buries his head in Heidi's armpit. Dean Winterborn sees. He shakes his head at Heidi, but she only pulls George closer. Later that night George, agitated, sits in front of his computer. He writes furiously then deletes everything he's written. He drums his fingers on the desktop, writes again in a flurry of fingers, and then leaps to his feet. In one fell swoop, he knocks the computer and monitor to the ground. Surprisingly, they land upright and intact. George throws himself on the bed. He balls his hands in two fists and starts tugging at his hair. Fuck. Fuck you. Fuck me. Fuck Vivian. Fuck fuck fuck. He grits through clenched teeth. He gets to his feet, pulls on a sweatshirt and storms out of his room. He walks straight to the pen, hands in his pockets and face in the shadows. When he enters, George stops first at the cigarette machine. He buys a pack and then sits down at the bar. Ozark is already there, sitting in the back. He notices George arrive, watches his every motion. The bartender, a glass of bourbon in his hand, walks over to George and sets the glass down in front of him. 
Good to see you, my man, he says cheerfully. George nods, not making eye contact. The bartender wanders off as George raises the glass to his lips. A very drunk Ozark approaches, wraps his arm around George's shoulder, and starts to cry. Shit, Twitch, I can't fucking believe it, he moans. What a waste, what a fucking goddamn waste, George says nothing. The glass is poised at his lips, the unopened pack of cigarettes sits on the bar. I loved her, I fucking loved that chick, her name was Vivian, George says evenly. I know, man, I loved her, George puts his drink down. You didn't love her, I did, you didn't even like her, George accuses, you cheated on her with Susan, I heard you. Ozark, but day in the library, I heard you, Ozark mutters incoherently to himself. George pushes his drink away, gets off the stool, and heads towards the door. Ozark's voice stops him. George, George turns, for what it's worth. Man, I'm sorry, for Vivian, for your journal, your room, the fucking all of it. George leaves. When George returns to his dorm room, Heidi is waiting for him in the hall. His door isn't completely closed. Heidi smiles sadly at him. George walks past her without speaking and enters his room. Heidi follows. George looks around the room and then flops to his bed, pulling out the pack of cigarettes. Can I come in? Heidi asks. George's face is stone. You already are. She takes another step forward, and then stops. I came to see how you're doing, George shrugs, but you weren't here. So I waited. How are you doing? George George opens the pack of cigarettes, pulls one out. You want to talk about it? I'm fruity talking. He pats his pockets and looks on the night table, searching for a match. He gets off the bed, pulls open his desk drawers, and starts to dump everything on the floor. Heidi reaches into her own pocket and tosses him a lighter. George looks surprised. Will that make you feel better? I'm doing everything you've already done. George lights the cigarette, but he doesn't inhale. I went to the pen, he says at last. Heidi waits, but I didn't drink. He inhales and coughs slightly, so I'm not undoing everything just some things George hurled the lit cigarette still in his hand. How about the Winterbourne? She indicates the computer and monitor on the floor. Are you undoing that? George shrugs. He says nothing. I wish there was something I could say, George. It would make all of this somehow better. But there's nothing. I can't even tell you that you'll get over it, because you won't. I never got over my sister's death, but you go on. George, that's the thing. You keep on living, and you can't afford to lose everything you've worked so hard for. I don't want to go on. George's face scrunches up painfully, like a child's. I understand that. I loved her. He sobs. I know, George cries unabashedly before his teacher. I really did. She was the first girl I ever knew who didn't fucking judge me, who didn't keep looking at me like I was some sort of freak. She just let me be, be, you know I know, and now she's just, she's gone. George can't speak now for the sobs that have overtaken him. Heidi goes to him and wraps her arms around his shoulders. She takes the cigarette from his hand and puts it out on the desk. When George's tears finally still, he stands. George picks up the computer and monitor and sets them on the desk. Every time I sit down to write, I freeze, he explains. I look at the screen, and all I can see is her. All I see is Vivian. No matter what I do, I can't get her out of my head. It's so bad, I'm thinking of leaving, leaving Wakefield. George nods. The reason I came here was so I could write and maybe win the Winterbourne and go to college. Now I don't even know if I want to go to college. I mean, a lot of writers don't even go to college, true, but a lot of writers do go to college. You feel like it's your fault? That you should have somehow known George Nos. It's not, and you couldn't have, Heidi says. George smiles, but cautiously. He's not reassured. She wasn't well. George, but she trusted me, I should have seen it coming, I should have stopped her, you couldn't have, Heidi pauses, did you know she left you a letter, George looks at her blankly, Heidi rummages through her purse and brings out an envelope, they found it on her body, I told her parents I knew you, that I'd give it to you, she hands the envelope to George, who opens it, pulls out a single piece of paper, and starts to read, George, if you're reading this, then I did it, I finally did it, finally found the courage, George looks at Heidi, the courage Heidi nods, the courage to stop living the charade, stop pretending to be what I'm not, happy, George, I've been trying to get myself out of here since I was 12, ever my dad died, so be happy for me, okay, I'll see you, later, on the other side, and remember, dying is an art, I do it exceptionally well, George glances again at Heidi, she quoted Plath, Heidi nods, why she wasn't well, George, but quoting Plath, like she was writing term paper or something you couldn't have done anything, she needed help, George, 
more help than you could have given her. George gets to his feet. He slides the paper back to Heidi. You don't want this, Heidi asks. I can't remember her that way. Heidi nods, and then leaves. George turns back to his laptop. Soon, the shouts and laughter of students below his window drift up to his room. He doesn't notice. He types steadily, without deleting a thing. At 10pm he goes to bed, sleeps for exactly 8 hours, and then wakes up in the morning and immediately begins typing once more. And then there comes a bright, spring day, when all the parents, students, and faculty mill about campus, weighing for the final ceremony. Banners hang from trees, congratulations, best wishes. After everyone is seated, Dean Winterbourne stands at the podium. The Winterbourne Memorial Scholarship is one of the most prestigious awards Wakefield Academy has to bestow. He begins, previous recipients include students who have achieved greatness in politics, literature, and film, and this year's recipient, I am sure, will distinguish himself in whatever field he chooses to pursue. He has displayed brilliance through adversity, and triumphed over obstacles that few of us can imagine. And so, without further ado, I give you this year's winner of the Winterbourne Memorial Scholarship, George Schieffer. Applause. George hops, skips, and jumps up to the stage. He takes his award and mumbles something into Dean Winterburn's ear. The Dean nods his assent, and George takes his place at the podium. This has been a year unlike any other for me, George says nervously. It's been a very good year. This year I learned as much from life as I did from class, and I'm proud to accept this scholarship. However, without the presence of Vivian Babylon in my life, he pauses as murmurs from the audience interrupt him. I don't think I'd be standing up here today to accept this award if it wasn't for her. So I just want to say, thank you, Vivian. Thank you for teaching me about life, about writing, and about myself. He holds the placard above his head. This is for you, Vivian. Then he grimaces intentionally. And, this, too. He wraps his arm over his head and pulls his ear. The audience responds with appreciative laughter. And this, he ticks again. The audience claps. And this, George hop, 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 skip skips across stage. The audience explodes in thunderous applause. Later, outside, students, parents, and faculty members mill about, chatting, taking pictures, and sipping punch from paper cups. George stands near the water fountain, apart from everyone, clutching his diploma. Pops and Rose approach and wrap their arms around George. He hugs them. That was quite an acceptance speech, Pops says. I was so proud. Rose cried. She hesitates a moment. We were so proud. George's parents beam. They turn around to pour themselves a glass of punch, and pour one for George. Two, across the commons, Ozark looks on with a half-smile. George notices and lifts his hand in a half-wave. Heidi approaches him slowly across the lawn. George he looks up. Congratulations, she shakes his hand warmly. George smiles. Thanks, what about you? Are you coming back next year? Heidi shakes her head. No, she says. They let you go Heidi smiles. Let's call it a mutually agreed upon parting of ways. They fired you Heidi pats George's arm. No, George, they didn't fire me. Really, it was time for me to go. That's so unfair. George scowls. You're such a good teacher. He pauses. A wonderful teacher. Heidi squeezes his shoulder. Pops and Rose offer George his punch and put their arms around him again as Heidi smiles, her eyes glistening with tears. George hugs his parents, watching Heidi all the while. Heidi smiles more brightly, and then cocks her head quizzically. Heidi, I'd like to introduce my mum and dad, George says politely. It is 3.10am. This chill night really makes my skin crawl. It's so quiet here that it gives me the creeps. I ought to be in bed, I guess, catching a few zes, but the twitches and ticks just keep me awake and these meds I'm strung out on won't let me sleep. I haven't slept in three days, but hey, I'm not complaining. At least I'm out of rehab and I can get back to my writing, my cryptic transsexual writing, my creepy secret wet dreams, my perplexity, my perversity, the secret sex diaries of Benage A. Schaefer. Yeah, that's me, Benage A. Schaefer, or at least I think that's me. But does Bane think that's me? That's what I want to know. See, Bane, I'm writing again just like you told me to. Writing therapy. Shit, does this feel like therapy? Does it look like therapy? Does it read like therapy? Tell it to the doc, not me. I'm not buying it, but the doc buys it. Bane that is. She's the latest psycho brain picker in a long, long line of shrinks my dear old dad and stepmom have hired to try to make me cop to the crazy rap. Yeah, dear old dad and mum, they slap me into rehab and expect me to come out as some kind of wholesome, normal, healthy human being, or something. Huh? Just think. 
me, then it's a shafer, like I ever was some kind of wholesome, healthy, normal human being, or something. Imagine that if you can, I know I can't, and if I can't, it'll never happen, it's like I tried to tell the doc, doc, I said, it's like I have these sleazy snuff flicks, these schizophrenic sex and drug skits, these scuzzy blue movies playing in my mind all of the time, sleeping or waking, on the street or at home, whatever, wherever, it doesn't matter, I have these schizophrenic sex fantasies and psychotic porn movies playing in my mind, and George Schaefer, he's in them, and Vivian Babylon, she's in them, and sometimes I'm in them, sometimes that Bane, she's in them too, and sometimes, creepy people I don't even know are in my dreams and somehow I just can't make them stop, you know what I mean, doc yeah, right, that Bane, she knows doesn't see, she sees those schizophrenic porn flicks and psycho blue movies playing in my mind, or somebody's mind anyway, somebody just like me, but she isn't talking, she just keeps asking me these sneaky questions trying to poke around in my mind and pick my brains, trying to get inside my brain and see what makes me twitch and tick like I do, like she's trying to cure me, I don't even know if I want to be cured, you've got to want to be cured, Benny, Bane tells me, otherwise, it just won't work, but I'm not buying that, either, believe me, I know these psychos, I know these shrinks, they are crazier than me, and that's saying something, they are a bunch of loonies and freaks, creeps and perverts, and I'm not letting any shrink poke around in my secret sex fantasies and stick her fingers into my sleazy pornographic dreams and try to take them away from me, or maybe get me stuck back in rehab again, for life, so I keep that bane at a safe distance, you know what I mean, I keep her at arm's length, and I don't tell her anything that isn't good for her, don't say anything that she doesn't need to know, which is nothing at all if you ask me, but at least that bane got me over my writing block, I've got to give her that, she cured me of my writer's block, if you can call it cured, so now I can write, write and write, I can write my brains out, or my crap out, whatever I can finally write whatever shit I want straight from the schizophrenic subconscious, from the psychoporno underworld, just me and my psycho sidekick and schizophrenic alter ego, George Schaefer, and of course, George's lifelong porno chick obsession and freaky cheeky perplexity, Vivian Babylon, Vivian Babylon, my kinky sex goddess, my creepy, peeping nemesis, the number one love and hate object of my whole twisted love and sex life, keep writing, Benny, Bane says, just keep writing, at least this way if Bane catches me writing this crap and busts me to my ex-wife for alimony or something I can always say, hey, that isn't really me, it's just George and Vivian, see George Schaefer and Vivian Babylon who keep stalking me and haunting me and making me write this crap, who keep acting out these schizophrenic blue movie skits and creepy porno flick wet dreams that keep running through my mind, because, see, I was supposed to be cured, I was supposed to be clean, I was supposed to be off this sex, drugs and porn obsession I picked up somewhere along the way, and I swore, honest to god, that I wouldn't go back again of course I'd say anything just so they'd let me out of rehab, well, now here I am, sure as shit, Benny J. Schaefer, I'm back for another schizophrenic blue movie and sleazy sex and drugs flick, along with George Schaefer, my creepy schizo sidekick, and kinky sex partner in perplexity and perversity, and Vivian Babylon, our freaky sex goddess and sado bondage mistress, yeah, and all these other freaks and loonies too, all these other creeps and pervs, those other schizophrenic bitches and ho-ho-hos, they are real, or aren't they? Don't ask me, and don't search me either, all I know is that I keep on having these schizo fantasies, these psychoporno interludes or whatever, so I write them down in my secret sex diaries and let Bane try to figure out what they are all about, what's real and what not, what's me and what's George, and what is this thing we have, George and me, with that Vivian Babylon, what a freaky threesome we'd be now, wouldn't we, Bane, what a kinky hook up for the creeps and pervs wet dreams, you see just George Schaefer, Vivian Babylon, and me, Benny J. Schaefer and a cast of millions out there in the invisible studio audience, we're all ready for another freaky blue movie skit and schizo psycho episode in, the secret sex diaries of Benny J. Schaefer, a screaming alarm clock on the nightstand reads 9am, George lies in bed under the sleep rumpled covers, his bare feet sticking out the bottom, he's wearing long pajama pants without a shirt, he rolls over slapping the snooze button and the alarm clock stops squawking, for the moment, anyway, several hours later the squawking alarm clock on the nightstand now reads 2 p.m., George finally rolls over and cuts off the alarm, groggily, strung out and hung over he struggles out of bed, George waddles into the kitchen in his old worn out bathrobe, he rubs his eyes, he looks around the kitchen, it's a wreck, dirty dishes are piled high in the sink, 
trash is scattered across the counters and on the floor. In other words it's a typical morning in a typical day in the secret life of George Schaefer. He looks down at the stove and sees a cold leftover grilled cheese sandwich in a frying pan with only one bite taken. George takes a big shaky bite of last night's reality sandwich and tries to gag it down. George has a market board up on the refrigerator with a to-do list stuck to it. The only thing the list says is, get cigarettes, the scribbled note is a check mark by it. George glances at the telephone and answering machine, the red light is blinking. George lifts a pack of cigarettes from the counter and reluctantly presses the play message button. He takes a step back to listen. The first voice is feminine but firm. Good morning, George. It's Patty at the bank. Your account is overdrawn again. Can you please George hits the delete button. The machine moves on. This is a courtesy call from Visa. You have an overdue balance of 1000. 9 George hits the delete button again. The machine continues to play. This is a message from Publishers Clearinghouse letting you know that you are now out of the running for the 10 million dollar George hits the delete button. The machine keeps playing. Hey George, it's your moth George hits delete. The machine starts to play another message but George hits the delete button again and again until there are no messages left. George takes a cigarette out of the pack and puts it in his mouth. He doesn't light it yet. The cigarette dangles loosely from his lips as he walks over to the constantly heating coffee pot that is still half filled with old coffee. He takes a dirty coffee mug out of the sink and inspects it. It doesn't look too bad, he thinks, just a little scraggy around the edges. He shrugs his shoulders, fuck it, he thinks, just give me the coffee and I'm out of here. George pours the two-day-old coffee into the mug. He takes a sip, it's so hot it burns his tongue. George drops the mug on the kitchen floor and coffee spills everywhere as it shatters. George just stares at the spilled coffee and walks into the bathroom. On the can George looks at the silver toilet paper dispenser. The roll is empty, his bleary worn out face is also blank and empty. He steps in the shower, talking to himself. The soap drops thudding as it strikes the porcelain tub. George bends, he slips and falls. Goddamn, he moans, what a way to start the day, eh? George tries to start anew in the kitchen. He lines up 10 espresso cups on the counter, each filled with black tar. He pours a sugar shaker along the line of cups, running back and forth between them, an unlit cigarette dangling from his lips. George pours each cup into a large thermos. Then he walks out of the kitchen, stepping right into the spilled coffee and porcelain shards. Coffee splashes up over his feet, but George doesn't notice. After downing half the thermos, George steps into the bathroom. He turns on the hot water in the shower and just lets it run. Steam fills the air, moistening his lungs. After a few minutes, George lights his cigarette and sits down on the toilet. He picks up a three-month-old copy of Newsweek. He thumbs through it, scans a few words, scopes a few pictures, and then throws it down. The radio plays A Day in the Life by the Beatles. Eventually, George gets dressed and walks out the front door into the white sunlit street. He stands out on the front patio, smoking a cigarette and drinking a beer. A couple of his neighbors are outside their houses, too. It's a ritzy suburban subdivision somewhere in Los Angeles County. A well-dressed woman is walking, pushing a baby carriage. She waves to George's neighbor. The well-groomed neighbor casually waves back. The well-dressed woman walks by George. George sheepishly raises his hand and waves. The well-dressed woman walks right past him like he doesn't exist. A few minutes later, another well-groomed couple comes walking up the street. They, too, march right past George like he doesn't exist. Like, maybe, he doesn't. Even, George takes another pull off his beer. Although superficially nobody notices George. The neighbors are really watching everything that happens at George's place. There are quite a few of them actually, snooping and peeping behind the closed blinds and shuttered windows. Mostly they are the housewives stuck at home with their toddlers while their husbands are at work. And then there's Deb and Christian, plain Jane lesbian lovers, both 35 years old, who live across the street. Deb is the butchback, Christian is the feminine balancer. They walk, hand in hand, to the front yard of their next door neighbor, Robin, chatting about their neighbors. We wonder, don't we, whom are they talking about? Could they be talking about George and Vivian? She's the perfect housewife. Deb sniffs. She does the shopping, she does the laundry, and she does the dishes. All she does is wait on him. Don't underestimate her, Deb. 
Kristen Snipes, all she really wants is his money, his inheritance, he's worth millions, what about the sex deb asks, do they still have sex, do you think, after all these years, it's got to be good, after all those years, it better be good, Kristen jokes, they snicker, the two approach Robin's yard, she's sunbathing with a three year old toddler who plays with squeaky toys in a playpen, Robin, who's pregnant and in her thirties, reads a tabloid on a chaise lounge, she's a blondish, girl next door type, with a deep voice and frizzy red hair underneath her blonde highlights, while sunbathing, she covers herself against the sun in any way that she can, Kristen and Depp scope her out, saying hello, hi, Robin, Kristen chirps, she turns to the toddler and starts babbling baby talk, hi you, baby boy, wagga wagga wagga, she pinches the boy's cheeks, you know, Kristen, Deb, Robin says, you're probably right, it's immediately clear that she's been following their conversation, but I do bet it gets boring after a while, she concludes, I think she's one of those quiet criminals, Deb whispers, I think she's a real freak, how so Kristen wants to know, I don't know, it's just the two of them, Deb smirks, they bring the weirdest people over, one leaves and then the other leaves, they never go out together, and besides, they're so antisocial, so what's wrong with that Kristen asks, he comes home one day like he's just won the lottery, he's got a new car, he redoes the house, and she picks out the colors, what more can a woman want, nobody's perfect, you know, they're probably swingers, Robin guesses, they're probably wife swappers, what's that supposed to mean Kristen asks nervously so what I think she swings both ways, Deb snickers, so what, Deb Kristen asks, yeah, so what Robin snickers, so do I, Kristen rolls her eyes, yeah, right, she says, George walks through the house, drinking the last of the espresso from his thermos, he lights a cigarette and gulps down off the final, cold shot for fast, fast, fast relief, and George sees that the day is nice, there are white, pillowing, slow moving clouds, blue sky, and bright sun, shit, George grunts, not another beautiful day, he twitches and ticks his discomfort, George walks out onto the second floor patio, he looks down below, the hard working landscapers of their power blowers on high, or a police helicopter flies overhead, loud, loud, loud a cigarette boat screams by in the distance, fire truck sirens whine, George's face shudders, his arms jerk up from his sides, in a moment of panic George escapes downstairs, he climbs into his car and blusts out of the driveway, George arrives at his office around 3.15pm, he's only 6 or so as late, in the messy trashed out office there's a desk with a computer and papers strewn everywhere, his inbox is piled as high with papers as the sink in George's kitchen is piled with dishes, George stares at the landscape of his desk for a long time, finally, he glances at an empty picture frame on the wall, there's nothing in it except the blank wall, George alternates his attention between the desk and the wall, this goes on for some time, finally, George reaches for another cigarette, he notices it's his last one, when George gets home, he looks at the marker board and erases the check mark by get cigarettes, then he picks up a marker and rechecks it, the next day, George walks down the street singing A Day in the Life, by the Beatles, at the same time an anonymous new age type woman about 40, professionally dressed and wearing open toed high heel shoes, also walks down the street, she's singing the same song as George, the Beatles A Day in the Life, the new age woman sings the verses only just after George does, like she's imitating him, only with some slight time lapse delay, after the new age woman has finished the first verse, George starts in on the chorus, after George has finished, the new age woman starts in on the chorus, George and the new age woman both turn the same corner at the same time, singing the same sang, they run right into each other, George hears that she's singing and immediately stops, like he's embarrassed or something, somehow he just knows, we just know, that the new age woman is Vivian Nesbitt, but he's not going to admit he knows, is he of course he isn't, and neither am I, were you just singing that Beatles song, to the woman asks, I am not sure, George stammers, yeah you were, Vivian says, I just know it that Beatles song from the White Album, or, I mean, Sgt. Pepper, yeah yeah, yeah, George sounds excited, it's George searches his memory for the name of the song, but still draws a blank, a day in the life, Vivian smiles, that's it George gushes, George smiles for the first time all day, Vivian lights a cigarette, 
Do you happen to have another of those George Osks? By any chance Vivian hands George one of her virginia slims. George looks sheepishly at the woman's face. He notices her frizzy red hair, her bright green eyes. Almost immediately his shy eyes dart from her face to the brightly painted toes in her open-toed shoes. George can't take his eyes off of her stunningly painted toenails and stylish feet. He looks at Vivian like a guy who's having a one-way conversation with a pair of huge tits. George tries to look Vivian in the eyes, but he just keeps looking down at her feet. Vivian looks down to see what George is looking at, and finally notices she's stepped in something sticky. Ah, damn it Vivian curses politely. I stepped in somebody's gum, I think it's a lifesaver, George says helpfully. George playfully knocks the lifesaver off her heel with his foot. He gives a shy grin as the new age woman with frizzy red hair and green eyes inspects her brightly painted toes and open-toed high-heeled shoes. George notices a wedding band on her finger, but that just excites him even more. So, do you George begins excitedly, or don't you George and Vivian carry on a conversation, their lips moving and smiling, they are both obviously into each other, they keep laughing and talking excitedly, a few times George points to Vivian's brightly painted feet, and she giggles girlishly in response, Vivian lights George's cigarette, they decide to check into a motel, in the motel, Vivian sits on the couch while George is sitting on the coffee table, he licks the stylish arch of Vivian's right foot while she croons to Moby's Ever Living, which plays over the dinny radio, suddenly, in the entrancing midst of this passionate, romantic seduction scene and delirious foot fetishist's fantasy, reality blinks out, the whole scene changes, the motel room is empty, in the bathroom, a towel has been thrown out on the floor, it's crumpled up from wet feet, there are wet footprints on the bathroom floor and empty single serving soap bottles on the corner shelf, the housekeeper, Mary, gets the room ready for the next guests, the telephone sits on the unmade bed, there's a half-used box of tissues beside it, George stands in the corner of his well-groomed yard, watering the closely clipped grass with a green garden hose, he smiles and waves to a neighbor passing by on the street, the neighbor, well-dressed, ignores George of course, from inside the house, the phone rings twice, Vivian's voice echoes quietly from the answering machine, hey there, George, she says, I was just thinking of you, the blue moonshine lights up the white sand beach and the white capped breakers, the tide is low, the whispering wave rollers are quiet and gentle, walking alone near the water's edge is a party of one, cigarette in mouth a slightly disheveled, paunchy, middle-aged man, who is this guy, it's George, of course, but he looks slightly out of shape, why does he look so bedraggled, so downtrodden, what's happened to change the George gust we know and love, don't we, into this disheveled, haggard stranger we scarcely know, still, even though George looks pretty scruffy, like he's been slacking, maybe drinking and doping, sink into a dissolute life of drunkenness and dissipation he still has that drug addict sexiness some girls really go nuts for, although he's lost in thought, he's still taking in everything around him, the white caps crash louder and the screaming girls come storming in for a meal, early the next morning the white sand beach is empty, the sky is grey, flat and still, the screaming girls fly low in flux, the pacific rollers wash in and out, whispering with a mysterious voice, out of nowhere Vivian's voice appears on George's voicemail, I was downstairs at one of the lectures, Vivian's voice murmurs, it's so boring, but I got several compliments on my new pedicure, we're revisiting the past again, and we, we're back in the early days of Vivian Babylon and George Schaefer, right, can't we ever escape the past, Vivian's raspy, husky voice echoes on George's voicemail, so I thought maybe you might like to know what a great job you did, and on such short notice, too, what a swell guy you are, the old wooden pier juts out into the immense blue ocean, a middle-aged couple walks hand in hand toward the end of the pier, they stare quietly out at the barges coming in, there's a snack and bait stand to their left, it is still closed at this early morning hour, the receiver of an old black payphone dangles off its hook, scrap litter blows in the wind, out of nowhere, Vivian's husky, sexy voice appears on George's voicemail, I'm meeting some cool people here, she tells him, but a lot of them are really lame, this whole convention is really boring, only a few fishermen are out with their fishing gear, it's still very early in the morning, an Asian man pulls up a small fish that dangles on fishing line, his small son grabs the white bait bucket, out of nowhere Vivian's smoky, sexy voice appears on George's voicemail, so, you see, some of my new friends wanted to hang out by the bar and talk medicine, but I was hoping we could finish our conversation a delivery van drives past, 
Somebody tosses a newspaper on George's well-groomed front lawn. There's a big pile of old rolled-up newspapers on the closely clipped lawn. Out of nowhere, Vivian's chirpy, worn-out voice appears on George's voicemail. The weather's so much nicer out here. We should at least get together before I leave tomorrow. Bright red sunlight leads through the closed window blinds. George's sprawled on the bed with his eyes squeezed shut, passed out, sound asleep. Out of nowhere Vivian's cheerful encouraging voice appears on George's voicemail, I was thinking about how brilliant you are, she says, and, likes, you have so much talent, people look at you and they see big things, the silent alarm clock on the nightstand reads 10.30am, out on the beach that afternoon the sky has cleared up a bit, the white sand beach is packed with kite flyers, a dozen kites glide along the windy coastline full of living color and wonderful beauty, on the old wooden pier there are dozens of fishermen, in fact, there are more men than fish, at the hotel across the road a professional healthcare conference is just letting out, conference guests come swarming out of the emptying motel lobby. The checkout line is backed up out the door. The professional conference guests still wearing official name tags check out of the hotel, one by one, two by two, and three by three. The well-dressed bellboys are busy trying to handle two or four bags each. The flustered guests press tips into the bellboys hands and hop in two waiting cabs. George's three-story suburban penthouse is really quite modest. So are most of the three-story houses in this suburban neighborhood. Out of nowhere Vivian's boisterous, challenging voice appears on George's voicemail. What would you do if you knew you couldn't fail she asks. What would you do if you knew you couldn't fail she repeats. I just love that question. In this modest suburban neighborhood the neighbors wear light jackets when they walk their dogs. A few stray house cats prowl the sidewalks. A small crowd of early morning walkers chats and gossip on the sunny corner near lines of sporty new cars parked on the white sunlit street. It seems like a friendly neighborhood, doesn't it? Out of nowhere Vivian's gritty, deep-throated voice appears on George's voicemail. Grab hold of just one project and get in there with your teeth and see what happens. She challenges him, even if you don't really have to, to make a living. Why not? What have you got to lose? George's slightly pretentious suburban house is on a sunny street corner. It's the biggest house on the whole block. It's also got an ocean view. It takes up two full lots. What with the three-story house and the modest guest house over the three-car garage. Out of nowhere Vivian's shrilling, encouraging voice appears on George's voicemail. Somebody wants to tell a story about you and you're the only one who knows it well enough. She cheers him on. Go for it she says. The front yard is a small grassy area with exotic landscaping, a patio and a whiteboard fence. The house is made of brick, of course. Out of nowhere Vivian's hard-bitten, satiric voice appears on George's voicemail. You do the world a favor, hell do it for me she barks. I'd love to hear about all the shit you've been through. A small gate leads to the front door of his charming and desirable home. The house is a little bit for just one person especially a lonely guy like George. Out of nowhere Vivian's mawkish, jeering voice appears on George's voicemail. So what if your dad is some big well-to-do public figure or whatever she mocks? This is your chance to shine, she applauds. Just go for it she pauses. Oh. Just, wait a minute, at George's plush suburban home, the Mexican housekeeping staff arrives in a black Ford excursion. The boss, a 40-ish Hispanic male hipster named Sanchez, wears a ponytail his son, Ruben, who's about 21 years old is dressed as a Mexican gangster. The female assistant is an Anglo who's sweet and polite and wears glasses, but oddly enough she speaks no English at all. Out of nowhere Vivian Saccharine, girlish voice appears on George's voicemail, I have a sweet little gift I found in the gift shop down here, she purrs, it's the perfect little gift. Just for you, George. The excursion park is on the shady side of the house near the three-car garage. Out of nowhere Vivian's middle-aged, tired voice appears on George's voicemail. Anyway, my number should have popped up on your phone, she says, ringing off. Just let me know what happens. The crew unload the cleaning supplies. The silent alarm clock on the nightstand reads, 12 p.m. George is a little bit heavier and maybe too dull. Otherwise, he's a handsome young man, we think. He lies in the sleep-rumpled bed, looking beat crumpled up piles of slick pornographic magazines, and a tiny video player that rolls a triple X show surround George. But George is not really watching, is he? George's feet hang out of the slightly yellowish sheets. 
his socks dangle limply over the nightstand. George wears long pajama pants without a shirt revealing his stressed out little jelly belly. He sits up in bed and leans over. He peeks out the bedroom window through the shuttered Venetian blinds and sees the cleaning crew unlocking the back door, about to come inside. He starts to panic. Shit, George says, they're here. He gets up out of bed, agitated. He finds his wire-rimmed glasses on the nightstand and puts them on, but immediately he notices they are smudged. He wipes them clean as best he can with his pajama pants. George spots the clock and turns its face away, mumbling jumbled pseudo-garbled himself. He rechecks the time with his watch and two other alarm clocks in out-of-reach places. He decides that it's officially afternoon. He twists open the blinds. White sunlight beams through the horizontal bars. Behind the closet door an old white hotel bathrobe hangs. George wraps himself up in the robe and folds his arms wishing he could find the waist tie. He opens his bedroom door but the Mexican housekeeper beats him to it. George has no choice but to say something. Hi, George says. The woman smiles at him. Hola, she says, and steps into the bedroom. She's only slightly embarrassed. The woman has obviously run into George before on other occasions, when he was in even worse shape than now. She speaks in Spanish and signs to George that she'll come back at a better time. She sashays away down the living room hallway. Mary, the Mexican housekeeper, returns to the kitchen where Ruben is prepping the dishes and unloading the dishwasher. Without taking orders, Mary swipes up a mop and starts scrubbing the tile floors. The boss, Sanchez, starts the coffee machine. The three talk to each other in Spanish. Ruben switches on the small clock radio that's mounted by the kitchen sink. Mariachi music swarms through the air, thick with the scent of soap. Strung out and hung over, George stumbles in and grabs a pack of smokes. He ducks out mumbling, and then strolls through the still disorganized living room. It's a disaster. George turns to the front door to smoke on the porch, but before he gets there he stops for a moment, turning back to the disheveled bathroom, with the unlit cigarette still propped in his mouth. George starts the shower water running on hot. Then he walks through the door and sits heavily on the porch steps. George tries to light his cigarette but the lighter only flashes and sparks without catching flame. He takes a fresh matchbook off the patio table and lights the whole matchbook. With the matchbook flaring wildly, he finally lights Vivian's Ultra Slim 120. On the white concrete sidewalk in front of George's plush suburban home, George's well-dressed neighbor walks a small baby. The man's dressed appropriately for a cool day, wearing a light windbreaker and thick jeans. Nice day, isn't it the neighbor says. Or something, anyway, he waves cheerfully to George. George still isn't dressed yet. He's still wearing his old heavy bathrobe. George turns his back to the white concrete sidewalk and faces the house. His reflection in the front window stares back at him vacantly. He's a little embarrassed. He's really not the social type. A delivery door enters through the small front gate. He pulls George's paper from the stack and hands it to him with a new delivery menu from Ling's China Garden. George nods, thanks. While George still stands smoking in the front yard, Ib and Christian, holding hands, approach George's corner yard with their dog. One of them starts to wave hello, but George has already put out his cigarette and headed back inside where the bathroom is bellowing steam. George powers up the DVD player that is mounted outside the bathroom door. The 1001 Living Dead strings start playing their greatest hits of great dead teenage vampire lovers. Now there's music, George thinks. The Mexican houseboy, Ruben, fits a stack of DVDs onto George's CD tower shelves. He returns to the kitchen fridge checking off the first item from the list. Things that need to be done. Number 1. Put DVDs and CDs in two piles. Number 2. Switch furniture around. Number 3. Cooler. Coordinate closets. George slouches through the crowded living room staring at the lists of things to do written on little pieces of scrap paper that are stacked on his coffee table. In George's new age living room there's a sheer overkill of every little known fancy gizmo and cheap modernized gimmick. Every cutting edge electronic doodad and trendy entertainment gadget that could possibly fit into a single room. But somehow, the room's still neat and organized. There are 8x10 inch blocks photos and brightly colored drawings framed and tacked up along the walls, and on the bookshelves there's certificates displaying George's distant past, awards, trophies, graduation records, pictures of old girlfriends. There are piles and piles of hardcore intellectual books stacked in piles of three hardcover copies each. The video and music collection also exists in triplicate. He has too many things, and too many copies of his things. Some of George's sketches and notes, peeking out of folders and from behind books, are only half finished. His drawings and paintings are scattered randomly on the hard surfaces of the room. They are hardly done, but still brilliant. 
Graph paper diagrams seem drawn with purpose but with no immediate implications along with intricate patent designs and obscure blueprints. It's obvious that George has a strong, inventive mind maybe even too strong for his own good. He has too many projects going on for one slothful slackadude, arbitrary projects, redundant and grandiose projects, stupid, trivial projects, but still, too many way too many. Compared to his present, George's past seems distinctly rich and full to him now. Somehow he seems to have lost that richness and fullness, that living, colorful beauty. Now he finds comfort only in his troubled sleep. He has nothing to look forward to. Now, now, all his needs are taken care of. The things in his house, although artistically placed, are almost mathematically arranged. Somehow everything corresponds to everything else. George's quantum physics textbooks are neatly clustered and labeled with the corresponding videos and books. Near an MC Eschel print, the stationary bike has athletic trophies stationed near it, along with workout tapes and sports magazines and signed baseballs. A spinning metal fan refracting light blows up at a ceiling fan. The ceiling fan spins slowly above the wheels of the bike that refract light from the metal fan. George passes by the still running shower on his way to the kitchen. At the kitchen entrance Sanchez rolls out a smoking cup of coffee for George. George takes the coffee cup and carries it outside through the kitchen door. On the back patio George smokes a bit and slugs down his coffee in small shots. He bobs his head to the beat of his own secret sang. George's house phone rings through the big open house. He ignores it, taking another drag off his cigarette. Now his cell phone rings, a distant chiming. He throws his cigarette down and runs into the house to find it. Then he remembers he's left the cell phone outside, but he returns too late. He sets the cell phone on the patio staircase, fidgeting with it. Finally George steps into the hot shower and sighs too late. He takes his soaked wristwatch off and sets it near his glasses on the steamy toilet seat. We hear the soap drop. George slips and falls inside the shower. God damn it, he mutters. The CD player starts skipping. The vacuum cleaner sucks up the area rug outside the bathroom door. George turns off the hot water. He peeks out of the shower for a dry towel but there are none. There are only a couple of washcloths and a roll of toilet paper. He glances at the hair dryer but decides to dry himself with the washcloths and toilet paper instead. He's miserable. He's pitiful. He's better than you or me. He's our George. So what else is new? After drying himself off George sits on the can. Now there's no toilet paper, either. He starts up the shower again. Meanwhile, the Mexican cleaning crew is taking their lunch break in the kitchen. Mary carries a pile of dirty clothes out back. The digital microwave clock reads, 2 p.m. George turns on a light switch in the living room but the bulb is burnt out. He keeps on, not noticing. He opens all the sun blinds throughout the whole living area and lets the white sunlight burst in. Still wearing his old white motel bathrobe. He searches for clean clothes in his closet in the laundry room, but they are all being washed. In exasperation George tries on a few old shirts and pants from his younger days, but they are all too small. He decides to wear them anyway. Now that he's finally showered and dressed, George starts looking for something slightly interesting to do. Hell, anything to do. He starts rearranging the things in his messed up bedroom. He walks out back still wearing his two small clothes. He removes an outfit from the laundry basket, shirt, sweatpants, socks, and shoes. They are all very colorful and bright. Too colorful and bright, he thinks, and too clean, too. He slaps on a funky blue hat with his wild, colorful, basket-wrinkled outfit. To make himself even sexier, George sprays aerosol deodorant all over his already clothed body. He brushes his yellowish, coffee and cigarette-stained teeth. He reads the bathroom mirror, which is a handmade label that reads, Just trust Emmy would you trust this man to sell your used car he thinks, or to sell your used life? Staring himself in the eyes, he shudders, not me, he thinks. He shaves, first with an electric, then with a straight-edged razor, without shaving lotion, although ten different brands have lotion squatting on his vanity counter. He cleans a different pair of bifocal, wire-rimmed glasses and heads back to the living room that is still bright with daylight. The Mexican housekeeping crew is finally cleaning and organizing the mess. In the spirit of hospitality George joins them. He starts switching the pictures on the wall, rearranging the furniture, putting a few minutes time into shuffling and restacking his scattered notes and half-finished drawings. He arranges the books in a different order. 
shoulder, he contemplates a crack in a glass picture frame on his wall, the room was fine the way it was, he thinks, now I'll just trip over everything at night when I sleepwalk. Finally, George leaves the rest of the living room remodeling to the Mexican cleaning crew, the hell with it, he thinks, let them deal with it, that's what we pay them for, isn't it to clean up after us, George checks inside the fridge looking for something to eat, he sniffs the milk and tries to make himself drink it, but he can't gag it down, finally he decides that it's sour and he pours it down the drain, there's nothing much else in there, he thinks, nothing edible, I mean, the freezer is loaded with microwavable TV dinners, George grabs a cup from the dishwasher and fills it from the empty sink, he drinks it and washes the cup by hand, and then puts it back into the dishwasher, George puts some with his frozen pancakes in the microwave, he sets the timer for 2 minutes and pushes the start button, the microwave spits and hums ominously, while waiting for his whizzes pancakes to explode, George fantasizes washing and scrubbing in slow motion an entirely overfilled sink of dishes, pots, and glasses, it's a soothing, romantic wish fulfillment fantasy, of course it's nothing I'd ever act on, he thinks, it's just a fantasy, when the time is down to 2 seconds, George presses the cancel stop button twice for no apparent reason, it's not like he's in a rush, is it, don't answer that, he thinks, George and Vivian have an enormous 3 story McMansion in the sprawling suburbs of Los Angeles, they are having the McMansion remodeled this year, turning it into their American Dream A model home. In the background, the home restoration is in progress. Sharp staccato hammering, shrill high-pitched drilling, and raspy soaring noises echo throughout the house. Although it's already afternoon, George is in the kitchen performing his morning rituals. We still can't make out his face to see which George this might be. She really wasn't into me then. George muses. He's mulling over his past his love life with Vivian. I knew I wasn't good enough for her. I only wanted to better myself so I could have her. But that was a long time ago. Things are different now time has passed and now I've changed. George scarfs down a handful of breakfast cereal. I really couldn't go on that way. He mumbles through what I've softened cereal. I couldn't live knowing everything about my life at any given moment. Knowing that I loved a woman who couldn't really love me, I'd be living a lie. And I just couldn't live with myself as a lie or with Vivian, either. George looks out the big picture window across the vast acres of well-manicured shrubbery and well-groomed suburban lawns. There's a swimming pool, a tennis court, and a series of lawn chairs beneath white sun umbrellas in his front yard. As George continues to muse, a half-dozen fluorescent green tennis balls shoot out of a serving machine. They bubble and roll aimlessly on the green pavement, beneath the white umbrellas, Vivian in white tennis dress and Marco, a secret lover, the Mexican lawn boy, are oblivious, I think I'm a love addict, George whispers to himself, he twists the blinds shut, a strange man peeps through the kitchen window bending the blinds with his fingers, this, too, is a different George, do we know who he is, he's snooping and peeping on his own secret fantasies, he's butting in on his philandering fantasy wife's Vivian, a little mystery and intrigue surrounding the breaking of a marital taboo piques his prurient interests, you know that feeling you get when you hold a girl's hand for the first time George addresses Vivian, although she doesn't know it, well, I don't feel it anymore, not with you, not with anyone, finally George frees the stuck window shade and closes it, the construction workers are hard at work restoring the enormous three-story McMansion where George and Vivian live, the kitchen's a mess, kitchen tiles and plumbing parts scattered everywhere, an old-fashioned refrigerator is being hauled out by two young men in work harnesses, George cuts ahead of them, hurrying from the back of the kitchen to the foyer at the front of the house, a man working on scaffolding over the front door drops his orange hard hat by accident, it barely misses George's head as he drops beneath the ladder, George doesn't notice, he studies himself in the vanity mirror by the front door, he's handsome because he's rich and he's built like a Hollywood idiot, he picks a piece of lint off his collar and runs out hastily grabbing a leather garment back by the door and a set of unmarked keys from the coat rack, he leaves his brown leather briefcase behind at the door but only for a moment, George's hands are full, he wipes his forehead, what am I doing here he wonders, how did I get here? Where am I going now? Who am I? Really? George and Vivian's chauffeur, Charlie, is short on time as he charges toward their elegant BMW coupe, two large suitcases clutched in his fists. The American dream couple are planning their dream vacation. 
Vivian's wearing a white and red summer outfit with a big floppy hat. She swishes across the well-manicured lawn toward the elegant BMW coupe. George longs for me, she whispers to herself. I'm everything for him, but the metallic shine of the brand new German sports coupe somehow dulls George's existence. Impassively he runs his eyes over the vehicle from front to back. Even the white wall tires gleam. The back license plate reads, Weapon. Vivian's not impressed. He's just a little bit pretentious. She confides to Charlie. Charlie pretends not to notice. Reaching inside the coupe, George opens the electric trunk. He drops his garment back inside and manually shuts the trunk with a slam. The trunk jams shut. George grunts and rolls his eyes abruptly the whole scene changes. George and Vivian stand before the decorative bond at their college campus. Uh oh what's this? A young George opens a jewelry box with a huge diamond engagement ring for a young Vivian. He's on his knees making a marriage proposal. Vivian's playing hard to get but George is persuasive or at least he's persistent. This is why you should marry me, he says. He flashes the huge glittering rock before Vivian's cold green eyes. But Vivian's still not impressed. You mean because of the size of that thing she smirks. She takes the ring from him. I'd like to put it on. She pauses. Myself. George is quick with his response. So, he says, is that a yes Vivian brushes him off with a slight languid gesture. Let's just enjoy what we've got together. Right this moment, she smiles at him, her teeth blinding. Like I said to you before, George, it's just so it's just so good. So perfect just the way it is. She pauses again. Please don't spoil it, she pleads, admiring the rock. Finally George gets the trunk closed. He opens the door for Vivian and she slips into the plush back seat. Charlie revs the gas and the elegant BMW sports coupe pulls away, nearly leaving George behind as he hops in the swinging open door. Vivian is whispering to herself. Another weirdo finally caught up with the times, she thinks. He had so much potential. He never really saw things through, though it's so unfortunate for both of us. She remembers their honeymoon, or a perfect white boat on an endless blue ocean. At first it was all so romantic. We went sailing to Catalina Island, we honeymooned in Paris, we went mountain biking in the Mojave, her memory disappears like a glittering soap bubble that pops. She sighs, and then it stopped. She says out loud, from the back seat of the sleek sporty BMW coupe George waves to one of their young, attractive female neighbors who is jogging by in pink puma sweats. Vivian watches with vague disgust. She's not jealous, she's only distantly fascinated and slightly appalled by George's sometimes prurient, noiristic, masochistic interest in other women. Is he mentally stiff she wonders, or am I? He always was a dork, and you know what they say, once a dork, forever a dork. But I married him didn't I? Is this what marriage is really like? Real? Just to see if she can get to him, Vivian pulls up her shirt and flashes her big breasts at George. But George just grins and licks his finger. Vivian shivers and laughs. Of course there were other reasons she reminds herself. He's hung like a bull, but he hardly uses it properly hardly properly. George senses Vivian's disaffection but doesn't let it disturb his self-esteem. As long as the wife's still a little interested, he thinks. That's all that really matters at home right now. This is really what marriage is like. Like they say only mutual self-interest with a hint of disgust and loathing. I don't really believe it, though, as we know, George has many quirks. For example, he sports a nervous facial tick, especially when he's trying to make Vivian exasperated with him as he is as she is. He flaunts his nervous twitches and ticks, she thinks disgustedly. He thinks they add to his character. Affecting nonchalance, George tries to light a cigarillo with flimsy book matches, one by one, but the matchbook runs out before he can get the cigarillo to smoke. He tosses the matches away in obvious frustration. Despite his sophisticated exterior, he's a failure. Sometimes I hate being me, he thinks. Vivian sees through his flimsy facade. He tries to cope with all his problems, sexually, she thinks, but he's so, so insane secure and sensitive like a child, with his pretty little toys. Vivian smiles, remembering the closet in their bedroom filled to the brim with pornography and sex toys. I think he loves me, she thinks. I think I love him. I think I do. I think he thinks I love him. But do I really? George scowls at his shoes. I think she loves me, he thinks. I think I love her. I think she thinks I love her. But do I really? What a work of art. What a piece of work she is. She's as beautiful as she is stupid. I don't know why it's all such a love-hate thing with her. Do I love her, or do I? In George's mind, Vivian prances in slow motion though a mysterious dream landscape composed of all his childish sex fantasies and adolescent wet dreams. She's a ballerina, a diva, but also a whore, a cock queen. She's all woman, he thinks. She's all women. George sighs, 
that might as well be music, he thinks, playing to the beat of her life, and lo, there is music billowing and wafting around her, a medley of top 40 hits from the 1001 Living Dead Strings playing famous romantic vampire teenage love songs you'll always wish you could forget, Georgia's fascinated and amused, uplifted and swept away by Vivian's beauty, she's the portrait of modern woman, he thinks, and the sexiest thing since the Venus de Milo and besides, we've been into S&M, kinky sects, and other voyeuristic tricks ever since college days, she especially likes age regression fantasies, and into spanking and sadism, sometimes, or is it masochism, at George's words, the whole scene changes, in the murky black light depths of this infernal den of sin and iniquity, Vivian's photographic image is blended into George's kinky sex fantasy of her, she's an nasty dominatrix in black latex, alone in an S&M club, wielding the whip over her slavish worshipper, George's sucking on her toes, to her orgasmic pleasure, the fantasy abruptly ends, back at the house, it's a new day post-vacation, George watches as Vivian bounces toward him from the yard, she's prancing like a female unicorn in heat, dancing, like a pole dancer to the beat, she's Vivian, the lascivious redhead with the fiery green eyes, Vivian's smile is pearl white and big toothed, seductive but slightly creepy, she removes her crumpled baseball cap revealing more of her perfect outer beauty, her ponytail slides out from the cap and swings wild and free, the wild streak of platinum highlights in her frizzy red hair reflects the brilliant sunlight over the suburban landscape, George sees the smoldering wildfire in her frizzy hair and wild eyes and becomes inflamed once again with her beauty, she colors her hair as if it's really graying, he thinks, but she'll always be a living colorful beauty to me, George notices a smoldering fire starter in Vivian's hands, his curiosity is piqued, where'd you get that he asks, Marco gave it to me, she confesses, he enflames me as you, George, do not, she lights George's cigarillo with her wildly flaring fire stick, George tries to look sophisticated, air, but starts coughing and hacking spastically, besides, she singed his eyebrows off, Vivian interrupts a carefree game of tennis to intrude on the husband, George thinks, what could she want, is she a housebreaker and a heartbreaker or just another simple country girl gone wild? Between you and me, everyone on our block wants to be like Vivian, George mutters, wild and free, swept up in the living colorful beauty of the moment, but most of them just smoke a lot of pot, surrounded by clouds of gray, it drives me fucking nuts, what do they think they are aborigines, or something George waits a few seconds while the silence and suspense build, finally he deadpans, wake up, people, it's the 21st century George Schaefer and Vivian Babylon's swank suburban McMansion in the new AJP subdivision has become even more bloated and gargantuan with additional posh residential wings, and elaborate landscape gardens sprouting and growing as if magically, organically, from the original three-story house, but inside George and Vivian's luxurious palatial estate, all is not well, in fact, George and Vivian are having their first big spat, their first big tiff, their first big lovers quarrel and the first cracks are appearing in the impregnable edifice of their passionate love affair and romantic dream marriage, that was Ismail on the phone, George casually announces, I've got to leave for Las Vegas sooner than planned, in fact, I have to go right now, flinging herself on a sofa, Vivian whines in a pathetic, sappy way, as if she's crushed by George's offhand announcement, why can't I go with you to Vegas Vivian pleads, you know I've always wanted to go there but you never take me, you never take me anywhere it's obvious that George really doesn't care, while Vivian whines and weeps, he casually wipes a water spot off the well polished chair with his finger, Vivian sees that George is oblivious to her pleas, she becomes abruptly calm, George she says, still George says nothing, he won't even look at her, you see, everyone, Vivian laughs bitterly, George is the strong, silent type, he talks with his hands a lot, when he won't talk with his mouth, he has big hands, Vivian laughs again, somewhat hysterically, like one, like the other, what are you talking about, Vivian George says, sweetheart, how many times do I have to tell you it's a business trip, that's all, it'll be boring, I'll take you with me to Vegas another time, I promise, I'm sorry, babe, but, you know, it's a last minute call, Vivian pouts, but you know, dear, she says, I get so lonely whenever you go out of town, George scoffs, come on, Vivian, he chides, you're a big girl, now, you don't need to pretend that you need me around, 
You've got plenty of toys to play with around the house. I'll only be gone a couple days. You know George is already packed and ready to go. His suitcases have already been stowed in the coupe. So he strides down the front walk toward the car without paying much attention to Vivian, who tails along behind him. As Vivian strides up alongside George, she wraps her slim arms around him and strokes her sleek supple figure seductively against him. She even shows him a slight end of her black g-string panties and lacy push-up bra. Please, baby, take me with you, she whispers. I'll wear that sexy black negligee you bought me, and I'll let you, you know, still, George is all business. Impatient with Vivian's obvious attempts at seduction, he detaches her grip from his arm and briskly checks his Rolex. Come on, come on, Vivian, George clucks pettishly. I've got a flight to catch. I'm already 15 minutes late and you know I really can't miss this flight. George gives Vivian a quick peck on the cheek and strides toward the car. He smiles because even though he knows he's being a cad, he also knows it's perfectly ethical for him to do so. I'll take you up on that negligee offer when I get back. George attempts a sexy grin that just seems creepy. Okay, princess slipping out of Vivian's grasp, George quickly slides into the car. He slams the door shut and backs out of the driveway, leaving Vivian petrified with fear, rejection, and shame. She swings her tennis racket back and forth, chewing her lips. For a couple moments Vivian savors the hatred that boils in her, then she bolts inside a suburban penthouse door dropping her high-strung tennis racket somewhere in her tawdry forgotten past. Sweeping into the bedroom, Vivian slams the door and throws herself on the bed. Her bedroom is pretentious, decorated in prime Beverly Hills-style luxury. Everything is white and red color-coordinated, even the trim on her pillows. She sits on her bed making a phone call. Amanda, it's me, she says. Vivian, Vivian, hi Amanda chirps delightedly. What's up though? Nothing, Vivian dully responds. Georgia just left for a business trip to Las Vegas. I need to get out of this place. There's only silence on Amanda's end but Vivian babbles on. Do you want to go out for dinner? I've been thinking about that new Thai place, corner of sunset and Vivian trails off. A steak knife is carving meat in a plush, contemporary dining room. Amanda is 30-ish with plump but sensible thighs. She's setting out serving dishes and silverware for two on a candlelit table, clenching her portable phone between her neck and shoulder. Oh, Vivian, I'm so sorry, Amanda croons. I just can't. I've got this date planned for tonight. And, well, as a matter of fact a strong man's arms caress Amanda's bare legs. Vivian's slightly desperate. Oh, I see, she says. Well, what about later tonight? She pauses. I really miss you, Amanda. She plunges on a little too eagerly. I really need somebody to talk to. You're my best friend, and I miss you too, princess, Amanda says gently. But I can't play tonight. Amanda pushes the man's hands away from her waist. She feels slightly guilty about giving Vivian the brush off. But what else can she say? I have plans, you know, and stop it, Stevie. Anyway, I think this is going to be an all-nighter. Know what I mean, Vivian Sullen? Silent. Amanda knows she's hurt. Sorry, baby, she apologizes. But I'll call you tomorrow. Okay, Vivian's eyes fall in disappointment. Sure, she says. See you later, babe. She hangs up the phone slowly and starts rubbing her arms with a blank expression on her face. Bitter tears well up in her downcast eyes. What a lucky lady she is. She bites her lip. Damn her, Vivian stares at the elaborately framed, gold-tinged wedding photo on the dresser. George and me, we really were the American dream couple, weren't we she thinks bitterly. Oh yes, we were or I thought we were, anyway. She leans forward and with a single swoop of her arm, knocks the heavy gold frame to the floor. In the St. Mary Magdalene drive through chapel of Our Lady of Immaculate Deception in San Luis Obispo, California, George Schaefer and Vivian Babylon, the American dream couple, exchange their vows. The white-robed transvestite priest is waving some horrible-smelling patchouli incense over them and reciting some new-age horseshit. George is a ghastly, pale-faced corpse and Vivian's vaguely in shock as they gaze at one another, thinking connubial bliss. Finally the wide open eyes meet, the white-lipped mouths say I do, but no words come out. The white-robed priest says, you may kiss the bride. Stevie and Amanda swoon toward each other's lips in Amanda's immaculately set dining room. As she falls toward Stevie, Amanda notices that she didn't quite put the phone on the hook. The dial tone whines, she bends over and hangs up the phone. Stevie reaches for her throat. Amanda giggles with a sexual undertone. She's still under the spell of Stevie's tender caresses. She moans, a swarthy, hairy hand strokes her bare chest, fondling her gold cross necklace. In Vivian's suite, 
the bathwater runs. Vivian lets the bubble bath soap slip through her languid fingers. She drops her sexy red bathrobe with the ruffled sleeves and reveals her black lacy lingerie. She broods sulkily as the soapy water fills up the bathtub, softly stroking her smooth belly. In Amanda's penthouse kitchen, Stevie pops the cork on a bottle of champagne. Cabaret music plays softly on vinyl as white champagne bubbles spurt and gush from the chilled bottle. Amanda laughs. I want to be a bad girl tonight. Do you want to be my bad boy, Stevie ready and willing babe? Stevie smiles, but do you think you're really ready for me? Are you ready for your all-nighter? Amanda feigns shyness, still playing coy. Maybe, she says. What are you going to do for me? Stevie doesn't answer, at least not in words. But he moans, ever so softly against her, pushing back against the stove. Amanda whispers, yes yes. Oh, baby, her slender hands are locked into silver handcuffs behind her back. She turns around towards Stevie and presses her slim body against his, breathing seductively and moaning harder. The shadows cast forbidden movements on the dimly lit ceiling as the orchestra rises to a crescendo. The small bell chimes as a well-dressed couple makes their way through the dusky entrance of some romantic night spot. Vivian seated at a candlelit table, eating dinner alone. A white and black suited waiter approaches her table with a chilled bottle of red wine wrapped in a towel. He speaks to her graciously with a slight French accent. Would Madame wish another glass? Vivian samples the wine. Then she lifts her wine glass, which sparkles with the restaurant's many candles, and smiles at the well-dressed waiter. The smiling waiter fills her wine glass and walks back toward the kitchen. A handsome male twosome is escorted to the window booth opposite Vivian. One of them is darkly tanned, rather tall, and prematurely bald, but still handsome. He wears a flashy suit and brightly colored tie and speaks with a thick New York accent. The tall man takes a seat with his male escort. The escort is blonde and a business assistant type. He's also a sharp dresser, but his sleeves are rolled up like he's ready for business. He takes the seat opposite the tall dark man. The two dump stacks of office paper on the table and immediately start talking serious business. Still, the blonde has a slight air of passion in his voice when he converses with his dashing accomplice. So I start tripping on this whole thing, he says, about having all this potential, the best education, enough money to live comfortably, and then having little or no drive. It's like I'm waiting for an opportunity that might never come you know, like I'll end up never living up to my full potential, or something. It's like a generation next thing. Right during their intense conversation the very tall man uses a lot of flamboyant hand gestures when he talks. He has become a little like George. Well, our parents, you know the dark man butts in taking off on a digression. All the baby boomers, they are all about to retire. You don't think they are scared shitless to hand down their companies to us? And they should be if you ask me. We live in this cult of luxury even if we don't have any money or any success. We spend money but we don't want to have to work for it. For us the focus is the luxury, not the work. Other people like our yuppie parents for example, settle for the middle ground more easily. But you know, it's the risk takers, the big risk takers, who get successful, who live up to their potential. People like you and me, John, the waitress, a flashy brunette named Shannon, dances over to the booth. She's bubbly and animated, but she's wearing a fake smile. Standing hip shot in front of them she momentarily blocks Vivian's view of the two men. The two men don't even notice Vivian. Hi, how are you this evening the flashily dressed waitress asks. My name's Shannon, I'll be serving you tonight. The tall, dark man lifts an eyebrow and checks her out. Shannon here asks, or Shauna Shannon, Shannon repeats, Shannon, the man says suavely like you'll remember, yeah, you got it, she smiles, say, can I interest you gentlemen in a cold beer, iced tea, two for one margaritas for some reason, Shannon's ingratiating man really sets John off, a beer, two for one margaritas he snorts, what is this, a nuclear bomb, you don't want to have to call the cops on me now, do you unfazed by John's outburst, Shannon keeps smiling brightly, she looks sideways at the dark man who tries to cover for John's irrelevant tangent, you've got to understand, he explains, John here is an alcoholic, He's recently divorced. And besides, he's single. 2. John breaks into a smile. 
guilty on all counts, he says, I am, I admit it, Shannon smiles suggestively, so am I, she says, I'm okay, the dark man concludes, how's about a dry martini oh, right Shannon blurts, what about you, John a slightly more relaxed John looks up at his waitress, I'll take a coke, he says, the tall man looks amusedly at John, we don't have coke, sir, Shannon starts to reply, but his John interrupts her with a wave, it really doesn't matter, he says, just bring me a glass of water, Shannon smiles again, eager to please, still a good choice she smirks, still, John's unresponsive, uh-huh, he says, Shannon bends over and whispers breathily into John's ear, tone it down some, okay she pleads, I liked you all right until you started talking, she smiles again, I'm willing to give you a second chance though, Shannon walks away, she smiles at Vivian and then checks on the next table in her section, the two men pretend to continue their slightly off the wall conversation, but the tall dark man is ticked off, what the fuck he says, what was that all about his hands begin to fly and ounce, at the next table, Vivian's amused, she sips her wine as she watches him, that did not just happen, you're ridiculous Gianni boy, you'd better shut up while you're ahead, you get me a busy bus boy brings sweaty glasses of chill ice water for the two men, the schmoozing twosome continues to converse and harangue each other excitedly, meanwhile, a temporary waitress who's feeling in for Shannon follows up with the twosome's real drinks, Shannon likes you, the temp says to John, she's a little bit embarrassed by your friend, but she likes you, Shannon's an awesome chick, don't mess it up Chuck, after dropping off their drinks, the temporary waitress scurries out of sight, a few minutes later, the dark man's flamboyant and hand gestures knock his ice-cold drink onto Vivian's lovely legs. The firmer fungins splash over her perfect pedicure. Vivian's skirt's so short that she freezes up. She catches her breath. Oh she gasps. The man jumps up immediately. Oh jeez, I'm sorry, miss, he says. I just I just knew this was going to happen. Vivian snaps. The way you kept flailing your hands around like that. Vivian mimics the man, flapping her arms and waving her hands exaggeratedly. He rushes over to Vivian with his dinner napkin. He bends down to wipe the spilled gin and vermouth off her feet. But before he applies the napkin Vivian stands up in righteous agitation. Don't you dare she spits. Don't you dare touch my the man suddenly notices that this chick sounds strangely familiar. What he says, dazed, who the man looks more closely at Vivian's frizzy red hair, her heart-shaped face, her green eyes somehow, he seems to recognize her, I'm sorry, he repeats, excuse me, miss, but I Vivian cuts him off again, she's a little weirded out, too, excuse me, sir, but if my feet are bothering you as the dark-haired man and Vivian stand staring at each other, their eyes lock in a self-hypnotic trance, excuse me again, miss, the man breaks the cell, but is your name Vivian, by any chance Vivian nods, speechless, the man points to himself, remember me he asks, I'm Sir Tony, Sir Tony Haldale, Finally, Vivian snaps out of it. Sir Tony she gasps. Sir Tony Haldale at your service, miss. Sir Tony jumps to his feet and grabs Vivian's table with his big red hands. Vivian's green eyes widen. Hey wow, Vivian, it really is you, isn't it Sir Tony Beams? After all these years it's really great to see you. Shit, you look fantastic. A little grape juice here and there may be, eh? But still Vivian laughs. Thanks, Tony, and so do you. Look fantastic, I mean, Vivian quips. The, uh, sideburns weren't your strongest feature, sidestepping Vivian's jabes, Sir Tony makes an obscure private joke, and so, the peach was peeled and here we are, of course, Vivian doesn't get it, what, the peach Sir Tony grasps Vivian's warm hands in a cool handshake and then realizes how impersonal the gesture seems, he moves closer, well, 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 remember, Vivian the crazy again, the private joke's lost on Vivian, but she's desperate enough to play along and she laughs, a handshake instead of a kiss Sir Tony advance, here, let me give you a hug Vivian sways towards Sir Tony's embrace, his all-encompassing hands, Tony, she says, it's really good to feel you, Vivian knows she's a little too melodramatic, almost maudlin, almost mawkish, and besides, she's got a bad case of the giggles, as Sir Tony clasps her shapely figure to him she starts to crack up, but Sir Tony only sees Vivian's beautiful smile, 
The warm hands caress one another Sir Tony's swarthy, hirsute, dark, Vivian slim, small, and white in his big palm. I don't mean to butt in, but, Sir Tony hems and haws. Do you mind if I join you? Vivian casts a sympathetic look at John, who's shifting uncomfortably in his seat. But, Tony, she says, what about your friend who, him, forget about him, Sir Tony blurts out. Johnny and me were just talking business, but we're done talking business. In fact, John was just about to leave, weren't you? John, he's got, like, a very important date, right? John John smiles slightly sheepishly and pushes back his chair. Yeah, sure thing, Tony, he says, I'll catch you tomorrow, right oh, John boy, Sir Tony bluffs, and, hey let me know how your date works out John hurriedly puts all the official papers back in his briefcase and gestures at the passing waiter, oh, waiter John calls, check, please, the waitress, Shannon, comes swishing past, writing her phone number on a napkin, she presses the napkin into John's hand as he slips with a tip, I get off in ten minutes, she whispers, John winks at Sir Tony and walks briskly away, Sir Tony takes the seat closest to Vivian, he's already forgotten John, so, he smirks, alone at last, he pulls his chair closer to Vivian's, I forgot to ask you, are you expecting anyone with a flippant gesture, Vivian waves off the question, just my husband, she says, then she rushes on, you know, Tony, you never used to ask to cut him back when we were in school, you just plopped down right beside me, Sir Tony is only slightly abashed, back then, I was stupid, immature, impulsive, and horny, Vivian smiles at his sophomoric humor, it reminds her of the good old days, before George and her, she laughs, I'm just kidding, Tony, she says, my husband isn't coming, Sir Tony cracks a big smile, well, well, that's even better, for you and me, anyway he pauses, after all, you know what they say, two's company, Vivian smirks, Tony, she says, you really haven't changed, have you, you're still the same old Tony, well, I mean, Sir Tony blusters, you could be expecting your boyfriend, or something, and again, Vivian cuts him off, relax, Tony, she says, I'm not expecting anybody, but is anybody expecting you Tony wisecracks, I mean, like, do you have to be home by midnight, or you to turn into a pumpkin or something, geez, Tony relax, you're still a cautious one, I see, cautious, but still alive, after all these wives, this time, the tactlessness of Sir Tony's joke surprises even himself, wow, babe, he apologizes, that really was lame, my apologies, you don't have to apologize, Tony, Vivian smiling, supportive, that really was funny, you're a funny guy, Tony, they stare at each other silently for several awkward moments, their faces slightly tense, their hands shy, nervous, their eager eyes, finally, Sir Tony breaks the rapt silence, you know, he says, it's been a long time, Vivian, yeah, I know, Tony, Vivian pauses, you left for New York that summer, yeah, well, Sir Tony shoots back, my dad died, you know, you hated your dad, yeah, I did, he admits, but after he was gone, you know all the memories and, well, anyway, I decided I liked everything about him, it was all part of the nostalgia, but you left me, Tony, yeah, well Sir Tony trails off, mm, Vivian muses, and then what you may not remember, but, Sir Tony flashes back to his early college years as a J school nerd, I went up to Ithaca, I majored in journalism, Vivian, remembering, starts to feel strong again, you know, Tony, you really make yourself sound like a creep, she takes a sip of wine, keeping her eyes on Sir Tony, you've got to say it like you believe it, you've got to say it like you were proud, it's got to feel good to say it, like that, I went to Ithaca and majored in journalism, Sir Tony laughs, he's slipping into his TV anchorman persona, it really does sound a little pompous, doesn't it he confesses, but, okay, ready, are we on the air, here goes, and so, after Vivian chilled to me, I went up to Ithaca and majored in journalism, Vivian surprised to feel the change in herself and Sir Tony, yes, yes she cries, she's so excited that she claps her hands together, Sir Tony is now transformed into a full-fledged TV personality, I was the big man on campus in my J school class, and I'll tell you, 
Folks, there's nothing like being a legacy at Ithaca. Vivian pretends she's impressed. Now, Ithaca, Sir Tony nods. Anyway, Vivian's mood shifts again. All my friends left town that summer, everyone left except me. I remember, Sir Tony sympathizes. And then, right after school ended, your twin brother was in that bike accident, Jimmy. Yeah, now Vivian gets serious. I stayed with him in the hospital night and day for two weeks. Then I spent another six weeks with him, in bed at home. Sir Tony pulls his chair closer. You two were really close, he says. How's he doing these days? He made a miraculous recovery. Vivian smiles. He's fine now, he's married. He has three children and a great job. He's really but Vivian breaks off, catching herself in mid-sentence. Well, she says, then again, I think maybe now he's doing volunteer work. Helping the homeless or something. What do you mean Sir Tony slips back into his accent? Why, that's great news. Really great slightly flustered. Vivian changes the subject. Speaking of great news, she says, I see you've done pretty well for yourself. I hadn't seen you in, oh, decades. And then, one day, I'm watching the 5 o'clock TV news, and suddenly, bang, there you are. Big as life. Vivian picks up a teaspoon and holds it in front of her mouth like a microphone. Good evening, Vivian says, in character. She's doing a pitch-perfect Sir Tony Haldale impersonation. This is Sir Tony Haldale for the national news tonight. Sir Tony and Vivian laugh together. You know, Vivian, it's just the breaks. Sir Tony says, I got a lucky break, is all. The old anchor called in sick and they needed somebody right away. So they looked at me and said, let's give this bum a break. Vivian briefly touches Sir Tony's hand. So were you just lucky, sure? Sir Tony strokes her hand. They grabbed me, put a mic in my hand, a camera in my face, and said, talk. So I just started talking, and like they say, the rest is history. Sir Tony and Vivian smile and gaze into each other's eyes. So, enough about me. Sir Tony changes the conversation as a five-piece jazz band begins its evening set. What have you been up to, he asks. Vivian pauses for several seconds before answering. Well, I'm married, she says. Yes, married. To this wonderful guy, George Schaefer, Vivian feels a slight twinge of guilt at bearing her marriage to Sir Tony, but she plunges on. We've been married for ten years. We have a wonderful mansion and the biggest estate out in the suburbs. George is a self-made financial manager for his own company George Schaefer Enterprises. Now Sir Tony shifts uncomfortably in his seat. She sounds pretentious, he thinks, but he doesn't say anything out loud. Instead he says, he must be a really rich guy then, huh Vivian yeah, I guess so, Tony, then Vivian lies and a great husband, too, I'm terrible with commitment, Sir Tony confesses, you have any kids abruptly, Vivian turns serious, no, she says, I can't have any, we've tried everything I don't mean to pry, but, Sir Tony says, is it really you, Vivian, or Sir Tony and Vivian's eyes lock, she seems distracted, distraught, oh my god Vivian suddenly blurts, now, for a second there, I just heard this really strange deja vu, but I didn't know who the third person was, Vivian trails off, Sir Tony is a little confused, but also amused, third person he says, yeah, George Vivian gushes, it's weird, the deja vu gets so intense it's like I have to share, I have to admit I'm having it, or it's really like overkill, finally, Vivian realizes that Sir Tony is not sharing her excitement and calms down, it's really overwhelming, though, she says, you know, Tony yeah, yeah, but relax, Sir Tony strokes Vivian's arm, don't blow the whole thing by talking about it, just try to keep it going and keep it between us just between you and me, don't blow it by telling it to everybody in the joint, don't get too excited, and if it works out, on impulse, Vivian reaches over and taps Sir Tony on his nose, we're exploring other avenues now, maybe adoption. Vivian smiles into Tony's eyes. What about you she asks? Are you married several glasses of wine later? Sir Tony Haldale and Vivian Babylon are still wrapped in an intimate tete a cute tete. Sir Tony is still carrying on his half-hearted seduction of Vivian. I thought you knew, Vivian. Sir Tony feigns embarrassment. My third wife left me a month ago. Oh, I'm so sorry. Vivian feigns sympathy. Do you mind if I ask what happened? Absolutely I thought you'd never ask. Sir Tony plays the wounded innocent. She and some guy got together and together and, well, you know the rest. Although Vivian's secretly pleased, she pretends sympathy. Oh, I'm sorry. She says, really, Tony, you are? You really are? Why should you be Sir Tony seems slightly too eager for sympathy, but maybe it's just the wine. It's okay, really, it doesn't hurt so much. Now, I guess I shouldn't have taken so many trips out of town, but, then again, it sure as fuck was worth it. Sir Tony and Vivian abruptly realize it's getting late. Sir Tony looks around for a waitress, 
but the place is empty. Where's the damn waitress? Sir Tony curses. Damn waitresses are never there when you need them. Sir Tony checks the dining floor again, but there's no waitress in sight. I could sure use a good stiff drink. Right about now, he mumbles, guessing it must be last call. Sir Tony changes the subject. So Vivian, tell me, why are you here alone? Sir Tony is probing for her weaknesses. Where's George, your husband? It's George. Right, my husband's out of town on business. Vivian keeps up the facade. He went to the trade show in Las Vegas. He'll be back in a couple of days. She touches Sir Tony's nose again and smiles. But Sir Tony is still suspicious. Are you sure? Vivian, he says. You wouldn't bullshit me, would you finally? The waiter, who might be George's secret body double, approaches their table. When the waiter talks, his voice echoes through the restaurant as if it was a hollow shell. But still, George's voice doesn't ring any bells for Vivian. All through with your plate, madam the waiter asks. Vivian's plate is wiped clean. For some reason, she has a big appetite tonight. What do you think Vivian says, trying to act superior? Does it look like it? George picks up her plate, and then Sir Tony's. Oh, and, waiter, Sir Tony says, would you bring me a dry martini? Ah, and make it very dry? Okay, without waiting, Vivian butts in. I'll have the same, she says. Two dry martinis, very dry, the waiter disguised as George. Or is it George disguised as a waiter, repeats, coming right up. I'll bring them right away. George the waiter walks away. So, Vivian leans closer. What brings you here to LA Sir Tony shrugs? Oh, it's no big deal, Vivian, he says. They are giving me the key to the city. You know, hometown boy makes good the same old story. At least in this case, Vivian smirks. The story has a good mail let Sir Tony smiles. It makes good copy. Anyway, the band strikes up another old standard. Sir Tony perks up. Listen, Vivian, he says, you hear that but Vivian doesn't pick up her cue, what she says, is it that song, Sir Tony winks, don't you remember Vivian breaks up her ears and smiles, slowly, she starts to sway to the beat, the old sentimental song brightens Vivian's green eyes, Sir Tony notices her big teary eyes and smiles, suavely, he reaches for Vivian's hand, it's already in his lap. Do you want to dance? What Vivian pulls away. Beer? Number sure. Why not Sir Tony coaxes? Come on, Vivian, let's dance. But Vivian still hangs back. After all, Sir Tony continues, we haven't seen each other for a long time. And, besides, I'll be leaving tomorrow. Come on, Vivian for old time's sake. Finally, Vivian gives in. Oh, all right, she sighs. Sir Tony pulls back her chair and helps Vivian up from her seat. He's being chivalrous, and Vivian likes being wooed. The second American dream couple dance in the aisle. The off-duty waiters, waitresses, and kitchen staff crowd the doorways, watching and smiling. As she swoons into Sir Tony's arms, Vivian's bright green eyes close. She remembers the last time, in 1988. The old sweet song continues. The Wakefield High School gymnasium is glittering and glowing on senior prom night. Sir Tony and Vivian are the prom king and prom queen, dancing to the same sweet old sang. The brightly colored banner reads, Wakefield Senior Prom, 1988, living the dream. The basketball court is filled with wholesome, well-groomed teens dancing to a five-piece lounge band. Live, a well-dressed, pretty Wakefield co-ed is crooning. A dateless George sits behind the limelight, watching. The old sweet song ends. Sir Tony and Vivian keep on dancing. Sir Tony kisses Vivian's cheek. She smiles dreamily. Sir Tony escorts Vivian back to her seat and sits down beside her. He lifts his martini glass for a toast. Here's to, ha, ah, he pauses, what'll we say? Renewed acquaintances Vivian smiles, lifts her wine glass and raises it to his. Sure, Tony, whatever you say, she clinks her wine glass with his. To renewed acquaintances, they both take deep drafts of their cocktails. Last call the bartender hollers. After closing time, Vivian and Sir Tony stand outside the restaurant. Sir Tony offers Vivian a handful of peppermints. Vivian pops a few into her mouth. It starts to rain lightly. Oh, darn Vivian says, I didn't know it was raining. Well, it wasn't raining inside, Sir Tony says discreetly. Where are you parked? Vivian point stored a big black BMW coupe. Over there, she says, on the other side of that BMW. Wait here a minute, Sir Tony says, don't go anywhere. Sir Tony dashes back into the restaurant and then returns with a big plastic covered menu. He covers both of their heads with the menu. Come on, babe, let's go, he says. We can dodge the raindrops. As they briskly walk across the parking lot, Vivian clings to Sir Tony's arm. That was awfully resourceful of you, she says, opening my umbrella. I mean, Sir Tony puts his arm around Vivian. Come on, he says. You don't want to get wet. 
Deusa Tony walks Vivian to her car, it is a brand new white Volvo, as they come closer, they see that one of her tires is flat as a rail, ah, god Vivian blurts out, I don't believe this, these are brand new tires once again, Sir Tony becomes her knight in shining armor, don't worry, Vivian, he says, I'll change it for you, that's sweet of you, Vivian whispers, but it's raining, Sir Tony, you'll be soaked, Sir Tony brushes off Vivian's reservations, I don't mind, Vivian, I'm already wet, see he shows her his damp pant legs and shirt sleeves, I'm wet already, Sir Tony repeats, that's what she said, see Sir Tony winks at Vivian with a childish smirk, she shakes her head and smiles, you haven't changed much since junior high school, she says, you know, I'll just call Dribbly, somebody will come out, they out of it fixed in no time, she pulls her cell phone out of her purse and begins to dial, Sir Tony quickly snatches the cell phone out of her hand, Vivian, listen to me, it's the weekend, it's raining, and it could take hours for a truck to get here, Sir Tony locks a gaze with his, why don't I just give you a ride home, you can have the flat fixed in the morning, Sir Tony gently takes the cell phone away from Vivian, Vivian's eyes are glazed, her speech slurred, she's having trouble walking, yeah, I guess you're right, Tony, she says, and, besides, I'm beginning to feel those martinis I probably shouldn't drive, I usually only drink wine, you know, as they begin to walk to Sir Tony's car, Vivian stumbles, Sir Tony catches her, picks her up, and carries her in his arms, you're right, Vivian, he says, maybe you did have one too many as they walk, Vivian looks at him with a suggestive gleam in her eyes, she nestles her head against his chest, Sir Tony leans over and kisses Vivian on the mouth, she returns his kiss, embracing his neck, that old sweet song just goes on and on, Sir Tony slides in behind the wheel and switches the windshield wipers on high, the slight rain spatters on the windshield and puddles the black rain slick streets, as Sir Tony and Vivian approach George and Vivian's swanky, three-story McMansion, Vivian leans over to give directions, it's the third house on the right, she says, the one that's all lit up, like Sir Tony puts in, like Vivian Babylon he smirks, yeah, Vivian giggles, I guess so, in the pitched blackness of 3.10am, George and Vivian's American dream home shudders and huddles beneath the rain, the spotlights make ghostly shadows in the fog, somewhere, George Schaefer is boarding an airplane in the same persistent rain, whereupon some inscrutable signal from Vivian's fingertips, the white garage door of the three-car garage opens, a shining new black Cadillac pulls into the driveway and parks in the garage, still dripping from the black night rain, Sir Tony parks the big black Cadillac in George's parking spot and turns off the ignition, smiling, he turns to Vivian, but Vivian has her head down, Vivian, Sir Tony says, a little too brashly, I just want to say thanks for a wonderful, wonderful class reunion, but Vivian keeps her frizzy red head down and her green eyes turned away, yet, I, Vivian's voice trails off, thank you for the ride home, finally, she looks up, Sir Tony puts his arm over the seat and leans in for a kiss, impulsively, Vivian puts both arms around him, she pulls him closer, they rub noses, she smiles, Sir Tony's bright black eyes hypnotize her with a serpent's longing, it's so late Vivian gushes, I know you have somewhere you have to be, don't you, Tony I've got nowhere to go, except Sir Tony blushes, here, with you, oh, Tony, you're so sweet, Vivian presses his hand, do you want to come inside I'd love to, Sir Tony says, on invisible signals, the white garage door slowly closes behind them, outside, the black night rain keeps falling, white sunlight bursts in the plush, well-upholstered bedroom of Vivian Schaefer, from the bedside table, Vivian speed dials someone on the push button telephone, while waiting for a response, she paces the floor, obviously distraught, flustered and slightly unnerved, almost hysterical, Vivian's beautiful face floods with tears, her black mascara running down in streaks, she's barefoot in a white terracotta robe, on the other line, somebody sleepily picks up the phone, hello Amanda yawns, still half asleep, who is it Amanda Vivian blurts out, it's me, Vivian slightly hungover, Amanda mutters under her breath, shit, thank god you're home Vivian frantically hisses, you've got to come over right away, please Amanda can tell from Vivian's voice that something's seriously wrong, Vivian, what's going on she asks, she's fully awake now, listen, Amanda Vivian whispers, I can't explain right now, just believe me you've got to come over, right now, please, and hurry okay, okay, Amanda sighs, I'll be right there, abruptly, Vivian hangs up, 
Still flustered, she rubs her slim arms nervously as she paces the deeply carpeted floor. Oh, I, God, she says, I can't believe this is happening to me. Finally, she stops and stares out the bedroom window. White sunlight breaks across the unkempt lawn, which is still wet from the black night rain. What am I going to do now? She whispers to nobody in particular. And, of course, nobody answers. Distraught and shell-shocked, Vivian starts to sob. Black tears roll down her ravaged face. Black rain out of a clear blue sky. Amanda is still in bed with her bow. He's sprawled, face down, his face flat against the pillow. A few raindrops still fall outside the bedroom window. Who is that? Honey, a sleepy male voice asks. Somebody I know it's Vivian. Amanda answers. She sounds really upset, like something's seriously wrong. Well, the male voice asks without getting up. Did she say what it was? Number, she didn't say. Amanda sits up in bed. She just said she needed me right away. She pauses. She was crying. Amanda says, oh, okay. The male voice mumbles. Why don't you go check it out yet? Okay. Amanda says, I guess I have to. Amanda puts her feet on the floor and stands up unsteadily. She heads for the cluttered closet and tries to find something decent to wear. The male voice mumbles something into the pillow, still not getting up. While you're in there, he says, get my overnight bag out. Will you? Amanda takes out her black garment bag and lays it on the bed. Finally, Stevie sits up in bed and turns his head. Surprisingly, he looks remarkably like Sir Tony Haldale, but 20 years younger and not prematurely bald. Thanks, he says. Amando, how sweet she exclaims. You remember she crawls onto the bed and snuggles up on his back and neck. He grunts. I really don't want you to leave. Amanda sighs. Can't you stay just a few more hours? The swarthy, black-haired man shakes his handsome head. Sorry, babe. He says, you know I can't. If my wife ever found out about you and me, she'd Stevie leaves the sentence dangling. But Stevie, you know it's my birthday. Amanda tries not to whine. You can't leave. Don't leave me alone on my birthday. Oh, shit. Stevie groans. I'll do whatever you want me to do. It's exactly the kind of offer that gets Amanda in trouble. Fortunately, Stevie is too polite to take up on it. Isn't he? It's your birthday. He says, it really should be the other way around. Amanda's grateful for his consideration, but still desperate to keep him with her. It doesn't matter. She says, I need you. Stevie pauses. You'll do anything he asks, laughingly. Yes, Amanda says, anything. Stevie sits up in bed. You know what I've been asking for. Stevie smirks. Are you willing? Amanda briefly ponders his proposal. Okay, she says, I'll do it. Just don't leave me. Stevie laughs mischievously. It's a deal, he says, squirming back into bed. Amanda starts passionately kissing him. Playfully, he spanks her ass. Now, go see what's bugging Vivian, he says. Amanda salutes him. Aye, aye. So she slips on a terracloth bathrobe and slippers on her way out of the room. Stevie laughs to see her stumbling out the door, half-dressed and half-cocked, and hurried back he calls. Outside, black thunderclouds and wind rain have closed in again. At George and Vivian's American Dream home, Vivian, looking into the small vanity mirror on her dresser, wipes away her black tears and tries to repair her ravaged face. Then she opens a drawer, rifles through a few pieces of stray lingerie, and finds a .38 caliber handgun. Gingerly, she picks it up. She wipes her mouth pushes back her hair, and raises the weapon slowly to her face. She looks directly into the barrel curling her finger around the trigger. Outside black thunder crashes, white lightning flashes. Inside, the bedroom lights flicker on and off. The gun drops from a startled Vivian's grip. She peeks out at the crashing rain showers and heaves a deep sigh of relief. She picks the gun up carefully and puts it back into the dresser drawer. Vivian rummages through seductive clothing and finds an unopened pack of ultra-long cigarettes and a lighter. Taking the old, stale cigarettes out of the still-wrapped case, she leaves the drawer open. Vivian holds the unopened cigarette pack in her shivering hands. She takes a deep breath and opens the package. She takes out a cigarette and with her shaking hands places it between her lips. She flicks the lighter but it only makes a small shower of sparks. Frustrated, she throws the lighter on the floor. Vivian leaves the room with the old, stale cigarette still dangling from her lips. She stalks into the kitchen and frantically searches through the clutter in the cabinets, drawers, and counters. At the gas range, she turns one of the burners on high. She pulls back her hair, leans in, and lights her loaded cigarette with the gaslight flame. She turns off the burner, steps back, 
and takes a deep, long drag. Her eyes roll up into her forehead as she inhales, she feels a relaxing, smoke-filled release. After taking a few more drags on the cigarette, Vivian sits on the kitchen counter and opens the drawer beneath her, she pulls out a small porcelain saucer, Vivian flicks cigarette ash into the delicate piece. Immediately, there's a sharp knock at the door, a man that Vivian whispers to herself. She darts out of the kitchen in haste, in the white, high-ceilinged foyer, Vivian unlocks the front door, without waiting, she swings the big, white door open, Amanda Vivian says, I'm so glad you could come outside, it's still raining, grey sheets of rain obscure the street, making it difficult for Vivian to see exactly what's on her stoop, before her is a chubby little red-headed, freckle-faced boy that holds an umbrella over his head with one hand and a box of chocolates in the other, hi, I'm Banana, he says, as long pause as Vivian tries to understand the strange apparition that's appeared on her doorstep, but Banana keeps talking, oblivious to stormy thunder showers and black rainfall, I'm selling Boy Scout candy to help support my 6th grade class field trip to Disney World. We've been saving box tops and coupons all year to help pay for the trip. Vivian is still in shock. She really doesn't know what to say. Would you like to buy some candy? Banana asks. They are only a dollar each. Faced with Banana's cheerful cherubi demeanor, Vivian just stands numb, dumbfounded. She has no response. Instead of smiling, she turns deathly pale. Her black tears fall with the sputtering raindrops. Finally, Banana tries another tack. You've been crying, he asks. What happened? But there's still no response from Vivian. Shivering, she only shakes her head and moans. Oh, Banana, although he doesn't know what's happening, Banana takes the hint. Maybe I should come back some other time, he says. Vivian, still shivering. Ring, nods and closes the door, with the heavy wooden door closed behind her, Vivian leans against the door jamb and lets the shivering contortions play over her face, suddenly she comes unwound with an awful, wretched scream, while Vivian's still silently screaming, the doorbell rings again, Vivian perks up, turns around, and opens the door, this time, it's Amanda, she looks messy, like she just got out of bed, and is completely soaked with rain, she's more than a little pissed off, Vivian, what the hell's happened to you she blurts out, Vivian starts to sob, Amanda slips inside and shuts the door behind her, she soothes the troubled Vivian by patting her back and stroking her hair, after being upset, Amanda turns apologetic I'm sorry, Vivian, she says, I didn't mean to be a bitch whatever it is, I'm sorry, but Vivian only cries harder, oh, Amanda, I'm finished, I'm through she says, I fucked up, I mean I really fucked up, this time, it's okay, honey, Amanda says, come on, now, you can tell me, what is it, what's happening Vivian's crying fit finally runs out of steam, she slowly lowers herself onto the floor, in her exhausted condition, she stares at the wedding pictures of the American dream couple on the wall until everything finally blurs and fades out, then she heaves another big sigh and stands up, pulling herself together, she looks directly into Amanda's eyes, oh, god, Amanda Vivian says, George is going to kill me for what, Vivian Amanda asks, you still haven't told me, in answer, Vivian says, follow me, but Vivian doesn't respond, instead, she hurries up the stairs, she doesn't even look back to see if Amanda's behind her, confused and upset, Amanda follows, Vivian halts at the entrance to her bedroom on the second floor hall, and Amanda runs up behind her, the two stare at the white and red canopy that drapes over Vivian's bed, convulsively, Vivian sobs again, she can't look, there's somebody in the bed, curiously, Amanda walks in to take a closer look, all she can see is an older man's premature balding head peeping out from under the bed covers, Amanda's only a little shocked, so Georgia's lost a little peach fuzz off the old tape, she thinks, what's the big deal, she shrugs her shoulders and spreads her hands, palm up, like she's still a little confused, Vivian, baby, she says, I thought you said George was out of town, Vivian shakes her head, yeah, that's right, Amanda, he's out of town, Amanda's still confused, well, so what she says, who's this, and Amanda sees that Vivian's about to lose it again and immediately cuts her off, Vivian, shut up, she shouts, just don't say anything, just don't tell me, just shut up, already Amanda walks up to the anonymous gentleman under the plush bed covers, she lifts the rumpled bedclothes and peeks over at his face, she gasps, oh my god, Vivian Amanda shrieks, it's that creepy TV news guy from channel 43, that's a Tony what's his face now it's Amanda's turn to be slightly hysterical, what's he doing in your bed Amanda demands, or maybe I should ask, 
What are you doing with that creep in your marriage bed? You should get him up and out of here before George gets home Vivian breaks down again. I wish I could, Amanda. I really wish I could, she says. But I can't. Amanda shakes her head. What do you mean, you can't, she says. Just tell him to leave. If he doesn't want to leave, just kick his ass out of here. Amanda steps over to Vivian, who's still standing by the door. She takes her by the shoulders and starts to shake her vigorously. Listen, sweetheart, you've got to tell me. What's this creep doing in your bed? Where'd he come from? Where's he going? And where's George? Do you even know she asks? Do you at least know, or even suspect, what he'll I mean? Does he know anything about this? Or Amanda whispers, pointing to the sleeping celebrity. This TV news creep. This Sir Tony Haldale is he the real thing she wants to know? Or is he just some kind of stupid mistake still? Vivian doesn't answer. Amanda thinks the worst for a moment. Or, oh, I get it Amanda says. Did this guy try to rape? Oh, number, no finally, Vivian snaps out of it, and, crazily, bitterly, laughs, rape me she asks, oh, number, god, no, of course not, Vivian shakes her head, that's not the problem, she says, the problem is I just can't wake him up for god's sake, Vivian Amanda asks, why not because, Vivian pauses, he's dead, Vivian burst into tears again, what did you just say Amanda demands, you mean the TV news creep, that Sir Tony what's his face that creep is dead, like, really dead, and not just playing dead, or whatever, oh, I, god, Vivian Amanda leans heavily into the wall, eyeing the bed warily, oh my god she says again, I am so not ready for this, you know, Vivian, that today's my birthday, Vivian covers Sir Tony's head with the bedspread again and walks over to sit with Amanda on the floor at the foot of the bed, they hang their heads in their laps, Vivian starts rubbing her arms, they are both having an attack of bad nerves, did you did you kill him, Vivian Amanda asks, suspiciously, please don't say you did, because if you killed him, Vivian Amanda leaves the innuendo dangling, Vivian shakes her head again, no, she says, number, 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 I didn't kill him, Amanda, I swear, then how do you wind up dead Amanda demands, for God's sake, Vivian, I mean, like, how'd it happen Amanda puts her arms around Vivian, but Vivian just keeps rubbing her arms, I swear to you, Amanda, I don't know, I really just don't know, she says, all I know, is last night we accidentally made love, it just happened, then we fell asleep, and when I woke up, he didn't, he didn't wake up, I mean, I shit him and I slapped him, I said, wake up, wake up, wake up but he didn't, Vivian shakes herself awake again, this is so totally unreal, like some kind of bad dream, or something yeah, Amanda sneers, but, like, whose bad dream is it, Vivian, it's not my bad dream, but Vivian's off on her own private tangent, what I want to know, is she pauses, what am I going to do, now, Amanda Amanda stands up and walks toward Vivian again, I don't know, baby, I don't know, Amanda confesses, all I know is that I'd like to get out of this room though pretty soon, like, right now, you with me like all catastrophic crash witnesses and tragic victims, Vivian and Amanda would so much like to just pick themselves up, brush themselves off, walk away from the crime scene, and never look back, but it isn't so simple, is it, we're not going to let them get out of it that easily, are we of course not, suffering another attack of shivers and jitters, Vivian whips out another ultra slim cigarette, Amanda looks vaguely surprised, hey she says, Vivian, you started smoking again, Vivian shrugs, lights up, and takes a drag, I'm going to die anyway, she says, when George gets home, oh, Vivian, that's no excuse, you promised, you swore, you said you'd never, ever, Amanda's husky voice trails off, can I have one, she begs, the phone rings, George Schaefer, in the scrounged back seat of a cheap Eastler cab, is speeding away from the Los Angeles airport, George is on his cell phone, while he talks, the cab driver watches his suspicious ticks and twitches with squinty eyes in the rear view mirror, hey Vivian, sweetheart, George gushes, it's me, George, a black ringed eyeballs rolling in a silent movie scream, Vivian looks daggers at Amanda, they are both sucking down their ultra slim cigarettes like kids with popsicles, oh, hi George, Vivian chirps, honey, what's up, Vivian nervously taps Amanda, gritting her teeth, hey, are you okay, baby George asks, he sounds worried, you don't sound too good, you sick or something still shivering slightly, Amanda shakes her head, slashing an invisible knife hand across her throat, mouthing silent words to Vivian, just get rid of him she's saying, do what you have to do, Vivian tries to ignore her, 
Oh, no, hun, I'm all right, really, she says, trying to sound convincing. I just have a slight headache. I'll be okay. Vivian changes the subject. But what about you? Are you all right, she asks. How is Vegas? How's the trade show? Are you having a good time in the black and white cab? George smiles, the cab driver's eyes narrow. Pretty good, George says. But I missed you. George squirms in his sagging passenger seat. He's slightly aroused, thinking of Vivian. He's wishing he was already home, with Vivian in the plush bedroom, watching her slowly strip for him from her elegant black satin dinner clothes down to her sexy lingerie, down to her shapely, blue nail-polished feet, her pretty, slightly misshapen toes. So, I left a day early, George says. I'm in a cab, I'll be home in 15, and I bought you something special that you're really going to love. See you soon, babe. Vivian's petrified, paralyzed, in rigor mortis. Oh, and, hey, Vivian George pauses for the suspense. Don't forget what you promised me. Vivian is silently screaming, half alive, half dead. What you said about that that sexy lingerie, the white and black cab driver watches George smile. I've been waiting, downstairs in the kitchen, Vivian vomits on Amanda's feet. This is it, Amanda, Vivian coughs, he's coming, Amanda joins in on the gag, pouring hers on the side. Oh, I, God, she spits, he's coming, Vivian, he's going to kill you, you, too, Vivian reminds her. He'll be here any minute, without warning Amanda experiences a brief moment of sanity. It's no use. He's going to find out sooner or later anyway. Give it up, Vivian, she says. Just call the police. Vivian spins. Are you crazy? She screams. I'd kill myself before I let George get something like this on me. He'd never let me forget. He'd torture me with it for the rest of my life. Vivian pants, staring at her friend with wild eyes. Seriously, Amanda, I'd rather be dead than oh. Shut up, Vivian. You would not. Amanda snaps. You'd do anything to stay alive and get this corpse off your back and still cheat on George. Too, obviously. Amanda. Amanda knows Vivian. Well, Vivian protests. It was a good line. Anyway, they both light another ultra-slim cigarette. They wave the pungent smoke over the puke. Finally, Vivian finds resolution. Come on, Amanda, she shouts. We've got to do something barefoot and in bathrobes. The hair a mess. Vivian and Amanda run up the stairs. Downstairs, the doorbell rings. Vivian and Amanda freeze. They tiptoe back down and watch. Horrified, as the big brass doorknob slowly turns, the white front door slowly opens and George walks inside, closing his umbrella. Honey, it's me, he shouts. I'm home. Vivian and Amanda are still petrified, mortified, and incapable of saying a word. Hi, Vivian George bursts out. Aren't you glad to see me? Vivian tries to fake a big, sexy smile. Her whole body's frozen. She feels somewhat like a cryogenically preserved corpse. Still in bathrobe and slippers, Amanda stands behind Vivian, her big blue eyes shooting darts at George. Just get rid of him. She's still thinking. I don't care what you have to do. Feigning warmth, Vivian hugs George tightly, beaming with satisfaction. George smiles at Amanda. He feels perfect love toward all women. Sneering, Amanda gives him the finger, and, you know, clear, George chatters on, the whole way from the airport, the freeway was wide open, absolutely no traffic, oh, really Vivian says, over George's shoulder, she's waving Amanda up the stairs, it's like the whole world was bringing me home to you he pauses, waxing poetic, or, anyway, he says, the Eastler freeway was, Amanda rolls her eyes and gags silently, that's so nice, Amanda says, you're so, so for once, words fail her. She looks at George with knives in her eyes, and then bolts for the door. Vivian breaks away from George and charges toward Amanda. Where are you going she demands. You can't leave now, but Amanda wins the doorway. At the threshold, she turns around triumphantly. I can't she sneers. Just watch. Before she leaves, she tosses a match into the burning house. I forgot, Amanda says. I left a fire burning in my fireplace. You can't be too careful, you know. She looks straight at George. Then she flings the zinger. You shouldn't play with fire, you know. She pauses. The fire that warms you can be the same fire that burns your house down. If you're not careful, all three stand stupefied, paralyzed, mortified, for a brief moment. Finally, Amanda says, or whatever after a moment, George's nose twitches. Despite his passion for Vivian, he looks around distracted. 
He sniffs. What's that smell he says, embarrassed. Vivian looks away. Amanda reaches for the doorknob. They all hear the upstairs toilet flush. Amanda stops dead in her tracks. She and Vivian stare at one another. Wide-eyed. Vivian, dear George asks, who's that upstairs? Vivian's speechless. So is Amanda. George doesn't get it, but the joke's really on him, isn't it? Vivian, darling George asks again, who's upstairs in our bathroom? Vivian's still stupefied, tongue-tied, gagged and bound. So is Amanda, and George still doesn't get it. With a brisk, predatory leap, George wrenches open a nearby closet and pulls out a sword-off shotgun. Vivian and Amanda are scared shitless. Stalking upstairs, George is cautious brandishing the sword-off shotgun in his arms. As he peers suspiciously over the foyer, the upstairs bedroom door slowly creaks open. Sir Tony Haldale walks out. He's totally nude, except for the cocktail napkin he's clutching over his flaccid manhood. He's still half asleep and half hung over like a walking zombie. Vivian and Amanda gasp. It's as if Sir Tony's been miraculously resurrected from the dead. Sir Tony's still groggy. He's oblivious to the man with the shotgun that stands in the swanky second-story hallway. He's just looking for his old high school sweetheart and long-lost love, Vivian Babylon. Vivian he calls. Without sobbing, Vivian hides her face in her hands. And George? Of course, George is enraged. George is fuming. He stomps back down the stairs, throwing away the sword-off shotgun in disgust. He starts stalking Vivian. Instead, he figures that shooting is too good for her. He'll strangle her with his bare hands. Vivian, dearest he snorts. Who the fuck is the Sir Tony peers downstairs at the three musketeers? Vivian, George, and Amanda. He's still befuddled, bewildered, baffled. Vivian Sir Tony sniffs. Who are these people stepping between Sir Tony and George? Amanda finally answers. Sir Tony Haldale, I'd like you to meet Vivian's husband, George Schaefer. George Schaefer, I'd like you to meet Vivian's old high school boyfriend and romantic lover boy, the Channel 43 TV anchorman, Sir Tony Haldale. Pleased to meet you, Sir Tony blusters. Charmed, I'm sure. Shut up George screams hysterically. You, just shut up but George. Clear, Vivian murmurs. I can just shut up George shouts. Vivian, as Sir Tony starts to say, you, I told you George shrieks. Just, shut, up Sir Tony, George, and Amanda look at Vivian, Vivian, George says, yeah, Vivian, Amanda says, ah, Vivian Sir Tony says, outside, the brake pads of a delivery truck screech, oh, number Vivian says, it happened again sheepishly, Vivian tries to smile, Sir Tony and Amanda look at George, George looks down, his shoes are planted in puke, all we can hear is a fury of gagging and vomiting until the doorbell rings, after George discovers Vivian's half-hearted affair with Sir Tony Haldale, George and Vivian's American Dream marriage is on the rocks, and as George and Vivian's American Dream marriage cracks up, their posh new age suburban yuppie McMansion also starts to disintegrate. Remember the previously well-manicured lawns and groomed shrubbery the swanky, silvery dining rooms and upholstered, posh living rooms? You can't help but take a certain prurient interest and voyeuristic satisfaction watching the whole elaborate dream fall apart. In slow motion, in time-lapse photography, we watched George's and Vivian's dream house splinter and crack. Cracks and chinks appear in the superficial brickwork veneer and simulated wood grain siding. The white concrete sideworks and black asphalt driveway start to break up like they've been hit with an earthquake. Shaggy, overgrown shrubbery and frayed, ragged grass grow over the white pillared front porch. Dirty dishes pile up in the kitchen sink. Dust settles over the plush upholstery and shag carpets, and elegant telephones ring in the empty rooms and abandoned closets. Nobody answers. What's the question? Is anybody home? George, maybe. Vivian's gone. A black and white cap pulls up to the shaggy, grassy curb in front of George's McMansion. The blue uniformed driver takes a suitcase out the trunk and slams it shut. Then he scuttles to the cab door. With a single arm gesture, he flings the back door open. A shapely, slightly older woman with frizzy red hair steps out. The blue uniformed driver slams the door shut and accepts a small gratuity from the shapely red-haired woman. He tips his cap. The driver scuttles back to the front seat and jumps in. The cab drives away. Out of boredom, Vivian dances around the white concrete sidewalk and across the scraggly, unmowed front lawn. She strikes a pose here and there, like she's playing for the invisible video camera. It's like she's practicing for a ballet recital, having nothing better to do. But we know, don't we? She's dancing for us, inside a swank three-story dream house. George's private phone rings. He takes the call. Absent mendedly, 
He looks out the front door and sees a shapely, red-haired woman standing on the front walk. Hey mom George blurts out. Great to hear from you George looks down at the nail polished bottle in his hand. Great he enthuses. Everything's just great but suddenly, George sees Vivian prancing and dancing on the shaggy front lawn outside the big picture window and abruptly cuts off the conversation. Listen, mom, something's come up. He says, I have to go. I'll call you later. Later that evening, George and Vivian slightly decrepit. Three-story McMansion is lit up like an airport. Vivian's astonished, even in decay, that George and Vivian's American Dream McMansion is so much swankier, posh, and larger than her wildest memories, this is our house she gasps, George blurts out an irrelevant comment, my pops died, he says, deadpan, a couple years ago, while you were away, Vivian's immediately downcast and saddened by the news, I'm so sorry, she says, really, George shrugs, you know, me and pops he starts to say, but he changes his mind, he left me a lot, is all he manages, shit, Vivian swinging wildly between extremes, George's mood changes again, I have my own private airplane he blurts, a 68 million dollar fucking jet airplane of course, Vivian's mood swings, too, I'm so glad for you, she says, really, there are a couple of real swingers, and they, George Schaefer and Vivian Babylon, the next day, George and Vivian sit at a rusty lawn table in the slightly overgrown backyard of their enormous three-story McMansion, why did you come back, Vivian George wants to know, it wasn't, like, me, was it I just wanted to come back home, Vivian answers, to visit the past, in search of oh, I don't know, she changes the subject, how has your Tourette's been she asks, are you taking your meds fucking awful George says, can't you tell, the fucking meds, he trails off, are you still drinking lots of coffee Vivian asks, it's not good for your Tourette's, you know, Vivian pauses before making a calculatedly tactless remark, you're not the easiest person to live with, anyway, but George still doesn't get it, he's off on another tangent, god, Vivian he bursts out, it's been, like, what, 10, 11 years since what Vivian asks, since you George trails off, you know, Vivian changes the subject, you may not believe this, but I missed the shit out of you, George, what do you mean, you miss me George shouts, you at least have to meet me, I broke up with you, like, 5 6 times Vivian shrugs and waves her hands, yeah, well, she says, that was a long time ago, and besides that, George rants, you cheated on me with that, that creepy TV news guy, that's a tiny what's his Sir Tony Haldale, she sniffs, and he isn't but George keeps ranting, and then you cheated on me with another woman he shakes his head and mutters, a fucking beautiful woman, but Vivian only scoffs, beautiful, yeah, she was beautiful, she's amused, I told you that right from the beginning, George, oh, yeah, you told me, and then you lied to me, you said it was a platonic, friendship thing, no sex, that's what you said, yeah, I said that, Vivian smirks, I said lots of things, but things change, George, I was completely honest and open with you George accuses, and you wouldn't even have a threesome with me, finally, Vivian laughs out loud, listen to you she snorts, she was a lesbian, George, she only liked women, so what, god George mocks, can't I like women, too can we go inside, George Vivian asks, I'm really cold, you can say that again, George mumbles, I'm really cold, Vivian says, in the slightly decayed, dusty living room, Vivian and George are kissing on the white and red plush upholstered sofa, George starts getting romantic, come back to me, Vivian, he says, you know I love you, but again, Vivian only scoffs, thanks for the offer, George boo, she says, maybe I'll think about it, days later, George is in the slightly cluttered, Mesa Den, playing back telephone messages while Vivian listens, you see how much I love you, Vivian he says, I have at least 30 of your messages saved on my voicemail, but Vivian's not interested in replaying the past, this place is a mess she says, don't you ever throw anything out she stomps out, George continues to play back Vivian's old telephone messages, when a strangely familiar voice abruptly blurts out, you think I'm gone, George, but I'm not, she says, you won't get rid of me that easily, you think you can, but you can't, a burst of static blasts from the answering machine and then the strangely familiar voice blurts out, you'll never forget me, George, 
No matter how hard you try, amidst the rusty lawn furniture and ragged, overgrown grass, George and Vivian dine on the patio beneath a sagging white and red umbrella. Music plays softly from the car stereo, which is tuned to the golden oldest station. Vivian's put on her old white and red summer dress and floppy hat, and has dyed her hair summer blonde. In this current incarnation, she's the epitome of the blonde bombshell while George is the dark and handsome stranger. There's something strangely ritualized and excessively formal about their speech and manners, as if they are simply repeating old scenes from their distant past. Finally, George stands and hurls out a hand to Vivian. In their empty driveway, George and Vivian dance to the same old sweet song that plays on the coupe speakers. George and Vivian are specters, ghosts in some old black and white silent movie, as they dance on, and that old sweet song slowly fades away. As the western sun slowly sets behind them, George and Vivian dance on to disco music from the BMW's car stereo. The stereo is playing the feverish, pulse-thumping disco beat of some great 80s classics Stayin' Alive, Night Fever, Vivian grooves like a natural, her hips swaying and thrusting with the heavy beat but George is still George. Although trying to be suave, debonair, romantic, he can't help coming off as clumsy, slow-footed, heavy-handed. As they dance together in front of their enormous three-story McMansion, white mist slowly rises from the concrete and swirls around their feet. The old blue moon is a glittering disco ball overhead. George sweeps Vivian off her feet and whispers, I love you, Vivian, come back to me. Ouch Vivian says, you're standing on my toe I'll do whatever you want. Just let me kiss your feet oh, George, please, don't grovel. She titters. Later that night in the big white and red canopy bed, George and Vivian lie together, exhausted, panting, sweaty. Vivian's only slightly relieved still a little frustrated. Oh, George, you make me queasy she says, I'm sick dizzy. George laughs, it was good for me, too. He says, George, Vivian says, getting serious, I didn't understand a word you were saying, when we were you know, you just started spewing out obscenities and swear words, cursing all the gibberish, you didn't make any sense, George, George is apologetic but still laughing, I can get like that, sometimes, sorry, abruptly, his mood swings, by the way, he says tersely, you forgot your fee, he pulls a fistful of bills from the cluttered nightstand, it's for dollars and twenty-five cents, right he sneers, you're from Eastler, right home of cheap sex and cheaper thrills laughing, Vivian plays along brusquely pulling on her clothes, yes, she smirks, your ten minute hour is up, sir, but remember, next time, pay me before you fuck me, or you won't be getting any, here, George throws the handful of bills on the bed, keep the change, sweetheart, Vivian stands and stuffs the bills into her brassier, you're a real big spender, she coos, do you want me to leave, right now George gets on his knees and grovels, don't leave me, he whines, why don't I just become your little boy toy, you need that, don't you you already are, Vivian shoots back, since we kissed on the beach, and you fucked me, I've got you hooked, you're already in love with me, George sighs, you're my one and only, my soulmate, Vivian simpers, you're my sugar daddy, my lover boy, my Romeo, and yes, I'll marry you, unexpectedly, George stands up, brushes himself off, and gets serious, you know, Vivian, he says, the chances of us working out together, married, are as good as they'd be with anyone else, Vivian laughs, we're made for each other, George boy, she pauses, you've got secrets, I've got secrets, and we've both got problems, big problems, so George mopes, the marriage is off no wedding ring, then, I know Vivian sneers, that's just a silly tradition, George grins, you know, Vivian, he says, sometimes I almost wish you were real, she laughs and then falls back into the big white and red poster bed, tired of the game, George snuggles up to her, trying to rekindle the sparks of their old flame but Vivian is too chilly, um, Vivian, may I please touch your breasts not tonight, George, Vivian says over her cold shoulder, thank for asking, though, George rolls over to sulk, the next morning, George is rummaging in the fridge for milk, across the messy kitchen, Vivian whispers, hey, George, look, but at the moment, George has got his head stuck up the fridge, just a minute, sweetheart, he coils, and busy, with her sultry, silky voice, Vivian whispers again, George, oh George girl, behind George's back, Vivian drops her top, I need you to tell me, George, she purrs, is one of my tits bigger than the other finally, George turns his head, his jaw nearly drops, 
Jesus, Vivian, he says, while she demands, hell, I don't know, George mutters, he turns and runs up the stairs, diving into Vivian's white and red bedroom, sitting on the bed beside the cluttered nightstand, he hits the speed dial on the telephone, mom, she won't have sex with me, George complains, I don't know what the hell's going on, I don't know what the hell's wrong with me, George's mother's voice echoes like a diva's across a colossal studio amphitheater, it's that Vivian, Benny, I always told you, she's just using you for what she can get out of you, you gotta get rid of her, Benny, you know she's not right for you, I always said so, George whimpers and pulls the phone away from his head, you gotta get out Moar, his mother insists, find yourself a nice girl, who'll take care of you, and give you some adorable little grandkids, I always told you, Benny, didn't I George holds the phone at arm's length and waits silently, patiently, for Mumsy's mother and son sex talk to just stop. Finally, he just sets the phone down on the nightstand and goes back downstairs. Well, here we are again, folks, and we. Yes, it's another day in the secret life of George Schaefer. Only this time, George is not alone. He's still trying to sort out his complicated love-hate relationship with Mrs. George Schaefer, Miss Vivian Babylon, in his white terrycloth bathrobe. George peers down at his coffee, like a psychic reading tea loves. As he peers, he whispers absent-mindedly to himself, stale, dark, sweet, addictive. Strong, he slowly lifts the thermos closer to his lips, inch by inch, then, at the last second, he backs off, finally, he just pours the whole thing down the drain, he watches it slide out of sight with longing, in a self-mortifying fit of thwarted outrage, he grabs a pack of his favorite smokes, gnashing his teeth and baring his claws, he rips the pack to shreds, next, he grabs the carton out of the freezer, growling and foaming at the mouth, he starts tearing up the carton, when his schizophrenic fit of self-abasement and pious abnegation is finished, he finally pauses to look out the window and think, his self-conscious mind's gone blank, but in his collective subconscious he hears a strangely familiar voice whispering, I don't think you really miss me, George boy, I think the only thing you really miss is the sex, even alone, George finds himself repeating and replaying the same old stupid, tired scenes, saying the same old stupid words, over and over again, you didn't miss me, Vivian, I broke up with you like, five times, this time, Vivian's response is slightly different, but how can that be, if she's just a memory, but you always came back for more, didn't you Vivian repeats, and then you wanted to marry me, who wanted to marry who George asks Vivian, or whomever, I wanted to marry you don't you remember, George Vivian whispers, you bought me that enormous diamond George changes the subject, let me ask you again, Vivian, how do you think our marriage would work out if we ever got married, and see what answer you come up with, now that we've been married, well, the marriage might be hell, she says, but the sex would be great, Vivian is taking a walk with her old friend and neighbor, Sarah, pushing a stroller together, on the curbside, George is taking out the garbage, he pointedly tries to ignore his neighbor, but Vivian won't be ignored, George, I'm so glad you came out, she says, I wanted to introduce you, George sniffs, what's that smell Vivian's miffed, it's really none of your business, she says, but I've been drinking wine and smoking pot, with Sarah Vivian and Sarah impassively look George over, oh, and George, Vivian says, this is my wife, Sarah, she completes my sentences, she completes my life, as you, George, do not, upstairs in the old master bedroom of the slightly decrepit McMansion, George spies on Vivian and Sarah who have bunked up in the guesthouse, across the scruffy unkempt lawn they spy on him back through the blinds of the guesthouse window, at the exact same moment, all three shut the blinds, but George can't stay away from the window for long, slipping silently into the master bedroom, Vivian sneaks up behind George and puts a gun to his head, George is still occupied with the guesthouse and doesn't notice until the ear-splitting sound of ten explosive pistol shots, their echoes slowly fading in the black night. Vivian charges out the guesthouse door and bursts in George's front door, a silent fire alarm is screaming, we still hear Vivian perfectly, though, just like she's standing right in front of us, a strangely familiar voice says, I'm just a habit, George, an addiction, I don't need you anymore see, I've got my life together, I've got it all figured out, and what about you, George boo George's eyes are desperate, scared, haunted, he's ready to give up, is he really dying, already, slipping up behind him, Vivian tapes his mouth shut and cuffs his wrists to his ankles, 
In the old master bedroom George seduces Vivian's bare feet with his mouth. Bending over the languidly reclining Vivian, George makes an awkward, lumpish figure. He can't find his balance. He falls to his knees. His hands are still cuffed behind his back. Vivian demands a pedicure, but George, salivating, is incapable of submitting. Stroking her arms and waving her shapely bare feet before his nose, Vivian teases him as the silently screaming alarm clock on the nightstand passes for full hours. Finally, she rips the tape off his mouth and watches him squirm and wriggle against his bonds. Frustrated and enraged, defiant and abject, George begs, Come on, Vivian, you can't leave me like this, impulsively. Vivian gives in, she undoes his cuffs, you're right, George, she says, we've got to give our marriage more time to mature, we can work things out, can't we, if we only try, George starts to cry, in his mind, George is still in cuffs, his mouth taped shut, the black magnet dominatrix, Vivian, stands over him shaking her whip and chains, George, you fool she taunts him, of course I was just using you whenever it was convenient for me I was just trying to make you my slave, just look at me, do I look like some submissive, whining bitch, I'm a perfectly empowered, dominant woman, and the superwoman, and I never even told you I loved you not once, it was all in your head, George Bushy scoffs, God, get a life, or something, will you suddenly, Vivian coughs, she can't seem to breathe right, something's stuck in her throat, she spits it out and turns to George, stronger than ever, writhing and groveling in his bondage, George tries to fight her physically, with little effect other than a feeling of puny ridiculousness, Vivian only laughs, George, you pitiful little worm she says, you're fighting George's voice is stifled, muffled, stop, stop he cries, Vivian mimics him, thnop, thnop she snorts, she takes a stranglehold on George's cock, kissing him while he's holding back, she pulls out a rubber and snaps it against his thigh, then she makes him kiss her ass, slowly, suggestively, she undoes his pants, coughing and hacking asthmatically, bringing her face closer and closer to his groin, but when George starts to respond, she snaps at him, don't touch my breasts she commands, don't even ask, slowly, seductively, she undoes her bikini bottom, still writhing in a slow motion stripped ease, she tosses the condom away, now, George, she whispers, get me pregnant, George is still bound and gagged, struggling and suffocating, no he shouts, you bitch, no Vivian mocks, now Beth Vivian lowers herself onto him, taking him inside her, George, you fool she coos, I'm a social worker, I'm only here to help you, get off George screams, get off Vivian's now perfectly calm, cool, collected, oh, George, you see, I am, she towers above him, I'm getting off, and now I have complete control over you, suddenly, the telephone rings, strong fists pound on the door, George shudders and explodes inside her, Vivian smirks, and now, you've gotten me pregnant, you'll never be free from me, again, as long as you live, Vivian thrusts her face close to his, whispering into his still twisting and writhing features, don't you understand, George she whispers, I only want to abuse you, I love abusing you, because, you see, I really don't love you, in fact, I think I really hate you now, fire department stout, authoritarian voices shout, police, open up the sturdy white front door comes crashing down, still chafing his wrists and pacing back and forth, George is wiped out, it never ends he sobs. Vivian walks out, casting a last look over her cold shoulder, I'll call you, she says, and then she walks out forever, the silently screaming alarm clock reads, 10am, on the other side of the wall, we hear the sounds of a man and woman having sex, the old master bedroom is decorated with erotic artwork, the anonymous man's feet hang out of the sleep rumpled bed covers, the old master bedroom sounds hollow now, and there's the ripping, tearing sound of fabric being hit, repeatedly, over and over again, in the white and red canopy bed, George is under the rumpled bed covers jerking off with his laptop on his chest, he's watching porn with his headphones on and he's still thinking of Vivian, the silently screaming alarm clock reads 10.15am, George is still jerking off, the silent alarm clock reads 10.44am, George is tired and sweaty, he tries one last time, by his side, the clock face turns ahead to 10.45am, there's a big size George gives up, this is pathetic, he says, that night, George is still in bed with his laptop, but now Vivian's beside him, stop working, she nags, put the computer away, George, just go to sleep, George shuts the laptop up, thank you, dearest, he says, you know how much I love you, I love you, too, she says, 
Do you want to have sex, Vivian? Sweetheart, George asks. Is that you in a black silk negligee and sexy undies? Vivian slowly leans toward him. With a snarl, George puts a gun to her head. In the old master bedroom, Vivian suddenly wakes up, startled, sweating. There's no one else around. George is gone. She pulls out a dildo from under the sheets. She drops it on the floor. She sighs with exhausted relief. Ah, duck. She curses. I'm really a sick bitch. It's a scorching hot and dry Southern California day outside some desolate, anonymous motel room somewhere, in a sleazy little beach town. In the off-season, in the anonymous motel room, the cheap ragged blinds are closed. The white sun bleeds horizontally into the dusky studio motel set, making black and white shadows like buzz in the stifling and stuffy air. George is shivering, suffocating in smoke, but he's still wrapped up in a blanket. His face is drenched with sweat. He can barely suck in a stale breath of fresh air. Women's panties and assorted dildos are scattered on the floor. George surveys the wreckage, her notes, her gifts, and dead flowers a bucket of water. The silent fire alarm finally screeches on, and with it, George is also set off. Kill me, kill me he screams fuck you. Fuck me, fuck the world. I want off George dunks his head in the bucket of water, gasping for breath. He sits on the bed, panting. Slowly, George removes a point for caliber revolver from a black leather bag and starts to play with it. He plays the 1950s Hollywood cowboy twirling the big ugly revolver around his trigger finger, pretending to shoot over his shoulder. Then nonchalantly he puts the barrel of the gun inside his mouth and aims upward toward the top of his head. After a moment, he takes the gun out of his mouth. The biggest mistake people make in killing themselves, George explains matter-of-factly, is not shooting straight. He squints, as if reading the old broken script from invisible cue cards. Don't aim for the back of the throat you'll just blow your neck out. Aim straight for the roof of the mouth. That's where the brains are. He wraps his lips around the gun and pulls the trigger. The hammer clicks harmlessly. Exhausted, George sits down hard on the old broken-down sofa. He lays his head back and shuts his eyes, laying one hand over the gun, which sits still on his lap. Through the walls, George hears a couple arguing, pots and pans banging, furniture sliding across the floor, and then a little girl cries, Mommy, Mommy's still half asleep. George hollers through the wall, shut up, little girl a man's distant voice shouts, you fucking bitch the dull thud of the body hitting the floor he little girl sobs, mommy wearily, George gets to his feet still carrying the gun, he crosses the room and puts his ear against the wall, silence, George reclines with a half smoked cigarette on the closely clipped front lawn of his modest, three story suburban home in an anonymous subdivision, all too soon, the smoke runs out, George groans as he rises to his feet, he walks down the deserted beachside street along the windy shorefront, near a flashily lit convenience store. Sluggishly, slump-shouldered, he slouches through the swinging glass doors and into the air-conditioned store. He walks through like a zombie, like a rat in a familiar maze grabbing exactly what he wants. George pays the pretty sales clerk for a pack of smokes and a snack. She smiles, have a nice day she chirps. George grunts, turns, and leaves. On the waterfront George strikes home with his trembling hands full, trying to smoke a cigarette and eat a burrito at the same time. Suddenly, he's struck with a wild idea. He juggles the burrito and the cigarette, pulls a memo notebook from his back pocket, and scribbles, write down all the things I want to do with my life, start with today, then he draws a flashing light bulb, for inspiration get it, which he turns into a fat lady bending over, seen from behind, satisfied, he shuts the book and walks on, he starts humming the song he heard playing when he was in the shower, he passes another sleazy, bleabag motel and keeps singing to himself, such a lovely place, such a lovely space, out of nowhere, a strangely familiar woman's voice starts humming the melody, George and Vivian make a cute meet, don't you think, like some cute teenage surfer couple in some wholesome, 50 speech movie, they are both singing, we're all prisoners here, have our own device, abruptly, George stops singing but Vivian keeps right on, living it up at the Hotel California she's not embarrassed, she's not shy, she's singing for us, isn't she, and when she sees George watching, she only sings louder, such a lovely place, such a lovely place, such a lovely space, George looks down at her shapely, well manicured feet, suddenly, Vivian stops singing too, He's looking at her brightly colored, bluish painted toenails. As he walks past her she finally speaks to him. What are the chances of that she asks. George stops staring at her feet and briefly looks into her eyes. Ha he asks. Have what Vivian smirks. You were just singing the Hotel California. Weren't you George is too befuddled and embarrassed to answer. I don't know. He stammers. I don't remember. Vivian laughs. Well, don't be embarrassed. 
You don't need to be shy with me. That's amazing, isn't it? I mean, like, the coincidence us both singing the same song at the same time. Like that finally, George lightens up and laughs a little. Yeah, that was weird, he admits. You were singing Hotel California, too earned. You intrigued by his mysterious shyness Vivian tries to draw George into a conversation. Hey, you live just down the corner of the next block, don't you she says. She pauses like she's just remembering something she doesn't know what. Oh, hell, I know who you are Vivian snorts. I know where I know you from yeah George says, where you're the guy who's always out there on the front lawn, smoking a cig, right but George is still staring at her feet. Yeah, maybe, he confesses. I guess, George is evasive, non-committal, but Vivian picks up on his shyness and confusion. Hi, hey she says, you really are antisocial, and you politely. George corrects her, not antisocial, he says, just non-social, maybe. George is still being evasive, but Vivian doesn't push the issue. Instead, she simply acts supportive, compassionate, caring. Wow she gushes, that's amazing, I just had this flash, like you know, deja vu or something. I had this flash like we've met before in another life, or something, maybe still, George says nothing. He can't think of anything to say, and he can't escape the feeling that he's stuck in some old, bad dream. So Vivian picks up the slack, all by herself. Anyway, I was just on my way to get my nails done, she says. I've been over at the seaport for the past week. She pauses, then confides. It's this professional pedicurist's convention I have to go to for work. It's so damned boring finally. George breaks his stupefied, tongue-tied reserve and blurts out. What's your name? If you don't mind me asking, and Vivian, Vivian smiles. Vivian Babylon, that's nice. George flashes back. Oh, I guess that's nice. Ha yeah, I guess. Vivian laughs. What's yours I'm George. George agrees. George Schaefer, or, at least, I think I am. That's who I was the last time I checked. They shake hands, firmly. George's grip is strong, but Vivian's is stronger. You've got a firm grip there, Mr. Schaefer. Vivian laughs. Would you like to arm wrestle? George apologizes. Sorry, he says. I didn't want to hurt you. George looks down again at Vivian's open-toed feet. Vivian's hooky blue toenail polish is peeling off intriguingly. It looks slutty, George thinks, but sweet like sex candy. There are doctor's papers, notes, and conference binders strewn around the cluttered bedroom area of the cheap motel room. George is giving Vivian the pedicure she always wanted in the brightly lit bathroom. He's using new blue nail polish Vivian's pick. Vivian basks in George's rapt attention. I really can't believe you've never given a girl a pedicure before, she says. You're just so so good at it. George basks in Vivian's praise. Really he says. He buffs furiously on the last bluish layer, laughing at himself for being so strung out behind the whole foot polishing routine, but it's turning him on, sexually, at the same time, it's making George horny, Vivian, too, as sunset fades over the white sand beaches George walks home still excited by this afternoon's meeting with, the love of my life, the number number one, the one and only, great love, my soulmate, Vivian Babylon, just as he gets home the phone rings, he rushes inside, when he picks up the phone, he's already missed the call, he pushes the message button, out of nowhere, Vivian's silky, languorous voice fills the empty room, hey George, she purrs, I was just thinking of you, I was downstairs at one of the lectures, it's so boring, I wish I were with you, instead, doing she pauses suggestively, you know, George has swept up and possessed by the fragrant memory of Vivian's shapely feet, blue toenail polish, and the fragrant smell of her foot sweat wafting to his nose, almost immediately another message comes in, clashing with the previously recorded message, out of nowhere, Vivian's choked up, sobbing voice fills the empty room, she's very distressed, nearly in tears, hey, George, she says, it's me again, Vivian, hey, ugh, I'm just calling I'm just calling because I'm sorry, I'm just so bored at this stupid conference, I'm not going to go to this class I have in 10 minutes, I'm getting so sick of listening to the same thing over and over again, I'm just in my room, taking a bubble bath, anyway, I'm sorry to bother you, thanks for letting me vent, almost immediately the phone rings again, George picks up the phone, hello George you must look beautiful in that bubble bath, oh, George, that's the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me, and she really means it, too, seriously, George, she says, that is one of the nicest things a guy has ever said to me, you just don't know, the things guys say, when they, you know through the swirling mists of the motel bathroom, George massages Vivian's feet, he makes wild, passionate love, orally to her fetidly smelly feet, she moans in ecstasy, oh, please, she pleads, don't stop, 
Do me right on the arches, George is in ecstasy as her feet quiver with delight, George and Vivian wake up together both still fully clothed, George smiles into Vivian's eyes, she immediately falls back to sleep, gently, George caresses her hair and her feet, for a few brief moments, he watches her sleep, still oblivious, then he leaves, quietly without waking her up, as the cheap motel room door closes, we see the blue nail polished bottles strewn across the cluttered nightstand, beneath them, George has left a note that reads, simply, thank you, George comes home with a styrofoam cup of coffee in his hand, as he steps to the front porch, he tells himself he's really ready for the day, he opens his mailbox and shuffles through a few bills, then he unlocks the front door and steps inside the empty house, the house is still a mess, with dirty dishes and clothes lying hazardly throughout the kitchen and the living room, quickly George picks up the dirty clothes, cleans a few dishes, and sets his house in order before he finally sits down to write the first installment of the secret love and death of George Schieffer and Vivian Babylon, I'll have to begin the story with me, as ridiculous as that sounds he thinks, it's been forever since I actually sat down to write, he starts writing, by the end I knew I had succeeded, it was just one of those things, I enjoyed myself and left, that's all that mattered, God probably took delight in watching his orchestration of me that day, I guess I'll just chalk it up to personal growth, the next day, things were even better, I'll probably never hear from her or see her again, or, maybe not for a week at least, anyway, he turns on Hotel California on the CD player and keeps typing through the whole day without distraction, looping the one song over and over again, out of nowhere, Vivian's brisk business-like voice breaks into the quiet room, hi, George, she says, the blue full moon lights up George and Vivian on the white sand beach, they're a happy-go-lucky fun couple, all perfectly white-toothed smiles and sleepy, bedroom looks like they're posing for cheap promotional brochures for some ritzy beachside resort or sweaty tourist spa, somewhere in Southern California, George and Vivian chase each other playfully around the big white sand lot, Vivian dips her feet in the white foam sea water as she sits at the edge, George tries to lick Vivian's wet, gritty feet, but Vivian girlishly grinds his face into the salty tide water, using her perfectly manicured, stylish feet to hold his head down, George's hair bobs up and down with the rising and falling waves as Vivian laughs, as the sun sets George and Vivian dance in the empty beach parking lot near their sporty gal wind car, the car's CD player is set on high volume, playing 80s disco music with a pulsing, throbbing beat, but slightly shrill and nervingly dinny through the metal speakers, in the background, a silent fire alarm wails abruptly, the whole scene changes, wildly flinging and throwing himself around the crowded studio, George is playfully beating himself up, imagining that he's Vivian, helper he shouts, mocking himself, somebody save me, helper he's completely alone in the studio, except of course, for us, George keeps screaming, still nobody answers, the whole scene changes, George timidly knocks at the half-open door to Vivian's pad, he's got an invitation, but he still doesn't know what to expect, and, of course, he's shivering, nervous, excited, Vivian greets George at the door in sweet disabile, come in, Vivian purrs in her husky, low voice, we've been expecting you, George, we, George wonders, but he doesn't keep wondering long, George pushes the door open and finds Vivian kissing another woman, George is surprised to see that it's Vivian's friend Amanda, but where's Stevie, both Vivian and Amanda are topless, Vivian wears a sleek, black latex tights, a middle-aged couple observes the festivities here white-haired man in his fifties and his distinctly younger wife, in her twenties, and all of wide-eyed innocence, watch stiffly, sitting side by side, sultrily, seductively, Vivian welcomes George to her den of sin, tell me a little bit more about yourself, George, Vivian vamps, I really want to get to know you, somehow, Vivian seems to have sprouted sharp, pointed teeth and blood drips from her bright red lips, George immediately turns to run away, he tries to open the front door but the lock jams, he shakes the handle rapidly expecting Vivian to sink her fangs into his neck at any moment, Vivian changes again, becoming a sweet sex kitten, coy and playful, her whiskers twitch, oh, George, Vivian purse, please don't leave, I want to introduce you to my favorite sex toy and lesbian lover, Amanda, Amanda simpers and preens for George, but George, out of nowhere, starts screaming, you're fucking with my mind, both of you I am not fucking with your mind, Vivian snaps back, damn it, 
I told you I wouldn't do that, I told you, don't you believe me George writhes and grovels on the floor, a nervous wreck somewhere in the background a silent fire alarm goes off, George pounds his fists on the floor and screams, and the fiery alarm keeps on wailing inexplicably the whole scene changes, at a trendy yuppie coffee house in the same big city, George and Vivian sit on the fashionable terrace sipping coffee and relaxing with smokes, with the threefold stimulation of coffee, cigarettes, and Vivian, George waxes poetic, the morning cup of coffee, George rapturously infuses, as a subtle acceleration about it which the happy influence of the afternoon or late night cup of tea cannot equal, the pungent fragrance, the piquant aroma, the racing pulse the rumbling bowels, Vivian agrees, it's true, she says, a splash of coffee in the morning really gets me going, you know, sitting here, like right now, I feel so romantic and free, I feel free to be me, George changes the subject, you know, dearest, when I got that money from the savings and loan trust fund, I suddenly felt trapped, Vivian agrees, yes, dear, she says, I know just what you mean, George ignores her, he's caught up in his financial woes, you know though, sweetheart, he continues, if I did accomplish the whole financial coup at the bank, it's only to the good, it's all good, it's mainly because I was driven by the need to know whether I could accomplish something I wasn't sure I had the capacity to do, like, pull off a big financial scam, I was trying to get over, you know, the self-doubt thing, my impeccable morals were totally out of the picture, Vivian laughs shrilly, business first, the netics, right Vivian smiles, oh, George, you're such a card, George sulks and nods self-importantly, yes, I suppose you're right, dear, he takes a sip of his triple strength latte, yes, I guess I am, Vivian keeps preening and grooming him, besides, she murmurs, morality's mostly a matter of geography, and look where we are, what city is this, George, do you remember still George ignores her, I know, dear, George makes a flippant gesture, it's all very nice nice, yeah, but, you know, something's still missing, Vivian's baffled, she raises her high arched eyebrows, missing she asks, George pauses a few seconds, exhaling cigarette smoke from both nostrils, finally he turns and looks at Vivian as if he's just remembered she's there, you know, dear, George continues, at times, I think I'm overly rebellious, I just really don't want to miss this opportunity to rebel, you know, Vivian's eyes widen, she nods, yes, dear, I know, I understand perfectly, she pauses before expressing her disagreement, but if you think about it, George, darling, she smiles, every act of rebellion expresses some sort of nostalgia for innocence, doesn't it, at heart George is surprised to hear Vivian dabbling in profundities, he sips his triple latte and continues, but people, kids our age George frowns sagely, we all have the same problem, Vivian falls back into her supporting role, what problem is that, dear she says, I guess I just don't understand, George settles comfortably into his superior role, the problem is, Vivian, he lectures, how to rebel and how to conform at the same time, look at how we're solving the problem, you and me, we defy our parents and run away and get ourselves in trouble, and then Vivian gently cuts in, and then we smile, she says, George frowns and nods, yes, but without any reason, he says, without any reason, Vivian basks in George's approval, yes, of course, dear, she pauses, but that's what gives the smile its charm, George changes the subject, listen, Vivian, George gets serious, if I told you I was going to make a realistic decision, you would immediately think I decided to do something bad, am I right Vivian squirms, I'd base it on your past history, she equivocates, realistic or not, she pauses, then she smiles, but reality, my dear, reality is something we'll rise above, I George told me that once upon a time, long ago, George nods, content in his wisdom to let Vivian recite his own profound aphorisms for him, as a youth, you learn, Vivian recites, as you get older, you start to understand, finally, George cuts in, but in our youth he says, we know everything, old people just believe everything, there's a big difference, Vivian, chastened, Vivian casts down eyes, we must shock old people out of their minds, George continues, generally, we're the ones who keep them up to date, Vivian frowns, 
confused and troubled, I don't know, George, but, she wonders, well, if we're so smart so what Vivian plunges on, I mean, we know everything don't we, but what about our money and our future what's the plan, where are we headed next, what's our destiny now that we're always running away George is slightly nonplussed, but he doesn't show it, well now, Vivian he says, let's just not look too far ahead, that, I think, would be a mistake, a big mistake, Vivian's relieved, okay, then, she says, let's just tackle one thing at a time, George is gratified by her submission, yeah, right, he says, we'll just have to learn the rules of the game, but we have to stay low-key for a while until we make our big move, but that means, Vivian adds, that we'll have to play the game better than anyone else, suddenly, George is stricken by remorse, man George abruptly shouts, I'm starting to feel real guilty about the whole bank job thing, I don't know why, it just struck me, Vivian bites the nail on her middle finger hesitantly, is George going to start getting moral or something, she wonders, finally she reminds him, there may be responsible people but never guilty people, I George told me that too, long ago, in another country, but George is still serious, number, seriously, Vivian, he grimaces, I think we have a problem, I really think, morally, we should give the money back, I'm just too nervous, I'm afraid I'm going to blow it, or something, George lights another cigarette but on the wrong end, Vivian sips her coffee, calm down please, George, she cautions, don't lose your head now, now it's Vivian's turn to be smug, wise, superior, we have to continue on a path, our guiding path has to be clear to us at all times, our path's not far away it's right here, we have a car right here, we have money, lots of money, we have everything we need, what else is there now George is relieved, he knows Vivian's behind him 100%, she's with him, heart and soul, he feels he can bear his soul to her, just this once, I know we've just met, but he pauses, Vivian, I like you, you fascinate me, I like you too, George, Vivian murmurs, lovers, George pronounces, on the other hand, know just what they want and not what they need, we really don't need this money, because you and me, Vivian, we've got each other, we want wealth but right now we really only have each other, Vivian agrees, we do, I've got you, George, she pauses, and you've got me, I guess you could say that we are fortunate in that sense, George waxes poetic again, you see, Vivian, George proclaims, America is like a whole big apple pie, set out on the counter somewhere, right smack dab in the middle of 10 billion starving people, we thought we were the greatest nation on earth, but, somewhere, we made a mistake, we violated the law of the law of God, and, depending on when you do it, and whether you get away with it, you can't defy the laws of God without paying the consequences, sooner or later, yes, oh, George, you are so very right, Vivian flashes and glows with George's wisdom, but abruptly, Vivian's mood darkens, you know, George, she cautions, we probably have more ability than willpower, there's no limit to how complicated things can get when one thing leads to another, Vivian wants George to save her, to protect her, to be her big strong man, she wants him to be there for her, you're right, she faces facts, we could go to prison if we don't hide out for the rest of our lives, the cops are after us, and, like, we don't even react to them, like it really doesn't even matter, Vivian pauses, her high arched eyebrows furrowed with thought, what do prisons do, anyway she asks seriously, they don't rehabilitate criminals they don't protect us, what the hell do they do, anyway, they make criminals, don't they they make you think, George answers, turning hard bitten, they make you think about the big questions, who you are, why you're here, how the hell you got here, and especially, how the hell you're going to get out, you just sit in a cell somewhere with a bunch of other criminals and brood over the nature of things, I guess, Vivian muses, but suddenly she has a change of heart, let's turn ourselves in, George, should we she doesn't wait for an answer, but secretly, we'll give the money back, right, we never had a plan anyway, what were we going to do, just go and get married too young, move into a condo by the beach and grow old and tired of each other, go on spending money on things we really don't need, we'd be the all-American retired couple, George nods, sort of, he says, Vivian grabs his arm and starts dragging him across the parking lot, come on, George he shouts, George, reluctantly, lets himself be dragged toward a getaway car, okay, he mutters, come on, George Vivian repeats, we'll be clean, we'll be free, but, more than that we'll be happy let's put the whole bag of loot, all 50,000 bucks, in the Salvation Army bean in the parking lot, George whispers, we'll help others and ourselves, whatever George ponders briefly, almost reconsiders, and then stands resolved, we'll be broke, we'll be crooks, but at least we'll be off the hook, 
George strikes a noble pose, people have got to help each other, don't they? It's nature's law, the couple pays their check with some of the money from their bag of loot, they leave a big tip, then they walk over to the Salvation Army bean in the parking area and toss the whole bag of money inside, they jump in the getaway car and squeal out of the parking lot, moments later, George and Vivian are driving along the airplane freeway, I'm taking you to the airport, babe, George speaks loudly over the roar of the freeway, you should go back home, just leave me here, Vivian looks at him in surprise, what, what are you going to do damn it, Vivian, my head like a freaking prison, all I can get out are words, George turns to Vivian with a stricken look, I need some private space away from from us, I need time to think about things, don't worry, they will meet up again, when I find a safe hideout, I'll send for you, we'll get wasted together on my 21st birthday as the sleek sporty getaway car speeds down the freeway, the whole scene changes once again, in an enormous crowded airport somewhere in the same big city, Vivian's about to board her flight, George is holding her hand and looking sincerely into her eyes, Vivian's giving him mixed messages, he thinks, well right she asks, we'll keep in touch George shrugs, number, that's too risky, he says, just meet me, when the time's right, we'll make a fresh start, we won't rob anyone, we'll just talk, and go to college together or something, if you want, no strings attached, it'll be perfect again, Vivian, like it was, you'll see, Vivian's still confused, ambivalent, non-committal, I don't want to take the baccalaureate exam again, she complains, I already failed it once, I want to start all over again, from the beginning, I want to make a fresh start, George shakes his head, this time, we'll be victors together, you and me, he nods, just wait and see, Vivian seems unsure, wow, she says, I can't believe I've grown so close to you, you bad boy, you're a bad boy, George, do you know that bad boys can grow up to be good men, George insists, you wait and see I'll be a man when you return, things will be better, Vivian starts crying, number, really, you're perfect, George, please don't change, I love you just the way you are, George is apologetic, I'm sorry, Vivian, it was a foolish bank robbery, the whole thing was really pretty funny, he pats her hand and kisses her cheek, you'd better give them your ticket and get on board, now, you don't want to miss your flight, Vivian can't tear herself away from him, I'm already going to miss my flight, she sniffs, why was it funny, the robbery, I mean you can tell me, it was a non-cash bank, George laughs, that's why, I pranked you, babe, Vivian suddenly miffed again, what she says, George laughs again, I couldn't even take out my own money, isn't that funny finally, Vivian smiles, that was really stupid, lover boy, really stupid, George is slightly abashed but unrepentant, I guess some things are meant to happen that way, some things just don't go according to plan and besides, I didn't know, either, it was my first time, but Vivian only scolds him, bad boy, you're a bad boy, George Schaefer they kiss, I didn't know how to tell you, he mutters, I enjoyed our conversation, though, she smiles, George smiles with her, I'm an idiot, he says, a complete idiot, she agrees, George watches as Vivian walks through the flight tunnel door of the airplane, she disappears, George walks back to his car, he's talking to himself again, we had fun while it lasted, she never came back to America, I told her she might not like it here after Paris, and Brussels, and Rome, after all the dizziness and excitement of that sophisticated jet set life, after the whirl and glitter of the stylish fashionable chick, she might never come back to America, she might never come back, to me, in some completely different big city, George and Vivian are completely different people, this Vivian wears a stunning blue turtleneck, a long blue skirt, and blue rimmed glasses, her stylish chick clothes and faux European accent are quietly rapturous, George wears a blue pinstripe suit and an outlandish paisley tie that doesn't quite cover his bulging paunch, George is slightly graying but Vivian still has the flaming frizzy red hair and svelte hourglass figure of her misspent youth, George rides up alone to his swank in a city penthouse apartment, carrying a small bonsai tree and a bag of chocolate kisses, at the 33rd floor the elevator stops, the elevator door opens and Vivian gets in, it's just like deja vu all over again, isn't it George suavely strikes up a conversation, I believe we've met before, haven't we, somewhere perhaps in Paris, Prague, 
Schenectady Vivian smiles but doesn't answer. She's obviously struggling for words. Haven't I seen you somewhere before George goes on? Maybe on the Riviera, Rio, or in my dreams? Perhaps George is the epitome of a sophisticated urban airplay boy. What's your sign he asks slyly. I'm a Gemini. You must be George smiles mysteriously. No, don't tell me. Let me guess. To answer your questions, the francophone Vivian smiles again. I am, obviously. How you say, a French girl. Je parle français, tout court. And, the English, it is, for me how you say? Très difficile so, George deftly picks up Vivian's cues. What part of France are you from? Saint Louis, Cincinnati, Notre Dame, or, maybe, Quiche Lorraine. Fortunately, Vivian completely fails to catch his drift. I have been in your United States for five months now, she says, obviously excited to have a sophisticated gentleman like George to talk to among so many swarming, sweaty, belching barbarians. I love your summer weather. To swim, I love to stay how you say in shape. With me, I am just, what do you call that? I just love the chocolate. You're her she kisses, she grins widely, simply ravishing to meet you. George kisses her hand, his eyes fall to her brightly painted toes and stylish feet. Who does your toes George gushes? I just love your pedicure. Can I have your phone number? Or, am I being too forward oh? You Americans Vivian simpers. You are so naive, but so charming. Vivian's mannerisms and accent shift to a slightly sinister zia garbor, as she hands George a slip of paper. Here you are, darling, my card. Please call my agent. Perhaps, we can arrange a rendezvous? Oh, my God. George falls to his knees. You are too, too kind. Perhaps I might kiss your feet please to make arrangements with my agent. Finally, George snaps out of his wild reverie, resuming his sophisticated, suave manner. He elegantly requests Vivian's home address and phone number. She scribbles something on a business card and presses it into his hand. Immediately, the elevator door opens at the 66th floor and Vivian walks hurriedly away down the romantically lit penthouse corridor. George dazedly scans the business card. It reads, P.S. I don't know why I want my home address, but here it is. For some strange reason, I trust you. I believe in fate. Call me, Vivian. George has already missed his floor. The elevator door slams shut and the elevator rumbles and rattles downward again. On their first date, George and Vivian drive onto the interstate southbound, into New Jersey. George wants to show this elegant, French mademoiselle the real America and the real Americans who populate it, right here in Passaic, Hoboken, Parsippany, and Patterson. And Vivian's eager to impress this well-dressed, mysterious man about town who epitomizes for her the American dream, which she too heartily believes in. The statuesque French torch singer with the spiky hairdo and sculptured robes, who sings the glittering promise of freedom, liberty, and equality, banality, mediocrity, Vivian now looks slightly younger, with her sophisticated, elegant clothes and heavy pancake makeup, she resembles a Lauren Bacall, a Catherine Hepburn, George can't get enough, as he drives, Vivian leans back in the reclining passenger seat staring out the black tinted window, she rests her head on a throw pillow and resumes speaking her fractured French, George, darling, Vivian purrs, you are so very, how you say Richard, eh? You are supposed to be a good American host, you know, like our Jerry Lewis, your movie star, but instead, I come here and you rob the bank, you kill someone, maybe and we are always on the run, where's the America I see in the movies, where is what you call, the American dream George is wearing a 50s gangster get up, snap rim fedora, dark suit, and dark tie. He sneers at Vivian under his low hat brim and smokes incessantly, but when he speaks, his voice is surprisingly calm, bland, and matter-of-fact, like a TV newsman. Well, you know, the government, the government controls our movies, Vivian. The government is into organized crime, the government is organized crime, and the government, well, the government looks out for its own. Why, just look at that financial bailout racket, the colossal national debt and who services the national debt. You know, I think it's easier to commit robbery in the US by setting up a big bank rather than holding up a bank clock. People give liberally to big corporations and big financial financial institutions the bigger the better. George's nondescript, flat-toned voice trails off. Vivian laughs a very dry, friend laugh. You are so very funny, my little one. In France, it is very different. France is the country where the money, it falls apart. How you say, poof. 
Oh, the French, George the French, we are so je ne sais quoi, you know yeah, I know about the French, George deadpans, you can't trust the Frank and you can't tear the toilet paper, while George shakes his head, Vivian just keeps on laughing almost hysterically, finally, George cuts her off, but, seriously, Vivian, you know, he says, there's always been something fishy about the French, abruptly, Vivian stops laughing and becomes sophisticated, languid, and blasé once more, we, my little one, you are so right, she waves a slim black arm, where I come from, it's so, so, I hate it, everyone, they complain all the time, about everything, nothing, George knows, thank god it's not like that, here in America or not yet, anyway, in America, we still have seasons four of them and all in the right order, but, France, now, France, there's no winter in France, no summer and here in America, we have morals, there are no morals in France, either of the shooting a quick look at Vivian, George realizes that he might have offended her francophile sentiments and Parisian sensibility, apart from that, though, he continues before she can answer, I think it's a fine country, de France, and de fine people, too, de Gaulle, and Marianne, and, who's it, Mendes France, Pierre Mendes France, yes, the French, he pauses, diplomatically, seeking words to express his profound admiration and eternal ardor for the Fourth Republic, they gave us the Statue of Liberty, you know, he says, and Louisiana, where would we be without Louisiana but Vivian doesn't answer, she's still seductively daydreaming of Parisian cafes and street scenes, mais oui, she murmurs, Paris, is the cafe of Europe at the word cafe, George immediately snaps awake, his black rimmed eyeballs pop open, and he grips the steering wheel with white knuckles, oh, god, yes he snorts, Paris, the cafes, the coffee the francophone, Vivian, shares his passion for Bon Vivant, she blushes, we she says, we must stop for coffee, non taking a deep drag on his cigarette and letting the smoke curl out his nose, George pulls himself together again, now he's perfectly cool, calm, in control, perfect, he says, it's still morning, sweetheart, it's morning in America, and there's a little place I know, just around here, where we can get a good black cup of joe, my little French kumquat, Vivian swoons, you are so suave, so romantic after their drive, George sits in his briskly upholstered, crowded office, computers, monitors, and electronics fill this elaborate office space, it's fit for a pin-striped, bow-tie-wearing, traditional pipe-smoker a great tycoon or CEO, but George is dressed down, sporty, casual, as he sits handwriting a passionate letter, he's still slightly dazed from his fatal meeting with the mysterious, exotic Vivian Babylon, so, even though he's in his usual office routine, he can't really make himself work, I prefer snail mail, George is whispering to himself, as if talking to Vivian, there's something more meaningful about the whole act of writing to someone special, taking out the pen, feeling the handmade paper, personalizing the print, smudging the fingerprints, sticking the stamp and licking the envelope, George shivers with scarcely suppressed excitement, I like the whole idea that Vivian and I are taking our sweet time getting to know one another, we are keeping the pace of our little romantic affair discreetly slow, what with the male and me, there's nothing I want less than another damned relationship that flies on too fast, but this thing with Vivian, it's something special, meaningful, real, I can just feel it, the enormous wooden door to George's office abruptly swings open, on the front of the door, there's an elaborately embossed sign, George Schaefer Enterprises George Gust, CEO and below that, a print out, long term investor in a short term world in steps is male marks, George's male secretary, he's around 35 years old, flustered, disheveled, with messy hair and a loose tie, he's sweating profusely and his sleeves are rolled up, he brusquely storms in, oblivious to George's romantic passion, George marks shouts, all hell's broken loose on the floor, Intercoastal is taking a dive, it's a two dollar stock now, what'll we do, we're ruined, George's perfectly calm, cool, collected, although slightly peeved, how many times have I told you, is male George's lip curls with his withering scorn, knock first, sorry, sir, Marks answers, but George cuts him off, Marks, I bought that stock at 50 cents, George speaks clearly, as if talking to a lunatic or idiot, whatever I do, I'll make a killing, now get lost, 
Can't you see I'm in the middle of something really important after his bewilderment wears off? Ismail Marks sees the shy smile behind George's witheringly curled lips. What's this Marks asks, gathering courage? Another one of your peculiar obsessions? Another of your curious perplexities? Whatever happened to the online dating, you must have made the moves on a pen pal. Is she hot? Is this a hookup? Three other associates in George Schaefer Enterprises, sometimes called the guys, stylish young men in their early twenties, approach the door. Their eyes widen with jealousy and curiosity. When George notices the peepers peering through his door, he discreetly covers his love letter. With an imperious gesture, he chases them out of the office. Guys, get lost, but the guys don't scare easily. Mr. Romantic. They call us Dreamboy, the poet, a modern Casanova. George slams the enormous wooden door on his not-so-secret admirers. He tries to pick up writing his romantic billet doubts, but he can't recapture the passionate mood of before. Somewhere outside the office door, several different alarm clocks ring indistinctly. The whole scene changes once again. In George's current fantasy, he and Vivian's new age yuppie McMansion has blown out of proportion. It is now the size of a bustling metropolitan airport or the heavily fortified presidential palace of some scarcely populated underdeveloped country. Wait, let's not exaggerate. It's only George and Vivian's American Dream Palace. It's not Versailles, the Taj Mahal, or Walmart. In fact, it's probably only a little larger than some Central European fiefdoms or Central American banana republics. Beside the Olympic swimming pool George reclines on a hammock in freshly laundered sweats and a matching headband, reading a letter to himself. On the front lawn, Vivian is giving a press conference interview to a whole core of rapt, indolent reporters. As far as my most intriguing quality, hum she ponders the question profoundly, pursing her pretty lips and furrowing her brow. I guess I'd have to say it is my unending ability to smile outwardly even if my heart is being broken. Inscrutably, George smiles, surveying the well-maintained grounds of his enormous estate. George jogs along a tree-lined path with several servants scurrying along beside him trying to keep up. Among them a scantily clad Vivian trots along resplendent in bikini top and tight shorts. And I just wanted to say, George thank you. Thank you for the bonsai tree and the bag of kisses. I don't know how I can ever thank you enough. George waves a limp-wristed hand, as if to say, it's nothing. And Vivian's panting, panting just to keep up. On the scarcely used tennis courts, George swings his high-strung racket and volleys green tennis balls from a serving machine. Dozens of fluorescent green tennis balls bubble on the green pavement. On the other side of the net Vivian stretches and practices her serve, waiting to be beaten again by George's blazing game. And I enjoy the outdoors, too, especially when I'm challenged by a brisk, invigorating game of tennis. Vivian's voice echoes across the court. I think it would be a pleasant way to meet each other for the first time. Vivian Babylon is natural beauty, set against the plush, ornamental gardens and bosky tree-lined vistas of her and George's dream house. She is in green silk evening dress and George is in white tail tux and black tie. They take a romantic stroll together, holding hands. They flash big smiles, prancing and dancing with playful, sexy energy. Before them glistens an enormous goldfish bond with white foamed fountains, tumbling waterfalls, and a wide pathway where the white shafted sunlight leads through the old white oak and black elm trees, sweeping her off her feet. George picks Vivian up and carries her away. Dashingly, he brings her to the goldfish pond and pretends to throw her in. Swept away, Vivian wraps her arms around his neck and smiles into his eyes. Oh, George, she whispers, marry me. George pulls an oversized jewelry case out of his white tuxedo pocket. He flashes a 50-carat diamond engagement ring before Vivian's dazed eyes. On his knees, he removes the brilliantly gleaming engagement ring and tries to put it on Vivian's faintly glowing and slim ring finger. No, dear, I insist. You go first, he says. Repeat after me, through sickness and health, through richer or poorer, for better or worse, through whatever crap the whole world chucks at us. I love you, Vivian Babylon. Vivian speechless with adoration. Well, I guess, I love you, too. George Schaefer, she falls into his arms, or whatever she says, they kiss. It's George and Vivian's honeymoon night, the blithering consummation of their sacred marriage, the blighted blush of their wild love affair, the perfect night of passion and betrayal to seal the pact of their connubial bliss. In the elegant master bedroom with a big white and red canopy bed, the white fluorescent lights are still on. George Schaefer and Vivian Babylon make passionate love together, softly, gently, and slowly, building to the torrid peak of their erotic lovemaking, the perfect pedicure. With his lips, George massages the slim, white arches of Vivian's feet. His inflamed tongue passes up her legs to her calves. 
to her thighs, then back down to her feet and toes which shine with a perfect dark red polish. Vivian writhes and moans with unspeakable pleasure. Oh, George, George, George. She finally gasps. I can't believe you've never given a girl a pedicure. You did such a beautiful job. A perfect job. How can I ever thank you beside himself with ecstasy? George looks up shyly as Vivian slips off her gossamer chemise and push-up bra. I'll tell you later, he answers dazedly. Lights on or off the American dream couple gaze deeply into each other's eyes. With a single breath, a single heart, a single tongue, speaking together, they say off, breaking down in hysterical laughter they roll down to the bed together, blissfully laughing, forever after. On the white sand beach beneath the blue full moon, George and Vivian's excruciatingly passionate lovemaking continues with a brisk skinny dipping ramp and feverish roll among the beached blankets. At the San Clement Town Center and Shopping Emporium, the enormous black asphalt parking lot is empty except for one black jeep. The driver's side door of the jeep is open. Vivian and George sway slowly to the wafting music, their perfect bodies sculpting and molding together in romantic passion. On the white sand beach beneath a sultry white sun, Vivian and George still in their elegant wedding attire, walk playfully along the windswept shore. They are waving digital cameras and flashing candid camera pictures back and forth at each other. They are laughing and happy, so much in love. On the old deserted fishing pier George and Vivian stroll leisurely along the boardwalk. Wearing her black silk wedding dress, Vivian tosses silver coins into the splashing water. Bemused, George stands silently, admiringly, behind her. Oh, George Vivian gushes, you don't know, how I've dreamed, how I've waited for this, our honeymoon. Oh, George Porridge, I want us to stay this close together forever, let's not drift too far away. George, please profoundly sensing Vivian's deepest desires, George attempts to comfort and console her, to soothe the passionate heartache within her secret soul. Tonight, he whispers huskily, is your night again, Vivian darling, George takes her in his strong, flabby arms, whatever you wish for, Vivian dearest, whatever you dream for, I will do for you, your wish, your dream, is my command, it's exactly the kind of offer that always gets Georgie in trouble, well, now that you mention it, George darling, Vivian says, since you offered, you know I really wanted to see that Tony Krishna play, at the Screaming Angel Theatre of the Absurd, but you said it was sold out it was sold out, George deadpans, tongue in cheek, but for you, Vivian George, Vivian swoons, you're just so-so, irresistible George smirks, later that night at the Screaming Angel Theatre, George and Vivian sit in their own invisible studio audience, watching themselves, it's as if they are alone in the theatre, in the centre seats, the only spectators in their own private psychodrama, George slips his arm around Vivian, she snuggles closer, you see, Vivian darling, George whispers breathily in her ear, the whole play is sold out, I bought all the tickets they had, and they are all playing, just for us, oh George, baby, Vivian whispers back, you're, perfect, she kisses him, but George is too wrapped up in the spectacle on stage to respond. She hushes Vivian. It's starting, on the theater stage. The surrealist psychodrama has just begun. An old couple tramp on stage. Two men, married, gay. They sit to eat an invisible meal with real forks, knives and spoons, and soon their son, George, joins them. Uncle Benny, the son says, them people out there in the invisible studio audience probably think, just from the way we're sitting here, that you're both my daddies. I mean, Uncle Benny, you're George the first, and Uncle Eric, you're George the second, or something, or maybe, Dad, you could be George number two. All three Georges laugh hysterically. Walking off, Uncle Benny and Eric hold hands while the son watches. In the rollicking humor and action-packed excitement, Eric forgets his line. He stutters, ah, yeah, for some inexplicable reason Uncle Benny finds this hilarious. He can barely control his laughter. If you would all excuse me, please, he says, trying to hold back his snorts and hollers, I seem I've forgotten my lines, too. If you will all just let me read from the script, I'll be fine. From the next scene on, I promise George and Vivian are wide-eyed, stupefied, baffled, uncomprehending. The theater falls silent. Strange, hollow sounds echo through the amphitheater, like whispers and screams heard in dreams. The two hear Eric's scuffling footsteps as he walks off stage. Eric snowballs into a hysterical laughing frenzy as he tries to re-enter the stage. He's laughing his ass off, really hard, until finally he collapses, writhing and wriggling on the invisible stage. It's totally gut-busting. 
Several minutes pass, the invisible studio audience squirms and twitches in their invisible seats. Still Eric can't stop himself from laughing, and neither can the two spectators, George Schaefer and Vivian Babylon. He's the funniest thing Vivian and George have ever seen in their lives. He just keeps laughing and laughing. Now Uncle Benny and the kid get in on the hilarity, just like Vivian and George. The whole invisible studio audience is cracking up. This guy is pathetically comedic, he just can't get enough of himself. The two self-satisfied spectators, Vivian and George, leave the theater a few hours later still uproariously laughing. As they step outside the invisible theater doors, Vivian suddenly realizes something. Oh, my purse, she shouts. But George, our George, the original George, the real George, George 1, 2, 3. Is perfectly calm, unflustered, unruffled. Wait here, his stern manly voice commands. I'll be right back. With a skip and a jump, he darts back into the theater. Obediently, the delectable, desirable Vivian waits patiently outside. As George hastily makes his way back out of the theater, he holds up a purse up, showing that it's safe, supremely serene, beautiful, and beatified. Vivian smiles, but some fatal shadow of disaster makes George cry out. Hey, he shouts, watch out as they stand near the white shadowed street. A sinister black car comes crashing across the curb and hits Vivian from behind. There's a terrible scream, the blackbirds that were watching fly away. Three weeks later, George is devastated by the unforeseeable tragedy but still trying to display a stoic courage. For Vivian's sake, he's visiting Vivian in San Clement Memorial Hospital, anxiously awaiting the white-suited doctor's post. What prognosis, as he paces the waiting room floor, chain-smoking cigarettes and searching the white-veiled doctor's eyes for clues, he wonders, will a supremely desirable, delectable Vivian Babylon ever awaken from her sleepless coma to dissolve the watching, weighing world with her eternal beauty once again? Finally the white-coated doctors deliver their verdict, Vivian Babylon is fully handicapped, she's awake, alive and breathing, but almost completely paralyzed, everything but her arms and her bust, from the neck up, her once supple, shapely torso and slim legs, including, tragically, her feet, fail to respond to her whispered commands, I'm so sorry, George, Vivian sobs, no more pedicures, George, struggling not to break down completely, takes a delicate hands in his strong grip, it's, it's, he whispers, quadriplegia, no, George, one of the white-veiled doctors corrects him, quadriplegia means all for limbs, what Vivian has is only paraplegia, that is two limbs, thank you, doc, George sniffles, I'd forgotten my Latin suffixes, but before the white-coated doctor can elucidate Latin prefixes, Vivian Babylon's bolac sing-song voice breaks into their whispered conversation, you don't need to deal with this, she proclaims fighting back tears, George, don't sacrifice your life for me, go ahead. George, pretend I'm dead, marry Cleo, I'll be fine, overcome by emotion Vivian smiles beneath her tears, sobbing himself, George thinks furiously, she always said she could smile through anything, addressing Vivian again, George swears his love, baby, I'll stay with you forever, he vows, I already told you that Vivian, my love, George and Vivian lock lips in a passionate but platonic kiss, George sobs in a highly arched cathedral, kneeling down in a front row pew with scintillating shafts of multicolored light falling on him from the stained glass windows, the black robed minister steps in to console him, offering a private communion, a prostrate George accepts the prophet wafer on his extended tongue, in the flesh spots and dives of a big city, George is sorely tempted by strong drink and the lascivious women who come onto him, testing his devotion to the bedridden Vivian, giving into a brief moment of temptation, he steps up to the glittering bar and sees his slightly haggard, one face in the full-size mirror, the bartender is wiping the counter with a white towel, what'll it be, Mackie proposes, straight, no chaser, on the rocks a sexy, well-endowed brunette who is similar in superficial appearance to the sublime Vivian Babylon approaches George at the bar, will you buy me a drink, too she rubs up against him, handsome, in a supreme act of strength and will, George refuses both the strong drink and the lascivious woman with apparent ease and shyly eyes the door, looking for a way out, I've got to go, he mutters to the disappointed Eva, sorry, maybe next time, but we all know, now, don't we, there's never a next time, after an incredibly long, agonizing year of painful therapy and massage treatment, Vivian Babylon recovers from her tragic accident enough to start performing her private practice and making brief forays outside of the San Clement Memorial Hospital, so George, encouraged and heartened by Vivian's progress,
Princess, swears to resurrect her from her bed and convalescence and finally release her from her captive hospital room, the white-coated doctors and physical therapists are skeptical, but George and Vivian's love is strong, and eventually, we know, don't we, love overcomes all barriers, love heals all wounds, love conquers all, Vivian, wobbling slightly but still standing on her own two feet, enters the physical therapy room of the San Clement Memorial Hospital convalescent ward using her miracle prosthetics, her devoted, obedient George is watching ten years on the flickering TV, a discarded newspaper is scattered on the well-worn sofa beside him, quickly rising and throwing down his modern maturity, George gets up from the couch, passionately, he kisses Vivian on the cheek, good morning, angel, he smiles, but he's surprised and stunned when Vivian playfully takes exception to her affectionate pet name, princess, dummy she banters, I'm not an angel, yet, okay George controls his temper although he's still stinging from the rebuke, whatever you say, bet, he apologizes, contrite, but I didn't forget, today's your birthday, oh, George, Vivian gushes, you remembered I'm taking you out on the boat today, he continues, then we'll check out your new prosthetics, and tonight I'll make passionate love with my wife, yes you, Vivian, I'm offering 1000 kisses as a birthday gift, you just have to tell me where you'd like them, despite her prosthesis and paraplegia, Vivian still smiles, infinitely seductive, yet innocently sweet, alone on the open sea George pilots the sleek streamlined speedboat at full roar, the white foamed way crashing and plunging behind the propellers, alone, he's lost in thought, he's a man on a mission screaming over the deep-throated engine's dull roar, his splattering tears mixing with the splashes of seawater from the bay, the windshield wipers thrash the falling droplets, when he pulls up to the dock, however, George's face is calm and smooth, with perfect solicitude and supreme devotion, George helps the handicapped Vivian down into the bilge, his divine love is evident in every gesture and move he makes, the prosthetic Vivian is self-assured, confident, and ready to seize the day and make the world her oyster once again, George, honey, she says, I want to go out on that boogie ball thing, George is proud of her recovery as the proof of his love and their strength, and is pleased to see the fully recovered Vivian taking on the challenges of their future life together, whatever you say, bet, he beams, this is your day, baby, I'm just here to give you everything you want, my angel, sardonically, Vivian laughs, you forgot again, dummy she scolds, and your princess, remember, I like it so much better when you call me princess George smiles, they stop, frozen in passion, George and Vivian kiss, but then she breaks away, laughing, come on she shoves him playfully, it's my birthday, let's boogie board, he laughingly agrees and ties off the board, gingerly helping her down the ladder to the water, then he runs to the wheel of the sleek, streamlined speedboat and looks back at her over his shoulder, basking in George's gaze, Vivian's excited, almost childlike, in a shrill voice, she calls out, okay, I'm ready, let's go casting a wistful look over his shoulder, George calls back, you ready back there, I'll go slow, full speed ahead, Captain Vivian cries, he slowly accelerates, checking behind him with each increase in speed. As the sleek, streamlined speedboat reaches full steam, Vivian gives George a big thumbs up. Faster, faster she shouts. I want to feel the sea wind in my hair still George is careful, maybe overly cautious. Not yet, he cries. Wait until we're further out. The white-capped inlet between the bay and the sea stretches before them. The sleek, streamlined speedboat, with Vivian trailing behind, reaches the open sea. Vivian clings tightly to the boogie board, her numb legs dragging along behind her. Captain George steers the booking and plunging speedboat through the white capped inlet. Behind him, completely inaudible above the roar of the high-speed motor and the crashing waves, Vivian cries out, I just love this summer weather the white blonde-haired mermaid Vivian, all smiles, cries out again still unheard above the screaming outboard motor noise and wave roar, you know I'd just love to swim, on the plunging and bucking buggy board, Vivian slowly loses her grip, slowly, silently, she slides off the slippery board, sinking down into the chill, fathomless waters, above the thundering waves and the roaring motors, George can't hear her shrill girlish voice crying out her last words, I love to stay in shape, I believe in fate on the high arched poop deck, 
Captain George still steers as the boat dead ahead, oblivious to the tragedy and disaster in his wake. The throaty roar of the magnificent twin outboard engines fills his mind with power and speed. Vivian struggles to take a few teeth-clenching gasps above the surging seawater. She futilely tries to grab onto the board, but it slowly slips away. She gasps feebly and then goes down for the third time. I'd have to say it's my unending ability to smile, she thinks. With wild sea spray in his eyes, Captain George casts a last look back behind the boat. He sees the plunging boogie board bouncing upside down in the white-capped wake. Thank you. George Boo Boo, for the bonsai tree and the bag of chocolate kisses, he remembers her voice. Silently, with a wide open mouth and bulging eyeballs, George screams a silent scream of agony and despair. Captain George yanks the kiss out of the ignition. He checks for life preservers, life jackets, and then freezes as a slow-lit awning realization strikes him. Shit, he curses. I don't even know how to swim. Oh, Vivian, oh, Vivian, oh Vivian, don't do this to me, Vivian. Not now, not forever. How can I go on living with myself knowing I'd have to say, it's my unending ability to smile, she thinks, breathing seawater, a pleasant way to meet each other for the first time. On the white cap beach, the bereaved George takes a long, self-torturing walk. Every step he takes in the slippery wet sand is staggering, agonizing. On the bucking and plunging speedboat, Captain George rides hard into the stormy night. He's trying to get over the tragic death of his ex-wife. He's moving on the best he can. At George Schaefer Enterprises, the guy's faces are all downcast, drooping, glum, balefully glaring around the morose staff room. George suspiciously stares them down. There's a long uncomfortable silence. Finally George speaks. Well, come on guys, get out there and trade hollers. Intercoastal is at 24.50. Why don't you dump half at a quarter there's an answering silence from the guys. George has to blast her and bluff to break their sluggish spell. Snap out of it, guys he shouts. Now get out there and hit the floor slightly embarrassed. His male Marks approaches George. George, he asks sympathetically, shyly, are you alright staring Marks down? George smiles a frozen white-toothed smile. See this smile, Marks George boasts. It's a skill I've learned. It gets me through times when the going gets tough. I just smile in the face of tragedy and disaster and the whole world has to smile with me, whether it wants to or not. With these inspirational words George claps his mail on the back. Listen, Marks, he says, things are fine. Now, we've got to get the energy reports finished by the end of the day, so let's get on with it. His mail Marks reluctantly shuffles out of George's enormous office, sneaking a glance back for one last look. On the big wooden office desk there's a gold-framed wedding photo of George Schaefer and Vivian Babylon, both happy as all hell. It's an old, dingy, broken-down luncheonette on some big city downtown street. White fluorescent lights beat down on the chip formica countertops and the swiveling lunch counter stools. Through the big picture window we see the half-dozen regular customers and a few walk-ins slouched and hunched over half-eaten plates and steamy coffee cups. The waitress in a white and red dress and beehive hairdo stands waiting, taking orders. A young man clumsily bundled up in a green duffel coat, slacks, and utility boots walks past the luncheonette entrance smoking a pipe. He stops, thinks about going in, and then shrugs and turns away. An old beat-up domestic car drives past the young man and toots the horn jauntily. Someone inside, waves, the young man waves back. He doesn't even notice the scruffy, dirty old bum who elbows past him and makes for the luncheonette door. George is now a disheveled old homeless man wearing an unbuttoned, olive green, Vietnam veteran's jacket and Salvation Army shoes. He's filthy and disgusting but he still has a confident self-assured step. Without hesitating George opens the entrance door to the luncheonette. Two middle-aged women shoot dirty looks at George as they brush past him on their way out. George walks in without noticing them and slouches over to the counter watching a couple in the corner with the shadows of his eyes. The man is in his early twenties. He's slick, handsome, athletic and bored. He's wearing a college sweatshirt. The girl is slightly older, but still pretty. She's coat cute, but still insecure. A couple of large shopping bags sit next to her on the bath seat. Travis, I'm talking to you Ashley grimly purses her lips. Wake up. What the hell's wrong with you? But Travis scarcely notices. Huh? Nothing. He slurs. Nothing's the matter with me. Are you coming with me to Julie's party? Ashley looks worried. It's tonight. Travis shrugs. Ashley. Travis starts to say you. No but Ashley cuts him off. 
who's more important she demands pettishly, me or your friends, we were invited to Julie's party two weeks ago but, Ashley, Travis starts to say again, I promised but again Ashley cuts him off, you promised me she shrilly pouts, bored, George turns his head to the man sitting next to him at the counter, Mr. Wilton, George knows that Mr. Wilton is Mr. Wilton because he's one of the regulars, dressed in a 1950s style grey flannel three-piece suit, Mr. Wilton reads the Wall Street Journal over lunch every day, after scanning the stock prices he stuffs the paper in his brown leather briefcase that sits on the booster seat next to him, and lifts up a packet of official looking papers, Mr. Wilton mumbles some gravelled pseudo-cursing, he gets tense when George turns his face to him, like George is butting into something he is going with the waitress or something, the whole rest of the counter is empty, although she's a completely different person, it's obvious that the waitress is Vivian, she pours George a steaming cup of black coffee, unlike the 30-ish new age Vivian or the older francophone Vivian, this Vivian is slightly plain looking, plain speaking, monotonous, dull, and distinctly unoriginal, she's a waitress in a greasy spoon cafe, what did you expect, Bridget Bardo, how are we doing, how Vivian asks, cold enough for you what do you want me to do, predict the weather George snaps back, although he's not really being unfriendly, he's just a bit surly all the time now, on account of something, I can't do anything about it that's right, Vivian agrees, placating him, you can't, everybody talks about the weather, George complains, he leaves the sentence dangling, after George's outburst Mr. Wilton slides over one seat to avoid any more contact with the bum, he knocks over his coffee cup in the process, damn it Mr. Wilton curses, spill the damn coffee Vivian comes over with a not too clean looking rag, she wipes up the mess, Mr. Wilton, you ought to be more careful, Vivian scrolls gently, damn it Mr. Wilton curses, it's all over my mortgage papers, I'll get you a fresh cup, Vivian soothes his wrath, it's no big deal, she fills a fresh new cup of coffee for Mr. Wilton, she's the matchmaker, the peacemaker, the go-betweener, she's the woman in waiting who greets men at the door and serves their manly needs and sends them back into the cold, cruel world again, a little warmer and a little less peeved, usually, while Vivian clucks in sympathy and pours another cup of coffee, the big glass door swings open and two young kids enter, George slowly turns his head to examine them, well groomed and dressed conservatively, but still looking slightly depressed, the two mope their way inside, one of them walks with an old-fashioned black cane, George knows them, too, the one with the cane is Adam and the other is John, the two pause at the first booth, but decide to sit next to George at the lunch counter, Vivian notices they are looking sort of down and beat, hey boys, Vivian greets them, aren't you going to sit at your regular table it's just not the same, John tries to smile, since I know, it seems like only yesterday, Vivian commiserates, I remember Adam chokes back tears, he stands up, I'll be right back, he says to John, not looking at anyone, Adam limps to the back of the diner door at the restrooms, without missing a beat, Vivian switches her services to John, there's fresh coffee today, she says, it's nice and hot, the white and red smiling waitress turns to pour the boys some coffee, George slides over a seat to sit next to Mr. Wilton again, after her, but he whispers, Mr. Wilton is taken aback, excuse me he says, were you talking to me, why don't you mind your own business, Mac, and I'll take care of mine, don't knock yourself out, buddy, George snorts, ever hear the phrase don't work too hard if you keep on worrying like that you'll never get anything done, Mr. Wilton becomes ruffled and defensive, he seems to grow a little in his jacket, hey, I work like this all the time he snorts, 12 hours a day, 6 days a week, and in a year, that's like, let's see, 12 times 6 times 54, that's, Mr. Wilton looks to Vivian for validation in his calculations, but all he gets is a smirk and a blank stare, what is this, Grand Central Station he objects, can't a guy even get a simple cup of coffee here without some low life, some deadbeat, some, some stumble bum getting in my face Mr. Wilton pokes George with his pointed finger, hey, butteroo, George protests, you'd better think twice before you put me down, look, see there, right there in your hand, three fingers pointed back at yourself, see Mr. Wilton checks his distemper and decides to loosen up a bit, ah, uh, so, what is this now he jokes, 
fortune cookies for breakfast yup, George grins, the kitchen was empty, except for a smart cookies, warming up to George's friendliness, Mr. Wilton transforms apoplexy to apology, sorry bud, he says, I didn't mean to snap at you, it's just, business hasn't been so great lately, George shrugs, don't sweat it, he says, I don't worry about it, George changes the subject, so what line of work are you in he asks jovially, Mr. Wilton grimaces, I'm working hard or hardly working, Mr. Wilton bluffs, that's what all the girls used to ask me before I got married, he slaps George on the back, but hell, after I was married it was different, the women, they had to know what size my bank roll was, because I run the biggest bank in town, Mr. Wilton guffaws and chokes on his own joke, George slaps him on the back until he stops coughing, then George picks up Mr. Wilton's BMW key chain and twirls it around his finger, well, he starts to say, you don't seem to be doing too bar, but Mr. Wilson cuts him off, yeah, you could say I'm doing alright, okay he snorts again, as good as anyone else these days, George laughs inappropriately, okay, Mr. W here's another fortune cookie for you, you should work to live, not live to work, you know yeah, you know, I always say you have to stop and smell the roses Mr. W blusters, I mean, what's the point of planting roses if you never take the time to smell them George beams inscrutably, simple, huh, but sweet, he says, just like a fortune cookie in your dear Mr. Wilton takes a serious turn, it's like they say, son, it's all about reaping the fruits of your labor, or they used to say that, anyway, but when do I get my fruits, huh, tell me that, before George can snap back another sweet little fortune cookie of immortal wisdom, Mr. Wilton's huge cell phone rings, excuse me, he nods apologetically, I've gotta take this phone call, without getting up, Mr. Wilton takes the call, can he, I won't be coming in, Mr. Wilton says, no, not today, why don't you reschedule, just reschedule everything, no, not tomorrow, either, I'll tell you what, how about I call you, don't call me, Mr. Wilton shuts down the phone, George beams approval, see, Mr. Wilton George says, don't you feel so much better now Mr. Wilton smiles, you know, Mr. what's your name he says, you really made my day, George smiles satisfaction, don't mention it, he says, and I really do sound like a fortune cookie, how finally, Adam returns to the counter, you okay John asks, you all are right now, but Adam shrugs, I'm still alive, he says, I guess, John pokes and prods him playfully, hey, come on man he rips Adam, enjoy your java, get an edge, but Adam stays distinctly surly, I'm already stoned, he says, I've got my edge, go get your own, buddy boy, meanwhile, Ashley is still probing for Travis reactions, it's like trying to find the pulse in a pruned Danish, what's your problem, Travis Ashley pleads, why are you like this what are you talking about, like what Travis sneers, hey, I woke up and went shopping with you, didn't I, what more do you want what more do I want, what more do I want Ashley rants, you know damn well what I want, I'm sick of your stupid jokes and your surly attitude, you always act like I'm, just, so not important to you Travis sits up to make a big speech, listen, he starts to say, but before he can continue Travis forgets whatever he was going to say, whatever, Ashley he concludes, since Vivian's behind the counter picking up dirty dishes, it's up to George to be Mr. Hospitality, so he tugs on John's slumped shoulder, sorry for interrupting, but he smiles knowingly, lousy moods seem to be contagious today, I'm getting yours, do you mind if I but am glad to be distracted, Adam and John give George their undivided attention, where's Josh, George asks, if you don't mind my asking, Josh is dead, man, Adam deadpans, oh, I'm really sorry to hear that, bro, George says, sympathetically, but hey, you know, I know the feeling, hey, man, John says, you weren't even there, and you're not dead, Adam follows up, so just buzz off, but George is not bugged, and he doesn't buzz, you think I haven't been there he shoots back, you think I haven't done the John and Adam stared ups into George's red eyes, but still George is not bugged, it's just, guys, I've seen too many kids go down too soon, he sighs, I cope by remembering the good times, you guys really had some great times together, don't throw away the good times, don't let those memories die, either, Adam and John stare at George with obvious hostility, hey, man, he was our best friend, man John says, of course we had good times with him, that's just what I mean George cheers, keep those alive, keep the good times alive abruptly, Adam breaks down, distraught, oh, I, God, he confesses, it really was all my fault, the car skidded, there was black ice on the street, I couldn't stop, 
Don't take it out on yourself, man. Don't blame yourself George Plurts. How can it be your fault? Shit happens, and shit like that happens to everyone, everyone. So just think about it, as George, John, and Adam try to work out their deep grief and mourning for their beloved lost friend, Travis and Ashley are working up to a serious domestic episode. Ashley's stifled frustration and silent rage intensify, she points her well-manicured finger at the sulking Travis, still angry as all hell at his neglect and indifference. What do you mean, whatever, Travis she rants on, don't give me that self-pitying garbage, for two years I've been dealing with your selfishness and I'm sick and tired of it, you hear me, I'm sick and tired of it but Travis of course, is still indifferent, Ashley, he sighs half-heartedly just, relax, you're making a scene, you know making a scene, making a scene Ashley shouts, I'll make a scene for you. Just you try to stop me she jumps to her feet, blown up twice life size with rage, and glares down at the incredible shrinking Travis. You know, Travis, she says with withering scorn, you're the most self-centered and shallow person I've ever known without flinching. Travis rests his arms on the back of the slick plastic booth. What about your old boyfriend Travis smirks? What's his name finally Ashley cracks? That's it, that's it she shouts. I've had it, we're finished like, whatever, babe. Travis shrugs, enraged, Ashley dumps her plate into Travis lap. He ducks his chicken and gravy spatter across his jeans and onto the vinyl of the seat and the hard tile floor. Ashley grabs her full shopping bags and storms toward the big glass door, but she trips on the floor mat and nearly falls before making her exit. Always the good Samaritan, George Mr. Hospitality, Schaefer reaches for some napkins on the counter and gallops over to Travis, helping him clean up a mess in his lap. Thanks, dude, Travis says, that chick is, like, crazy man, George takes a seat beside Travis, you really don't give a damn about her, do you Travis smirks, sarcastically, what a brilliant observation, he says, George knows, hey, when I was your age I didn't care about a thing, and I had everything going for me, and now look at me, I'm down and out, I'm a deadbeat, a bum Travis sneers, so now you're gonna tell me how looking back, you had this flashback or something and you saw, like, how you should have done things different, huh, not exactly, George stays calm, he's a shining beacon and quiet center of wisdom and wit amidst the chaos and confusion of the luncheonette, Travis scoffs, I got drafted, George begins, Travis begins to take interest, you mean you were sent to Vietnam or, something George continues speaking in his calm, passionless voice, two weeks later I was getting my head shaved, grabbing my ankles, bearing my butt and hauling a brand new rifle around, suddenly, I had to care, I had no choice, Travis perks up, yeah he says, I left my girl, my hometown, everything, I was stuck out in the jungle, and 10,000 little guys in black pajamas were trying to kill me, it was crazy, I had to start all over again from scratch when I got back home, it was tough putting the pieces back together, George pauses waiting for his harsh life lessons to sink in, Travis is silent, absorbing the message, George continues, we've all been through a lot, there's a lot of shit coming down and when it hits the fan, you have to do whatever you can to get by, you know, we need to get through it, whatever way we can, I want to learn to live through everything I can take, everything I can handle, just so I know I can take it, hopefully I'll even enjoy it, too, George has used up his whole stock of platitudes and aphorisms from the collective wisdom and wit of George Schaefer, yet, he goes on, so, George looks Travis in the eye, what gets you up in the morning, guy Travis sticks out his hand, my name's Travis, he says, I don't know, exactly, how about you well, if you haven't figured it out yet, George recommends, don't sweat it, George relaxes again, you're still young, Travis, George smiles, you probably hear that all the time, right, don't you, that your young Travis smiles back like he knows exactly where George is going with this, mm hum, he hums, nodding excitedly, so are you going to try and tell me you never felt anything for Ashley, not ever, what about in the beginning when you guys first met Travis yawns, shit, you know, I was just so intimidated by her, she's older and smarter, I felt stupid, clumsy, like a kid, I couldn't, I couldn't, I don't know the word, deliver, George finishes for him, Travis abruptly gets up out of his seat and slides it in under the water glass, hey man, I've got to go, he says, nice meeting you though, George butts in before the young man can bolt out the door, like I said, George says, you're still young, bud, don't make the mistakes I made, don't throw your life away, go call her, tell her you're sorry, 
Tell her exactly how you honestly feel, and see what happens. You really can't lose. It's a win-win situation, you'll just be doing the right thing. Yeah thanks, man. Travis is obviously smitten with gratitude, but I really gotta go. Travis sticks out his hand again. George clasps his palm in the death grip of the Brotherhood of Flawed Men and slaps Travis on the back. Don't mention it, George says. If you ever need anything right on, thanks. Travis says, but I didn't quite catch George cuts him off. It's Joe. He says, right on, Travis repeats. George and Travis do another brotherhood handshake. Travis can't quite break George's strong grip. Finally, Travis slaps George on the back and breaks free. Catch you later, bro, he says, and heads out of the cafe. Watching Travis leave George shakes his head and mutters to himself. Stupid kid, you know I was like that, too. Once, with Travis out of his sight, George approaches Vivian at the cash register. Vivian peers shyly at George. She won't meet his eyes. So, she says, you fixed that. Ha hey, babe. George says, I'm finished with that coffee now. George slaps a $5 bill on the white Formica countertop. Could I ask you a favor? He continues. Vivian smiles. Depends on what it is, she says. Name it. Next time, George wisecracks. I'd like it black as hell. George smiles at Mr. Wilton who has moved on to this month's copy of Sports Illustrated. He has his smiling face stuck in a chocolate ice cream sundae topped with a fudge brownie and whipped cream. Lost in a brave new world that was once much sadder and darker. Strong as life, George emphasizes. On the other side of the lunch counter Adam and John are holding their guts. Laughing as ice cream drips down their knuckles from the cones they grip tightly in their hands. Strong as death, George repeats. Justin Travis walks back into the luncheonette. He's clutching two quarters in his sweaty palm and trying to remember an important phone number. Do you have a payphone? He asks Vivian. Vivian tosses her frizzy red hair toward the back room. In the back, she says. By the restrooms, George smiles again. Sweet as love, he whispers seductively. Vivian gives him a sidelong look with her bright green eyes. Hum, she says, just like a cup of joe. George sets down his mug and abruptly the whole scene changes. Once again George is dressed in smart and professional business attire. He walks up the crowded street with a brown paper bag in his hands. The brown paper bag is just big enough to hold a small revolver. He stops in front of Dave's gun shop, which squats beneath the bright glow of a revolver in neon. Absentmindedly, George drops a set of keys and a bottle of Prozac on the white concrete sidewalk. They bounce slightly and then rest against the toe of his right shoe. From somewhere a single electric guitar note resonates. George bends over and picks up the keys and the bottle. He opens the Prozac bottle, removes two pills and swallows them down. He puts the keys back in his pocket. George walks on still absent-minded. The whole scene changes. George is riding the bus. He's sitting in an aisle seat. Sitting beside him is another Vivian, a completely new Vivian. This woman is sympathetic, maternal and middle-aged, wearing inexpensive Walmart variety clothing. Out of nowhere George starts talking. Do you like buses he asks, I mean, city buses, like this Vivian of the Walmart wardrobe smiles sympathetically at George, but says nothing, encouraged despite her silence to carry on his one-way conversation, George continues, I like buses, I like their smell, all those diesel fumes, they really get my heart pumping, George pauses in his monologue, then he strikes out in a completely different direction, not that I need to ride a bus, George sniffs, not with my money, Walmart Vivian smiles disbelievingly, condescendingly, at him, uh huh, sure, you have money she thinks, George notices Vivian rolling her eyes and blusters back, really, I'm worth millions, 25 million, in fact, George pauses again, but it's in trust, you know about trusts the Walmart Vivian stares out the window imagining that the conversation will end if she stops paying attention to it, but George goes on anyway, I didn't think so, he smugly remarks, most poor people don't, George glances across the aisle at another woman, this woman is a stunning blonde in her early twenties, but she's not Vivian, she's not even close to Vivian, floundering slightly in his own verbiage, George tries to bring the conversation back to the original subject, but I was talking about buses, he addresses the Walmart Vivian, wasn't other Vivian of the Walmart wardrobe glances back at him, friendly again, talking about buses is something she's suddenly happy to do even if George does all the talking, the thing is, George says, I really like buses, I really do, buses make me feel like I live in a big city you mean, the Walmart Vivian speaks for the first time, you don't live here I mean a real city, George emphasizes, you know, with skyscrapers and subways and garbage in the street, Vivian looks confused, but George plunges on, you know, like New York, 
George is displaying his sophistication, or London, or Brussels, even, Vivian tries desperately to keep up. I didn't know Brussels even had garbage, George smirks, every city has garbage, he says, especially big cities, yes, Vivian admits, I guess that's true, distracted, George glances away from Vivian to see the sleek stylish blonde across the aisle, he stares intently at her until finally she feels his stare, she glares back at him and angrily clutches her purse to her chest. George chuckles, she thinks I want her money, George laughs, me, Mr. George baby George shakes his head, stupidity like that, he shrugs, I used to get so mad, the Walmart Vivian stands up and clutches the hand grips, but not anymore, George adds, somewhat pleadingly, sorry, Mr. Vivian apologizes, this is my stop, George stares uncomprehendingly, he keeps talking to himself, I really don't get mad about anything anymore, George tries to convince himself, or hardly anything, anyway, um, Mr. Vivian is becoming peevish, I need to get off, still George stares at her blankly, could you let me out, Mr. She almost begs, she's pushing against George's shoulders and knees as he continues his self-obsessed soliloquy, you see she says, there it is, Walmart, that's my stop. The great shrine of middle American democracy beacons through the smog and debris of its vast black asphalt parking lot, as other passengers stand up in the aisles getting ready to disembark. The Vivian of the Walmarts is becoming increasingly desperate, almost ready to break down in a flurry of confusion of cheap hairspray and sticky deodorant, shedding blood, sweat, and tears. After a slight pause she says pleadingly, please George stands up and lets her into the aisle. She hurries up the bus and debarks at the crowded bus stop beneath the enormous sign. George sits back down again, he's left alone for several seconds mumbling, to himself. They used to call me a madman, George grumbles, a madman, I'm not a madman, and the young blonde woman across the aisle glances around the crowded bus as other Walmart passengers get on, looking for an empty seat far away from the crazy, mumbling man, a Natalie dressed older gentleman carrying a newspaper approaches George, he looks questioningly at the seat next to George, is that seat taken he asks, I'm not a madman, George repeats, really, I'm not, I really don't give a damn what you are mister, the older man says, I just want the seat, grudgingly, George stands up and gives the older man the window seat, I'm not mad, George keeps mumbling, really, good, the older man says, I'm glad for you, mister, he opens his newspaper and begins to read, madman, George goes on, it's an outdated term, anyway, the older man tries to ignore him, the same with lunatic, George adds, it's completely out of date, the Natalie dressed older man continues to ignore George, the stylish blonde woman glances even more nervously at him, we prefer mentally ill, George informs them both, or maybe schizophrenic, George pauses, or how about, George adds, nuts, the Natalie dressed older man nods at his newspaper, trying to convince George he's not even listening to this one-way conversation, George chuckles, people used to be really mean to me, he says, but not anymore, the Natalie dressed older man sighs and gets to his feet, oh, is this your stop, George asks, the older man doesn't answer, he just pushes past George, George slides over to the window seat, now people are kind to me, George is talking to the window, which doesn't respond, like my nephew for example, he's only seven and already he understands bra sizes, a fat lady with a plethora of bulky packages sits down next to George, I didn't understand bra sizes until I was married, George explains to the fat lady, and then my wife explained to me what it meant to be a 36C, you mind scooting over a bit, buddy the fat lady asks, I'm kind of crowded here, George looks at her for a long, long time, finally, he says, that's because you're kind of fat, and you're kind of rude, the fat lady snaps back, so move the fuck over and shut up, George slides over until he's taking up only half a seat, I used to think I was invisible, George confides, but now that the fat lady cuts George off, you always talk to yourself she blurts, George is unperturbed, only when no one else will listen, he says, the fat lady shakes her head in disapproval, you see, he confesses, I see a shrink, He's a certified member of the American Psychiatric Association. The fat lady shrugs. So what you see, lady? People who see a shrink, George explains, they are allowed to talk to themselves, not in public. The lady strongly objects. It's annoying is what it is, I beg your pardon, George says. But you're annoying too. The fat lady rolls her eyes. You're just lucky I don't get mad at people anymore, George adds. Because if I still got mad at people, boy, oh boy, would you ever be in trouble? But the fat lady stares him down and George slowly shrinks away to nothing. He doesn't say a word until he gets off at the office of his clinical psychiatrist. At the 
psycho's office, the older heavy-set psychiatrist, Dr. Osman, sits trying to listen with open ears to George's diatribes and rants. As usual George completely fails to make eye contact with the doctor. He has no facial expression, no emotional affect and a completely flat voice, yet he speaks very distinctly and brightly, almost autistic. There is a long silence as George runs out of steam. When George doesn't start talking again the psychiatrist tries to break the ice. So you took the bus today huh? George he asks. He's feigning interest, trying to get George to talk. How was that? George George stares blankly without responding. Am I right? The psychiatrist goes on. That's what you said, isn't it? You took the bus George shrugs, his face expressionless, his eyes empty. If I said so, then yes. He answers, it must be true, you must be right. Trying to pick up on George's response, the psychiatrist keeps prodding and probing. You rode the bus then, he observes. And how did it go? But George still looks blank. The bus ride, I mean, the psychiatrist adds. How did it go? George shrugs again still blank and empty, expressionless. It went all right I guess, he admits. I'm here now, and I guess you are. George, the psychiatrist prompts, are you glad to be here again, George shrugs, just as well here as anywhere else, he says, and if I weren't here, I'd be somewhere else, wouldn't I the psychiatrist has to submit to George's unimpeachable logic, yes, that's right, George, you would, he says, but what I wanted to know was if anything unusual happened along the way, George furrows his brow and purses his lips before indifferently answering, number, I can't say that anything unusual happened, he finally admits, what usually happens on the bus, I get on the bus, I get off the bus, George pauses, I talk to some people, he says, the psychiatrist thinks, now we're getting somewhere, maybe, you talk to some people, George he repeats, that's unusual, isn't it, George shrugs again, I don't know, I guess so, he confesses, I told them that I like buses even though I don't really have to ride them, and even though I have a trust and I could buy a bus if I wanted, I told them all that, George's flat emotionless voice trails off, the psychiatrist pushes his lead, so you talked to people, he says, and how did people respond to that thinking of the blonde woman and the fat woman, George starts to become slightly animated, almost interested, for some reason he's already forgotten about Vivian with the well-marked wardrobe, there was this one woman, he says, she thought I wanted to steal her money so she tried to protect herself like this, with a certain genius for imitation, George mimics the pretty blonde woman clutching her purse to her chest, she was funny, George says without laughing, I laughed at her, after a brief pause George tells about the fat woman, too, and there was this big fat lady who sat next to me, she told me to move over, he mimics her settling herself in the seat and making him move over, like I was crowding her, like I was taking up two seats, she was real funny, too, still the psychiatrist doesn't say anything, he's trying to silently prompt George to talk, which George finally does, I told her it was a good thing I don't get mad at people anymore, he says with a slight hint of anger, boy, oh boy, he says, that's what I said, boy, oh boy, after getting what he was after, the psychiatrist finally breaks his silence, were you mad at her, George he prompts, did you threaten her but George shrugs off the psychiatrist's question and continues his monologue, I went to Wakefield, I told her, he says, Harvard, too, after my NYU undergrad, she said she didn't care, I said, maybe she should care, huh, people are so stupid George abruptly stops talking and leaves the phrase dangling, the psychiatrist keeps silent again waiting for George to talk, he finally does, and you know what else I told her he says, you know what else, duck number, what, George the psychiatrist raises an eyebrow, what did you tell her I told her that the more I learned, the more I became conscious of the ridiculousness of human nature, that's what I told her, the ridiculousness of human nature and the sheer absurdity of it all, the psychiatrist is obviously disappointed, he's set a trap but George somehow didn't step in it, so you didn't threaten her, George he prompts, you didn't try to scare her, or make her afraid of you already bored, George looks at his wristwatch, what time you got, dot he asks is this almost over the psychiatrist relaxes, convinced he won't get anything incriminating out of George this time, oh, well, better luck next time huh, doc, it's over whenever you like George, he says calmly, you're the boss here, remember there's a long pause, the big white wall clock above the couch ticks on, 
Finally George offers another off-the-wall observation, it just seems like, I told her, all my years at Wakefield, and all my years at Harvard, existed for the simple purpose of proving to me that I was an utterly absurd person, no different from any other absurd person, no different from her or anybody else, because we are all absurd people, see the old overweight psychiatrist looks at the white-faced, expressionless world clock, oh god, he thinks, now he's turning into a philosopher on me, huh, but still he plays along, and how do you feel about that, Georgia he asks, does that make you feel sad, depressed, anxious, Georgia laughs sardonically with Without amusement, I think you know how I feel about that, doctor, he answers, it doesn't make me feel depressed or suicidal, or anything, but sometimes I wonder, is that all there is, you know the older heavyset psychiatrist feigns interest, but he's really thinking of something else, or thousand other things, just waiting for George to talk himself out, of course, eventually he does, you know, doc, George goes on, I've never been much of what you might call a joiner, I'm more of a loner, doctor, and the idea that I may be no different than anybody else, no less absurd than anybody else, well, it tickles me, it makes me, George lets the thought go and finished, he gets slowly to his feet, let's just say, he says, it's been a bitter pill to swallow, I like that, though, it's been the bitterest of pills, not like those meds you give me, doc, George puts on his coat, bundles up, and stuffs some leftover bags into his pocket, it makes me laugh, doc, he says, it makes me feel clear and calm, and empty, and I like that, and I also like the fact, George goes on, that I no longer feel angry, I get mad sometimes, sure, like I did with the fat lady on the bus today, but when I think how stupid and absurd, and comical everything is, I just laugh and I'm okay again still, the older psychiatrist can't resist taking a few jabs at George's exposed psyche just to see what kind of reactions he'll get, and you don't have trouble with your neighbors anymore he asks, like you did before but George is gone, empty and blank again, neighbors he asks, what neighbors you know, the psychiatrist's prompts, the ones who fight still George stays expressionless, his slightly overweight face a smiling, leering, tragic karmic mask, the ones who keep you up at night the older psychiatrist goes on, who you hear slapping and beating each other through the world still, George says nothing, you're no longer having trouble with them indifferently, George shakes his head slowly, the bored psychiatrist finally gives up, good, he says, next week then, same time, same place yes, George repeats, same time, same place, George is already gone, as he opens the door he stops, and then turns back, or better yet, he says, a call, a call to confirm, how that the psychiatrist has already dismissed his patient, that'll be fine, George, he says, you just call and let me know, as George shuffles out the door the psychiatrist calls after him, next week then, George, the psychiatrist mumbles to himself, a clear case of Asperger's syndrome, with complications, of course, underneath his notes, the psychiatrist writes, Asperger's, in addition to, and then he continues, patient name, George Schaefer extremely bright, misinterprets figures of speech and or social cues, several psychological stresses, flat affect and voice, lack of motivation, apathy, suicidal ideation, and beneath that, prognosis, interminable analysis, no hope for cure, with Vivian Babylon tragically dead, the bereaved George crushed, devastated, without reason to go on living decides to sink his whole inheritance into a colossal project, an enormous wax museum containing surrealistic acts, work mannequins of classical heroes, and immortal figures of ancient and modern history, George's secret plan is to immortalize Vivian by making her into a Greek goddess or Romanesque empress, a Byzantine queen or Hollywood sex goddess, Helen of Troy, Cleopatra, the Venus de Milo, Marilyn of Monroe, whose statuesque sculpture, breathtakingly captured in perfectly lifelike wax, will live forever in the bemused and astonished minds of contemporary women and men. To fulfill this rapturous fantasy and romantic dream, George must find a still living woman to serve as the perfect waxwork model for the immortal Vivian. Although he has found a highly skilled waxwork sculptor Amos Famous Daedalus, whose craft in fashioning supple wax into divine human forms almost matches Vivian's perfect beauty, the sculptor cannot work without a suitable true-to-life model, and their George's grandiose project and glorious dream stews and stymies for want of a second beauty to equal the one and only, the incomparable, the true
true, Vivian Babylon, strolling down the crowded city street George Schieffer swaggers and struts through the shuffling crowds with a big lollipop stuck in his mouth, it's a day-long sucker, and so is he, there's one born every day, and it's George's day to be, George pauses on the white concrete sidewalk to contemplate the enormous edifice, an old abandoned waterfront warehouse with smashed windows and a broken down roof, that soon will be unveiled as, George Schieffer's one, and only original, classical, wax museum, the shuffling crowd around him has no comprehension of his grandiose project and glorious dream, they only push, shove and elbow him out of the way, hey, Mackett sneers, what's the matter with you you stupid or something get out of the way, how George continues to slurp his day along sucker, oblivious to the barbarians and philistines around him, although he's in the same sophisticated elegant clothes as before, he's much heavier, in fact, he's become rather portly and almost fat, in George Schaefer's perpetually bemused mind, Vivian Babylon is still as perfectly statuesque, as eternally beautiful, and as immortally youthful as she was in the golden days of their secret love, a broadside poster next to the museum door shows a brightly colored, glossy picture of several wax figures, including Vivian looking supremely beautiful, incomparably sexy, yet untouchable, and death as in life. Crashing through the museum's workroom door, George enters to find his faithful assistant, Amos, hard at work on his immortal project. Engrossed in his sculptural work, famous Amos looks up to see the boss in a distinct state of distraction. Stupefied, mesmerized and bemused, George peers around the cluttered workroom as if he's never been here before, as if he is seeing these works of classic heroes and ancient deities for the first time. As George dawdles and gawks, Amos works among several wax figures in various stages of disfiguration and defacement, deconstruction and disrepair. There's a sway-backed, bow-legged figure vaguely reminiscent of Roy Rogers or Gene Autry, whose cowboy hat head is melted making him the wild, wild west's greatest disfigured cowpoke or zombie lawman. Beside it is a conservatively dressed feminine figure, vaguely reminiscent of a very young 1960s ESQ Queen Elizabeth, with a smiling face that is chipped and gouged, and makes a Great Britain's first deface maiden queen or living dead monarch. Snapping out of his stupefaction and distraction, George finally pulls up a chair and sits down. He looks impatiently at his wristwatch. You got five minutes, Amos. George snaps. Convince me this hall of the unknowns thing is the way to go. Make me believe it's the next big thing, Amos drops his work and wipes his hands. He shuffles his feet on the dusty floor as he hems and hoars for a few minutes before answering. Think about it, George. Amos says, who really wants to see another waxwork? Tom mixed George's eyes widen as he does a double take of the disfigured cowpoke. That's Roy Rogers, he says, I think, or a baby Queen Elizabeth the 93rd. Amos goes on, when they can see themselves, their family, their friends and next door neighbors captured in immortal wax the cherubic Amos face is faintly illuminated and numinously haloed by his immortal conception, but George still looks unconvinced, so famous Amos winds up his pitch. It's not just my idea, George. Amos coaxes, it's a really old idea. It goes back to the Greeks, Romans, and the Christian Middle Ages when artists made dolls in the images of their monarchs, yes, and their family, friends, and neighbors. It was for admirers to worship and adore, or maybe just to stick pins into them. Of course, some things have changed since then and maybe some people have changed, too. But one thing doesn't change and that's the eternal human need to desecrate, defile, and downright hate whatever they once worshipped, adored, and loved. George Schaefer's one and only original, classic wax museum will serve the profoundly spiritual need for the contemporary populace. The only difference is that we make our suckers and dummies perfectly lifelike, life-sized, and realistic. The better to worship and adore, and the better to stick pins into, too. And, of course, we charge them to see them, and we charge them to worship them, and we charge them to stick pins in them, too. Or to stick pins in themselves, as the case may be, with furrowed brow and pursed lips, George still looks unconvinced. I'm telling you, George, Amos cajoles, it's the biggest pitch since B.T. Barnum's three-ring big pop circus. It's the biggest spiel since Jenny Lind, the swinging soprano songstress. It's a surefire winner, as the man once said, you'll never go broke trading on the American public's need to stick pins in celebrities, and besides, Amos concludes, it really can't be any worse than what we're doing now, can it spent by his impassioned spiel. Amos swaps the seed from his brow and goes back to working on the cowboy. Abruptly, in a fit of pique and faced with George's yawning indifference, he throws his tools down on the waxy floor. Just listen to me for a minute, 
George, damn it Amos bluffs, do you know how many times I've fixed this guy after someone decided to deface him George just shrugs and sighs, no, Amos, tell me, how many times have you fixed him Amos starts to count, moving his lips and using his fingers like an elementary school student learning mathematics, but finally gives up, a lot the exasperated Amos blurts out, that's how many, and we don't even know who he is still breathing heavily, Amos pauses as he tries to keep his cool and pull himself together, he's just some big cowboy creep, Amos spits out bitterly, at least if we put in some humble, homely local people from sheltered cove, we'd know who they were, and so would they, giving in to Amos enthusiasm, George finally laughs, if anybody really wants to know, how George scoffs, which I doubt, famous Amos turns back toward him, sensing an opening, just think of it, George, Amos wheedles, we start small, one or two small town celebrities, just to see how it goes, hesitating and cautious, George thinks it over, and once it catches on Amos leaves the sentence dangling, I'm not sure, Amos George is still dubious, maybe if we dress them up a bit, you know, give them different clothes, different noses and different heads I'm telling you, George, Amos slaps George's back, this is going to be big, really big, it's the next big thing, finally, George knows, okay, Amos, we'll give it a try, George grimly agrees, but I'll tell you, buddy, this better work out, because if it doesn't George waits to let the threat sink in, your ass is waxed, the swank three-story suburban McMansion in Sheltered Cove, New Jersey, is dimly lit as it usually is, George Schaefer is sprawled on the living room sofa drinking beer and munching junk food while his current wife, Cleo, performs domestic chores in their beautiful, very modern kitchen, George is watching Jeopardy on television, the smiling Alex Trebek is waiting for a successful contestant to select another $10,000 question, I'll take Greek mythology for $300, Alex, the sweaty contestant looks slightly nervous and on edge as his finger taps the buzzer. Alex reads the cue card. Hesiod referred to them as the nine daughters of Zeus and Memosine. The invisible video camera pans across the three contestants as their faces go totally blank. George Schaefer blasts them with his withering scorn. God, what idiots he scoffs. Who are the muses? Alex he mocks. Then suddenly, George pauses. I used to think Cleo was my muse, he mutters, because of the name. Another pause. I met her at state. When was it? Back in the golden age of a slightly more well-groomed and younger, but still awkward-looking, George sits at a big wooden table, books are strewn around him, he holds one book in front of his face, pretending to read, instead of reading, he's actually staring across the room at a slightly more statuesque, younger and prettier Cleo, who's intently reading a book and chewing on a yellow pencil, yes, that's her, George muses, Cleo, just as she was when I first fell in love with her, I just love the way she chewed on the pencil and how she left little bite marks all over it, little love nips, now, Cleo still chews pencils, but now, I don't really love it all that much, at the same big wooden table in the university library, George and Cleo are talking, both are smiling, laughing, and shuffling books and papers with their distracted hands. George, the campus headshot, is practicing his technique and working his lines. So, he smiles suggestively. Your name is Cleo. Hather shy and your Cleo nods pettishly as she whispers, yes picking up the subtle cues. George goes on. I've never met a Cleo before, he says. Sounds like an astrological sign. Sort of Cleo giggles. Seriously, though, the suave George pushes on. Where did you get a name like that? A Greek goddess or a household detergent, or something Cleo laughs awkwardly. My parents are classics scholars, she says. They love the Greeks. She pauses as if she is exposing her deepest secrets. You think Cleo is a funny name she says. You should meet my brother. They named him Holmes. George clucks sympathetically. I bet the other kids gave him hell on the playground. Cleo nods, looking grimly away. They still do. George is still sitting on the overstuffed couch, still staring at Jeopardy on the enormous, 205-inch TV screen, slamming the door to the three-car garage. Cleo walks in carrying bags of groceries. George, are you busy? She calls. Could you give me a hand? Please sluggishly. George gets up from the couch. Glancing at the TV, Cleo notices that George is watching Jeopardy. George she clucks critically. You're watching Jeopardy. Again shrugging off Cleo's tone. George takes the bulging shopping bags from her. This is a new one, honey, not a rerun. George keeps watching the TV set behind Cleo's back. They ran the Greek mythology category again. Cleo ignores George's excuses. There are more groceries in the car, she says. 
If you can tear yourself away from the TV, George grabs a couple of grocery bags and follows Cleo into the kitchen. Sure thing, honey, George says, glad to help out. Cleo is still slightly peevish. It's just she pauses. I thought you knew mom and dad were coming over. I thought you'd be cleaning and tidying up. Whatever George sets the grocery bags on the counter, he doesn't react to Cleo's innuendos. Cleo pushes her point. You did remember, didn't you she asks. George walks out of the kitchen. I don't understand why they are always over here. He mutters, your mom and dad, I mean, Cleo snaps back. They are not always over here. George, she says, you're exaggerating again what is it George mocks, they can't afford to feed themselves, is that it Cleo's takes up the defense, they're old, she says quietly, and fail, yeah, maybe, George concedes, but they can sure pack in the groceries, huh George, Cleo warns, they're my parents, yeah, yeah, okay, honey, George sighs, I'll try to be good, later that evening George, Cleo and her parents, and June and Leopold, are sitting around at the big wooden dining room table that is piled high with food, Cleo's parents are old, yeah, but they sure are not frail, in many ways they look stronger, huskier, and healthier than George who's looking a little peaked. Cleo's father, Leopold, is a stocky and muscular spaceman, while George watches Leopold stuff fried chicken and potato salad down his gullet, he checks out Leopold's stylish no whining t-shirt and tattered designer jeans. Cleo's mother, June, is a stringy and vegan thin woman with long, unkempt, grey hair and no makeup. She wears only natural fibers and picks at a full plate of food. Cleo, honey she asks is this chicken free range catching Cleo's eye? George raises an eyebrow. Cleo ignores him. Suspiciously, Cleo's mother puts a tiny forkful of food in her mouth and chews tentatively, like she's afraid the chicken will bite back. Meanwhile, Leopold is eating heartily. George boy he booms out. How old that shop of yours coming along? GW Cleo rolls eyes. It's a wax museum, daddy, she says. I told you, Leopold shrugs and waves his hands. Sweatshop, wax museum, he gripes. Same thing, George wants to impress Leopold. We're expanding, he says calmly, glancing at his father-in-law's waist. Cleo rolls eyes. Don't call him GW, daddy, she scolds. His name is George. I told you, Leopold shrugs and waves his hands again. George, porridge, pudding and pie, he says. George, GP, GW same thing, across from Leopold, Cleo's mother reaches her skinny fingers into her mouth and plucks out some half-tewed chicken, she smiles apologetically, but Cleo is not amused, mother Cleo TSKS, Leopold ignores them both, you don't mind if I call you GW, do you he asks George, June blurts out I'm sorry, she says, but you know I eat only free range, George, ignoring Leopold, but sin, and organic, he observes drolly, smug and self-satisfied, June beams back at George, see, see she says to Cleo, your husband remembers, meanwhile, Leopold continues to pester George, what kind of money are you making, now he asks tactfully, that you can afford to expand Cleo rolls her eyes again, daddy, she whines, Leopold brushes off, he doesn't mind, he says, he playfully punches George's shoulder, do you, GW he says, after the great free range chicken dinner massacre is over, Cleo washes a sinful of dirty dishes while George dries, that wasn't so bad, Cleo casually observes, was it compared to what George asks incredulously? World War II? The Battle of the Bulge Honey Cleo sings songs. It really wasn't. George finishes drying a big stack of dinner plates and hangs the damp towel on the refrigerator door handle. Cleo nervously observes, watching and waiting. Finally, she bursts out. Well say something, George. Don't just stand there. You feel like taking a walk, George asks. Cleo frowns and shakes her head vigorously, no shrugging her off. George walks out of the kitchen. He rummages through the cluttered hall closet for his summer weight jacket, slips it on, and shuts the front door on his way out. Slightly distracted, shoulders stooped in his thin jacket, George walks past the brightly lit and bustling Tully's diner. Through the big plated glass windows he notices Vivian, the waitress, flirting with the customers in her short skirt and low-cut blouse. Bemused, he stares at her. 
As before, famous Amos works amidst the clutter and ruin of the workroom. This time, however, the workroom is even more cluttered than usual. There are several bulletin boards and a display board, each filled with bristling clippings of black and white photographs from the local Sheltered Cove newspapers, the Sheltered Cove Sentinel, the Sheltered Cove Gazette, and the Sheltered Cove Observer. In the newspapers, there is an array of pictures of the swarthy and handsome, young Mayor Green and the whole Sheltered Cove Police Department in full dress uniform. Also, the Sheltered Cove Fire Department in partial undress, with trucks and hoses, and the Sheltered Cove Elementary School complete with the principal, teachers, and students. Of course, there's a picture of the frizzy-haired, hip-shot Vivian in a white cap and waitress skirt, working at Tully's. She's smiling and laughing as she carries an enormous tray full of heaping plates. Behind his big wooden desk, George shuffles through piled stacks of mail. Despite his well-dressed and elegant demeanor, he looks worried we know just what he's worried about, don't we? In the white-carpeted living room of George and Cleo Schaefer's white pillared, classical and elegant McMansion in Sheltered Cove, New Jersey, Cleo works at her computer. She's talking on the phone and laughing all the while. The big white wooden front door swings open and George walks in as he slams the door behind him. He briskly strides into the living room, still looking distracted and worried. A guilty expression flashes over Cleo's face. She hurriedly hangs up the phone and smiles weakly at George. You're home early, she says. Without looking at Cleo, George glances at his watch. He shrugs as if he hadn't even noticed the time. Cleo notices his furrowed brow. Anything wrong she asks. George doesn't answer. Two hours later, George slouches on the overstuffed couch and stares blankly at the TV. Whisperly and silently, Cleo dressed in a black silk evening dress sweeps into the room. Abruptly shaken out of his distraction and worry, George looks up and whistles. Woo-woo, Cleo, he says, and you fancy like a classic ballerina. Cleo swirls and twirls before George's eyes, then finally whirls to a stop in a perfectly poised relevé. You like it, she whispers. It's for you, George beams. You look terrific, honey, he says. What's the occasion, Cleo blushes. No occasion, she murmurs. Just a night out with the girls. That's all, a shadow seems to pass across Cleo's face. But George is too amused to notice. Looks like quite a night he blurts. Where are you girls going defensively? Cleo feigns hurt at George's distrust. I don't ask you where you're going when you go out. George rolls his hands up in mock surrender. Just making conversation, Cleo, he says. Nothing to get upset about. Cleo smiles. I know, I know, she says. I just feel a little guilty. Maybe, that's all, you know. Just getting out with the girls. It's been a while, she heads towards the door. Are you going to be out late? George asks. She turns back, looking annoyed again. I don't ask you, she starts to say, and then leaves the sentence dangling. I know, I know, George repeats mockingly. You don't ask me when I'm getting home. She stares at him, still looking annoyed. Should I wait up? George asks. Number Cleo answers. Don't wait up. After a microwave dinner on the couch, George walks past Tully's diner. Through the big, plated glass window he glances into the white-lit and busy restaurant. In her white waitress cap, low-cut blouse, and short skirt, Vivian is laughing, shivering slightly in his thin jacket. George stares longingly at her. That night in the white and red canopy bed, George is fast asleep, still wearing her black silk evening dress. Cleo tiptoes into the white-carpeted bedroom and undresses silently. She slips into bed beside him and rests her head on his chest. Amos de Dallas sits at his bench cradling the disembodied head of a statuesque wax figure on his lap, as he carefully positions a platinum blonde wig on the bald pate. There are noises at the warehouse door as if somebody was trying to open it, but the door is stuck shut. Famous Amos looks up just as the big wooden door crashes open and George flies into the room. Amos, amused, watches George slowly pick himself up off the floor. Jesus, George, he says, you about gave me a fucking heart attack. You know George carefully brushes off his stylish clothes, trying to look dignified. I just stopped by for a minute, he says, looking at his watch. I just thought I'd see how the hall of the unknowns is going, without getting up. Amos turns the platinum wig and waxen head on his lap toward George. It is a generic mannequin's head, it could be anybody. Seeing Amos' expectant look, George reacts with befuddlement and confusion. It's Vivian, Amos says. George does a comic double take. Vivian he says doubtfully. You mean, from Tully's diner? That Vivian seeing George's scornful look. Amos reacts with defensiveness and hurt. She's not done yet, he whines. I still have to get the nose correct. In Vivian's presence George is more calm and quiet than usual. But Amos, he says gently, it doesn't look anything like her. Dashed, 
downcast and defeated Amos still faces up to George's criticism. Yeah, okay, he says, maybe it doesn't right now, but it will, I swear to god it will. Yeah George says, you swear Amos lip quivers slightly, he nods, George rolls out his hand. Okay, Amos, he says, give her to me, cradling the waxen bust in his strong hands, George carefully examines the mannequin's head. This isn't Vivian, he says, Vivian has those fiery green eyes, that frizzy red hair, and an unusual bone structure. Those perfectly sculpted George leaves the sentence dangling, slowly and thoughtfully he gives the platinum wit, waxen head back to Amos. Amos takes the false Vivian by the hair and holds her up like Perseus with a laughing Medusa. So, Amos, where did you get this bogus Vivian George asks, did she ever even model for you slightly embarrassed? Amos shakes his head, George is baffled. Then how did you ever get this Vivian Amos points to the newspaper pictures tacked to the bulletin board. Striding over to the nearest bulletin board George looks over the clipped out newspaper pictures. He finally pulls the black and white photograph of Vivian, the waitress, off the board. Jeez, Amos he scoffs, no wonder. This doesn't look a thing like her, either. With his bare hands George rips up the false image of Vivian Babylon and disdainfully hands the shredded picture back to Amos. You'll never capture the true Vivian that way, Amos, he says. You need to get her to sit for you. Amos only scuffles his feet and shakes his head. Number, huh? No way, he says. That modeling thing never works. Not with wax works. Not for me. I'm telling you George. Models, when they are not professional, always move. And when the model moves, the wax melts. George ponders this profound artistic truism for several minutes before responding. Well then, Amos, he finally says, if she won't sit still for you, you can at least take her picture. Close up. As close as you can get. Pulling away suddenly, Amos shudders, like maybe he's afraid to get too close to his work. George, man he says, I'm an artist, not some kind of trick photographer George flashes Amos a withering look, Amos, he says calmly, you promised me, you swore to me, before George can finish his sentence, Amos cuts him off, okay, okay, he says, I'll take her fucking picture, sometime later, George Schaefer leaves the one and only original, classical wax museum, his faithful, loyal, and trusted accountant, Richard, is with him, at the doorway they talk confidentially and repeatedly nod to each other, Finally, they shake hands and then go their separate ways. George locks the big wooden door with one of many keys on his giant gearing. In the bustling and crowded Tully's diner, George and Cleo sit at an intimate table in the farthest corner of the restaurant. Empty plates and half-full glasses of soda litter the small table. They're in the middle of a difficult conversation. Cleo's grilling George about George Schaefer's one and only original, classical wax museum. But, George, really, she protests. How is this wax museum ever going to make money Cleo? Honey, George soothes her, can't you at least listen to me Cleo feigns a long-suffering patience. I am, George, she says, but without paying the slightest attention to their petty splat, Vivian the waitress sidles over, imperturbably, she starts clearing their plates. How you kids doing she asks, offhandedly, want anything else trying to put on a false face. Cleo smiles grimly, she gently kicks George under the table, George takes the hint, just for check, he says, Vivian, of course, pretends to not notice the ill feeling that surrounds their table like a foul stench, you got it, is all she says, she rips the check from the pad and smiles at George, thanks for coming in, she says, come back and see us, okay distractedly, George watches Vivian sashay off as she swishes her hips, Cleo watches George's eyes, after a terse silence, she finally bursts out, you know, George, I have never liked that waitress, still distracted, George stares at the check, huh, what he says, why not, what's wrong with her clear sniffs, well, she says, she's cheap, for one thing, still staring at the check, George doesn't respond, Cleo tries to break George out of Vivian's spell, well, George, she sniffs, did she at least get the check right without looking up, George says, hum the bottom of the check reads, your server, number 9, Vivian Babylon, later that week, George and Cleo Schaefer are sitting at the same intimate table at Tully's diner, it's honestly just a poorly lit table off in a dark corner, of course, they are having the same secretive, festering and seething marital difficulties that they both stubbornly, and futilely, pretend to ignore, in the dismal illumination, they begin to peruse the oversized sticky looking menus, as they sit brooding silently behind their menus, Vivian the waitress sidles over and stands waiting with her pencil and order pad in hand, behind his sticky menu, George smiles shyly up at her, behind 
find her greasing anew, Cleo looks disenchanted, peevish and bored. She notices George's infatuation with Vivian and she's obviously not amused. Vivian is serenely wrapped in her distant beauty, with her white waitress cap, and her shocking red hair sticking out in every direction like a frizzy halo. Morning, afternoon or evening, jokes. She wisecracks, we serve breakfast dinner time at Tully's diner. So, what would you like to drink? Coffee? Tea? So De Cleo tries to smiles at George through his sticky menu, with no success. She glances sideways at Vivian as she orders. Iced tea for me, Cleo says. Do you have herbal Vivian smirks and smacks a juicy fruit? Sorry, hon, she says. Nothing but Lipton's, and no decaf, either. Cleo frowns slightly. Well, then, she says. How about lemonade Vivian? Scratching her head with a pencil, doesn't answer. Instead, she turns to George, basking in Vivian's beauty. George is quick to speak. I'll have a chocolate malted. George puts down his menu and briefly turns to Cleo. Cleo, he says, not meeting her eyes. The conspiratorial silence and sexual buzz between Vivian and George is undeniable, palpable. From her dark corner, Cleo mutters annoyed, muttered, just water, okay, Vivian says, one chocolate malted and one water, coming up swinging her hips, Vivian starts to walk away, before she's out of earshot, Cleo calls out, with lemon, although she obviously catches Cleo's order, Vivian doesn't turn around, she just waves her hand in acknowledgement, you got it, she says, still not looking back. Cleo, disgusted, shakes her head. George picks up Cleo's disgust but doesn't admit it. Instead, he changes the subject. So, George still won't meet Cleo's eyes. How is that promotion going? Honey Cleo reels back as if George has slapped her. George, it's not a promotion she snaps. You know I work for myself. Right George is indifferent, unperturbed. I know that, Cleo, he says calmly. Cleo rolls her eyes in exasperation. George recognizes the familiar gesture and backs off slightly. Okay, Cleo, George says, how about we start again? I say I'm sorry, you say that you forgive me, and then we'll be even. Okay Cleo, in a huff, says nothing. Please, Cleo, George pleads. George obviously doesn't want to be embarrassed before Vivian, but Cleo wants to make him squirm. There is a long silence. Finally, Cleo breaks down. It's all right, George, she says in a muttered voice. I don't mind. You can't even keep track of what I do or who I am. Really, I don't mind if you ignore me. You'd rather pay attention to that. That Vivian swishes back. She swings her waitress tray casually in front of their faces as she sets the chocolate malted in front of George. Then she puts a sweaty glass of ice water, without lemon, in front of Cleo. Cleo, of course, can't help but notice. Still, she says nothing. Vivian sashays away again, serenely indifferent. Cleo fumes. It figures, she says. I just knew she'd do that. George looks quizzical as if he hadn't noticed. The lemon Cleo says. Really, I just knew she'd forget. George feigns concern. Well, so what honey he says. Why didn't you say something Cleo sniffs? It doesn't matter. Pretending to want to make the evening with Cleo work. George tries one more time. Okay, Cleo. He says, just tell me about the big account you landed today. Then, he pauses, please he says. While George and Cleo are still snorting and sniffing at each other, Vivian comes swishing back carrying a small bowl of lemon slices. She makes a dramatizing display of setting the bowl in front of Cleo. Silly me she sings songs in a sweet musical voice. I forgot. Cleo accepts the offered bowl petulantly and ungratefully. Oh, thanks so much she says, dripping sarcasm. Naturally, Vivian is sublimely indifferent and coolly distant. You too ready to order she asks. Frowning and pursing her lips, Cleo rolls her eyes and picks up the menu. Behind his menu George smiles at the imperturbable Vivian. Vivian pretends not to notice. Several hours later, Cleo and George sit in the half-empty diner at the same small table in their dismal, poorly lit corner. They are subdued, restrained, but obviously still fighting. Plates of untouched food sit on the table between them. The crushed ice is melted in Cleo's glass. I just don't understand, George. Cleo continues, why you never remember anything I say. I told you weeks ago about the Times account and how, if I got it, I'd be copy editor for this entire area. Not just sheltered cove but the whole greater metropolitan area, too. The entire northern part of the state. You still just don't give a damn George Fane's interest most unsuccessfully. I remembered, he says. I took you out to dinner to celebrate. Didn't I? Cleo stares at the ceiling. She's frustrated, unhappy, and angry, while scattered 
unexpected customer slouched or the checkout counter Vivian swishes over to George and Cleo to see if they are ready for the check. Okay, she says, that's two meatloaf specials with succotash and gravy and a small dessert bowl. Can I get you kids anything else perking up in Vivian's presence? George smiles and shakes his head. Cleo turns her face away as she tries to snub the imperturbable Vivian. Vivian simply drops the check on the table and walks away. Frustrated, exasperated and fed up, Cleo jumps to her feet. That's it. George, I'm walking home, she says, I'll see you when you get home, if you get home, as Cleo huffs out, George sits silently and watches her leave for several long seconds, when Cleo sweeps through the big glass door, Vivian swings back toward the dark corner table, he takes out his wallet and pays her with a $50 dollar bill, you can keep the change, he says, I'll see you next time, but George doesn't get up to leave and Vivian hangs around, she's some lady, huh she says, jerking her frizzy red head toward the swinging glass door, is she your wife's George nods, yeah, I guess so, he says, at least, we've been married seven years well, you know, Mr. Vivian says, forgive me for saying so, but she seems a little harsh. Maybe George shyly glances up at the statuesque and beautified Vivian. His slightly haggard and unshaven face is a curious mixture of gratitude and guilt. Yeah, he says, that's my wife. All right, Vivian smirks sympathetically. Later that night in their enormous master bedroom, George and Cleo lay in bed. Cleo is sleeping and snoring softly with her bristly back turned. George is still wide awake as he stares at the ceiling. The silently screaming clock on the nightstand says, 3.10 a.m. George lies there and fantasizes. At George Schaefer's one and only original, classical wax museum, George sits on the cluttered bench, bemused and entranced as he stares at the statuesque waxen head of Vivian the waitress. The whole workroom is dimly and sadly suffused with a sepulchral green twilight. The mannequins, even Vivian the waitress, look slightly ghoulish. George stares at Vivian, at her pallid and waxen face. Then he turns his own face toward her and smiles. For a brief and fleeting second he almost believes she is smiling back. For a few seconds more he stares at her shapely, waxen breasts. Then, blushing deeply, he averts his eyes, a slightly slimmer, younger and more handsome George, Natalie dressed in a blue pinstripe suit and flashy tie, walks by Tully's diner, he impulsively walks over to the big plated glass windows and peers in, Vivian the waitress dances from table to table, breezily taking orders and flinging down full, heaping plates of steamy cheeseburgers and grueling meatloaf specials before the smiling, laughing customers, she's still sporting her white waitress cap and frizzy red hair, but she's exchanged her ordinary, humdrum waitress uniform for a breathtakingly sexy, belly dancing costume, for a few minutes, George simply watches her and laughs. He then suavely glides over to the swinging door, throws it open and steps inside. The whole diner sparkles and flashes. Soft music plays in the background. Glasses clink. Customers eat and drink and laugh merrily, wanting to join the crowd. George sits down at a spotless table with white linen tablecloth, crystal wine glasses, and sterling silverware. Without missing a beat in her swirling, dancing waitress routine, Vivian swoops over to him. She sets down an elegantly upholstered menu with a monogrammed leather cover in Boston gold letters. Then she stands transfixed in the brilliant white fluorescent lights awaiting his order. What'll it be, Mr. She asks in a scintillating and golden voice. Cheeseburger and fries? Possibly the meatloaf special you're beautiful, George says. I know, Vivian beams back. That's what all the guys say, you're immortal, George asks, you're divine, yeah, that's right, Vivian chews her juicy fruit gum, I wouldn't have it any other way, so, what are you having with this sophisticated, debonair, playboy manner, and irresistibly sexy smile, George winks and says, you, Vivian the waitress laughs melodiously, after a brief epiphany George drops his sophisticated, playboy manner and suave style, as steps back into some version of reality, just kidding, I bet, he says, bring me the usual, Vivian the waitress smiles knowingly, the usual, huh she says, you mean, the works, George smiles back, immediately, Vivian swirls, twirls, pirouettes, and dances away. She reappears instantly with a silver platter filled with an assortment of gourmet foods and wine, foie gras, escargot, and exotic cheeses. Vivian hovers over him and feeds him bits and morsels of tasty delicacies, harem girl style. George swoons back in his chair and starts eating voluptuously. Somewhere outside this brilliantly glittering soap bubble of seductive and sybaritic fantasy, somebody sneezes and sniffles with post-nasal drip. 
the boorish, anonymous somebody sneezes and sniffles again, snapping out of his self-hypnotic fantasy, George Skulls, frowns and harumphs, the sophisticated and elegant restaurant immediately fades away. Now, George, in shabby overcoat and scrunched ragged pants, is standing on the scruffy sidewalk in front of Tully's diner. A decrepit old homeless man stands next to him sneezing, sniffling and wiping his nose on the empty sleeve of an old ragged coat. In George Schaefer's one and only original, classical wax museum, George is, as usual, hard at work as he gets ready for the spectacular grand opening celebration and gala wax warming that is scheduled for just few weeks away. He sits at the bench holding a headless Vivian waitress in his arms. The white fluorescent lighting is perfect, the strikingly lifelike mannequins appear to pulse and glow. Holding Vivian in his arms, George can't take his eyes off of her breasts. Her perfect, inviting and delectable breasts. But then George looks up at where her perfectly sculpted head should be. There's nothing there. Quietly, George mutters to himself, no head. Suddenly, and with a horrendous crashing sound, Amos breaks through the front door and falls face first onto the workroom floor. With Amos' unexpected entry, George is rudely shaken out of his worshipful reverie. What the fuck, man he shouts. Didn't I tell you? Always knock first from the dusty workshop floor. Amos looks up at George and slowly gets up. Huh? George he spits out, still somewhat confused. What are you doing here at this hour? Amos spies Vivian Babylon on George's lap, and with Vivian the waitress, too. How George sets the statuesque and headless Vivian mannequin down and glares at Amos, but he's still too stunned and embarrassed to come up with a quick comeback. Amos takes advantage of George's silence to make up. Hey, man, he says, I'm sorry if I scared you, I've been having a problem with that freaking lock all day, finally getting his bravado back, George blurts out, so you just break the fucking door down as sheltered Coop's greatest wax sculptor, Amos isn't famous for thinking fast on his feet, well, he says, yeah Amos deftly maneuvers the conversation away from the broken door and nods at the mannequin in George's arms, what do you think of her he asks George, she doesn't have a head yet, but I'm working on it, I'm working her head and I'm going to make it perfect, George is caught off guard by Amos quick change act, perfect here asks, how what do you mean, how Amos parries, I'll tell you, George, I mean, George counters, do you have a picture of Vivian or something, or maybe he shudders, a death mask Amos scoffs, what you talking about he snorts, picture, I don't need a picture Amos gestures at Vivian the waitress, how can you forget a face like that he asks, still slightly off guard, George looks at the defaced and headless figure, then back at Amos, like what, like this he snorts, this Vivian doesn't even have a face still Amos keeps up his bluff, shucks, George, he scoffs again, I remember what she looks like, okay then, Amos, George smirks, if you remember Vivian Babylon so well, then what color eye does the woman have, ha still, Amos tries to fake George out, blonde hair, blue eyes, he says, all blondes have blue eyes, you know George stares at Amos until the embarrassed sculptor drops his blondes, yeah, that's what I thought, it's George's turn to scoff, you need a photo of Vivian to work from, or else but before George can make any other stellar suggestions, Amos cuts him off, fine, man, I'll work from a photograph he blurts out, so hook me up with a photo me George sputters, caught off guard by the unexpected twist, yeah, you, who else, the stylish and elegant George walks past Tully's diner and glances inside, he stops when he sees Vivian swooping gracefully from table to table, she seems even prettier than George remembers, even prettier than he fantasizes and dreams about, he stands there for several seconds just staring at her, in still another version of this obsessively repeated scene, George walks past Tully's diner and abruptly stops, it is the evening hour between late lunch and early dinner specials, he spots Vivian the waitress sitting at the counter alone, from the inside pocket of his blue pinstripe suit he removes his camera phone, he just keeps staring at Vivian until, as if sensing his presence, his breath, his eyes, his voice, she slowly turns, George pretends to talk on the phone, there's a silent click, Vivian instinctively sneezes, then he ducks his head and walks away, in still another repetition of this obsessively repeated scene, is it a nightmare, obsession, psychosis, George walks past Tully's diner and abruptly stops, there's no Vivian there, George keeps walking, in still another repetition of this obsessive scene, alright already, we get the picture, George walks past Tully's diner and abruptly stops, he scans the smiling and laughing crowds and the hustling, bustling waitresses for a long time, 
Finally, he sees Vivian waiting on tables as she smiles and laughs with some regular customers. In a split-second flash George aims the camera phone through the big plated glass window and shoots his masterpiece. Swept up in his obsession, he continues to stare at Vivian with a strange mixture of desire and repulsion. He's torn between the obsessive drive to flee immediately and the intensely consuming desire to fling himself at her feet. Finally, he walks over to the big glass, swinging door. The door swings open, satisfied customers exit. Bemused, consumed and dazed, George flees, amidst the wreckage and rubble of his cluttered sculptor's workshop. Amos unveils the complete Vivian figure. George does a tragic double take. He's immediately stunned, shocked and horrified. Famous Amos Daedalus, statuesque and waxen effigy of Vivian the waitress looks like she's about to sneeze. George is appalled, aghast and disgusted. What the fuck he bellows. She looks like she's about to sneeze. Famous Amos sighs and shrugs. Yeah, well, he says, it's realistic. You snapped the pictures and I gave it my best shot. You should have taken more photos and maybe I'd get her. Like, you know, smiling or something. George struggles not to snarl and leap at Amos' throat. Amos, listen, he says, we don't have enough money to be but before George starts screaming, Amos cuts him off, to be what he scoffs, craftsmanlike, artistic, aesthetic, maybe to be fucking around, Amos George screams, Amos only snorts, fucking around he sniffs, freaking fucking around he repeats, who, me, you brought me the world shittiest photograph to work from, George, first of all, like maybe you took it through a big plated glass window or something, and then you didn't, I did it what George snaps, what didn't I do, Amos Amos slacks off slightly, you didn't ask her, that's what he scoffs, like, you didn't have the freaking balls to ask her to even model, pose or vogue, or whatever, or or, or even fucking smile, George, I mean, duck, man now it's George's turn to cut Amos off, fuck that, Amos he shouts, fuck this, man, fuck that, man, fuck, fuck you, man taking a wild swing, George kicks some junk on the cluttered floor, he's obviously losing it, the waxen head embeds itself on his pointy toe shoe, Amos shakes his head in disbelief, George tries to shake off the disfigured head, there's a long and stupefied silence, finally, George sputters, JJ just, fuck it, Amos Amos pats him on the back and smiles sympathetically, don't worry, George, he says, I'll work it out, man, the disfigured head falls off George's foot, George stops sputtering, Amos smiles sardonically, and, George he says what George shouts, sorry, man, several days later, nothing has really changed, George is still standing next to the cluttered bench, the white fluorescent lighting is dim, slightly garish and slightly ghoulish, the statuesque sculpture of Vivian the waitress seems vaguely greenish, slightly cheesy, and maybe half dead, or half alive, a white toothed, half open mouth looks harsh and biting, her glittering green eyes are cold and hard, somewhere between nightmare and dream George hears Vivian, or Vivian, which Vivian, call to him in a soft, seductive, and siren-like whisper, photograph me, George, she whispers, picture me, print me, capture me and keep me in your memory, I just love, love, love pictures, take more pictures of me, please, 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 George boo boo, I can never get enough pictures of me, more, more, more pictures, snapping out of his reverie, George slowly exhales, he holds his hand to his heart with a slight shiver like he's having a coronary, George Schaefer is not a profoundly religious man, usually, but at this moment he crosses himself and whispers, Jesus, Jesus freaking Christ, he shakes his head as he walks out of the workshop and leaves behind only silence, darkness, and the faintly creepy sound of slowly melting wax, in the stifling gloom, black mascara runs like black tears down Vivian the waitress perfectly waxen face, in the black asphalt parking lot outside, George finds his piece of crap Toyota Tercel parked in the white semicircle of the silent streetlights, as he reaches in his pocket he drops his car keys and, bending to pick them up, discovers a large piece of red linen slowly floating down to the black asphalt parking lot, Amusedly, he picks up the scrap of linen and the slowly picks up the keys, indecisively, he casts a furtive look back at the brooding and silent building, then he looks back at his jingling car keys, he thinks about going back in, then he thinks about his car keys, back and forth, and back and forth, until, finally, in the sweaty waxwork workshop, George stands next to the cluttered bench, the white fluorescent lighting is soft and slightly pink, 
is alone with the sculptured mannequins of the Hall of the Unknowns, and especially with the statuesque figure of Vivian the Waitress, with a sweeping and magisterial gesture, he pastes the frizzy red cloth from the black asphalt parking lot back where it obviously belongs, on Vivian the Waitress' pubic patch, George catches his breath, Vivian Babylon stands in front of him, she's perfectly beautiful and perfectly naked, all women and all women, her perfectly pursed red lips seem moist and damp, almost kissable, almost edible, they are slightly parted revealing the tiny gap between her two front teeth, her perfectly smooth and supple skin is flawless, lifelike and dewy, as if the perfectly sculpted wax had in fact become immortal flesh, or maybe something more than flesh, her superbly sculpted breasts are plump, firm and round, and her nipples are erect, they long to be stroked, touched, suckled, for several eternities, George, Pygmalion-like, feasts his eyes on this immortal creation, this perfectly beautiful woman, this woman without flaw and without sin, Vivian the Waitress, Vivian Babylon, the one and only, the eternal, she is the immortal, finally, George drops his eyes again to her frizzy red pubic patch, so silky, so full, so almost kissable, almost edible, the clump of frizzy red hair falls off again, George starts to snicker and snort, he finally laughs out loud, I always fall for dames who don't have their shit together, he sputters as he addresses the mannequin, you know what, baby, you really have to get yourself together, George laughs uproariously at his own joke, later on, famous Amos is busily working on Vivian the waitress mannequin, he's sculpting and molding her statuesque body just after having removed her disembodied and defaced head, as for Vivian whatever Vivian, whichever Vivian, whoever Vivian might be, Vivian is still headless, the patch of pubic hair falls off once again, Amos snickers and mumbles to himself, or to whatever Vivian he worships, ah, duck, man, come on now, baby don't be so bitchy, he casts a cold away Vivian's head would be if she had one, Vivian he screams, quit dropping your tangles or I'd get the idea that you want to be waxed like George, Amos laughs uproariously at his own joke, ha ha ha, he he, he chortles, get it, waxed, down there, I mean, getting up off his knees, Amos stands with the frizzy pubic hair in his hand, also like George, Amos bad humor sometimes runs to the obscene, the scatological, alright, Vivian baby, he darkly threatens, I have to go to the bathroom now while nobody is looking, so, why don't you just turn your head away Amos takes another look at Vivian the waitress and starts chortling uproariously again, then he drops to his knees to remove a few frizzy shreds of Vivian's leftover pubic hair, it's not exactly clear what he's doing, maybe he's just twitching around, whatever he's doing gives him some enormous sense of satisfaction, there you go, Vivian, honey, he nods, you're officially in modern times now, baby, as Amos enters the bathroom he stares blankly towards the workroom and whispers, boy, when you go to go, you go to go, I love to his business, Amos hurls Vivian the waitress disfigured and eyeless head in his lap while he strings her frizzy red hair in the sweaty workshop, he painstakingly dresses the decapitated mannequin in her white and red waitress uniform, fussily, he leaves the top buttons undone just a bit to show just a slight and of cleavage, he puts the perfectly coiffed and smiling head on the impeccably dressed body and stands back to admire his handiwork, she looks almost too perfect, yet, somehow, less inspired than the real thing, famous Amos glances over at the 8x10 inches brightly colored and glossy pinup calendar on the wall and rips a statuesque page off the frontispiece, only four days until opening, at George Schieffer's one and only original, classical wax museum, George sits on the cluttered bench as famous Amos shows off the Vivian the waitress mannequin, finally, George is a rapt admirer, a true believer, Jesus, Amos, he rhapsodizes, she is beautiful, she's perfectly sculpted, perfectly lifelike Amos only chortles as he fingers the statuesque Vivian's perfectly lifelike breasts, she's better than lifelike, George Boo, he snorts, believe me, I know, George blushes, he tries to change the subject, what do we do with the old, sneezing head famous Amos plays the proud father, save it, save it, man he blusters, never throw your art away, never, you never know when you might want it or even need it again, like, when we become famous, Amos flies off on another hysterical outburst of uproarious laughter, George tries to calm Amos down but only sets off another delirious outburst, okay already, Amos, George drones, it wasn't that funny, George looks at the 8x10 waxwork, pinup calendar, we open, you know, in like, three days abruptly, Amos stops snickering and becomes nervous, no oh oh he moans, you gotta be kidding, three days, oh, crap, Amos finally trails off, and I have the in-laws here tonight, George adds, so I won't be much help, 
Crabamos curses, which one is worse, your in-laws or my wife it's still not exactly clear what Amos means by these cryptic words. Whatever he means, Amos dejection leaves George feeling defeated, put upon, and downtrodden. Whatever, man, George says, walking out of the old, broken down front door, George Amos calls, but George is gone. George walks the black midnight streets, stooped shouldered with his hands shoved in his pockets. On the festive occasion of the grand opening of George Schaefer's one and only original, classical wax museum, he imagines everything going up in flames, the old, broken down warehouse burning down to wreckage and ashes, all of those perfectly sculpted mannequins and beautifully molded figurines melt down into splattered puddles and shapeless blobs. The tragedies of death spoken of in the opening passages still haunt him in bright flashes and sinister shadows. As he walks broodingly huddled and crookedly hunched into himself, George Schaefer starts muttering, his slight psychotic edges almost bordering on crazy. George Schaefer, looping back on himself, walks slowly by his one and only original, classical wax museum, trying to sense all that he can from its cold metal doors and the smell of sewage from the empty street. A rat scatters into the alleyway, George takes everything in, it all seems to be dead, dead and defeated. An old crooked lamp post on the corner emits a static buzz as the white lighted headlamp blows out. Without Vivian or Cleo to comfort and console him, George is completely alone now, and in the dark, as he snoops around the back alley, George sees Vivian the waitress perfectly sculpted and waxen head lolling and rolling around in the gutter, near the huge waste bins, without quite knowing what is happening, and feeling too dejected and disturbed to rescue Vivian's decapitated head, George simply observes the shapely head Rolex uncrippled and half-dead thing, until it comes to a complete stop. In still another version of this strangely familiar scene, George and Cleo are sitting at a small and dark table in Tully's diner, quietly bickering. Cleo is disturbed by George's erratic behavior and wild mood swings, whereas George is bothered by Cleo's snooping into his business and her parents' constant intrusions into their private life. What's wrong with you? George Cleo whines and nags. What are you talking about? You're not so bad you're really, like, crazy sometimes. George snorts. You have the audacity to call me crazy who ants. Your parents, sometimes, you know, they just about drive me crazy. Cleo frowns, defensive and apologetic, but still Still she continues to accuse, I know my parents are difficult for you, she admits, but, come on, what are you trying to say I'm just saying he shrugs, the visit wasn't bad, I guess, Cleo nods as she begins to feel vindicated, I know, she says, it was good, a good visit, yeah, right, George concedes, it wasn't bad, I guess immediately Cleo picks up on George's unspoken words, what are you saying, George, really she doesn't wait for an answer, you're saying it wasn't good, and you George rolls his eyes, I didn't say that, no, he repeats, don't put words in my mouth, Cleo, Cleo isn't really listening, that hurts my feelings, she goes on, because you're basically saying that you don't like my parents, George rolls his eyes again, when did I say that he asks, when did I ever say that just as Cleo is about to respond, Vivian the waitress switches over to their small corner table and adopts her statuesque waitress pose, she crosses her arms beneath her breasts and juts her hips out to one side, she's chewing bubble gum, as usual, and blows small bubbles with her mouth, as Cleo's about to speak, a bubble gum bubble pops loudly, Vivian giggles, excuse me, she says, I just, bubbled Cleo rolls eyes, God, George she starts out, but she leaves the sentence dangling, as George looks up at Vivian the waitress, it's like she can read the slightly pornographic fantasies and sexual daydreams unraveling in his head, she knows how he wants to plead guilty to them to her, to Vivian, instead, he chooses to just ask, could I have another cup of coffee, if you're not too busy Vivian the waitress just stares down at him as she continues to chomp her bubblegum, please George pleads, insecure, unsure, and not knowing where he stands with Vivian, George appeals to Cleo, but he gets no support from his wife, instead, Cleo appeals to Vivian, she jerks her head toward George, he's not being very nice today, she says primly, is he Vivian is supremely indifferent, what she says, Cleo repeats herself, I said, he's not being very nice today, is he George looks down as he attempts to hide his slowly reddening cheeks, suddenly and spontaneously, Vivian blurts out, I like him Cleo's taken aback, she reacts as if she'd been slapped, what she snaps, you what Vivian is imperturbable, she gestures toward George, him, she says, I like him, I don't like people who aren't nice, with that, she sashays away, George wants to say, see but he keeps quiet, Cleo bursts out, well, you're not, you're not, you know not what George asks, 
feigning innocence. You're not nice, Cleo blurts. Now George is taken aback. No, I'm not so bad, he protests. Sullenly and silently, Cleo seethes. While George and Cleo keep up their embattled silence, Vivian swings back with a full pot of coffee for George. As she pours, she keeps up her banter. Now, it's black, hushy as, see what I mean? It's good Joe today, strong and feisty, perking up. George glances at Cleo and makes his delivery to Vivian. Like you, ha he says, blushing brightly. Ah, like black coffee, the coffee is not bad today, either. Vivian the waitress pretends to be flattered. Or, she whines, somewhat mocking. Thanks for the compliment. I'll pass it on to the boys in the kitchen. Still, George feels he's made his point. He smirks to Cleo. See, she knows. He jerks his head at Vivian. I can be nice. Despite herself, Vivian cracks a slight smile. Oh, yeah, she says as she sidles away. You're not bad. This is the highest praise George has received all day. In still another strangely familiar scene, George and Cleo are nibbling on their food while the regular customers, at many of the other tables, have already left. Only one other table besides George and Cleo's is still occupied. It's complete with a boisterous group set on ribbery later in the evening. Vivian the waitress wears her white and red Tully's t-shirt without an apron while she helps the busboys clear some of the dirty tables. In a sudden fit, that's not as spontaneous as it seems, she pulls her still clean white shirt up over her nose and mouth and sneezes loudly, aye, chew then she sneezes again, and again, and again. George, only slightly embarrassed, raises his voice and calls toward her. Bless you the other table hushes, and for a moment everyone is silent. In the diner, the busboys, waitresses, and kitchen help all have their eyes set on George. Even the drunken loud party at the back table. Vivian the waitress turns toward George. What she asks. I said, bless you, George repeats. It's allergy season. For a brief and passing moment Vivian the waitress turns bad. Yeah, it's allergy season, she scoffs. It seemed to start right when you walked in. Then she stomps off, with a slight jerk. George turns toward the world beside him. He's suddenly fixated on a local eatery award encased in thin plastic and dated for 1978. Cleo snaps her fingers to break George's spell. George, George she cries. Wake up George, still transfixed, mutters quietly. We open tomorrow, as the day of the grand opening of George Schaefer's one and only original, classical wax museum approaches. Famous Amos nervously rearranges the various sculpted heads and waxen torsos of the five or six mannequins in the Hall of the Unknown's gallery. This gallery is the most spectacular, the most beautiful, and the most perfect, mostly because Vivian the waitress, or Vivian Babylon, is showcased in it. After switching the figures around several times, and experimenting with several different arrangements, Amos can't quite seem to get the perfect tableau that he's searching for, he keeps trying. Anyway, meanwhile, the invisible video camera outside of the old, broken-down warehouse picks up George Schaefer in his three-piece suit and flashy tie, as he tries to open the jammed front door. Hey, Amos George cries out. The door is jammed again. Damn it, Amos. Where's Amos? Amos finally, Amos rushes over to the big door. Hold on a sec he shouts. I'll get it. George is impetuous and impatient. Come on, Amos he shouts again. We open tomorrow. Hurry up. Now, please Amos nervously searches his pockets as he fiddles with the keys, and wipes sweat from his forehead all at the same time. One minute he calls. I'm coming George. Of course, can't hear him. What he cries again. What did you say Amos continues to fumble the keys. Hold on a sec, he mutters. I'll be there in a sec. George bangs on the door and shouts. Amos inside a sweaty waxwork workshop. A big fluorescent light bulb on the ceiling glows out and crashes to the floor. Still Amos fiddles and dawdles. Wait he calls again. Finally, Amos starts to laugh. Wait, wait, wait he gasps hysterically. I never thought I'd have George Schaefer and Vivian Babylon waiting on me. He whispers, snickering. With a sudden jerk, he gets the door opened. Sophisticatedly and elegantly dressed in a blue pinstripe suit and flashy tie, George enters the warehouse still looking at his watch. He's sweaty, nervous and obviously pressed for time. Amos greets him boisterously. Hey there, big buddy Amos smiles. What's happening George is in no mood for pleasantries. We open tomorrow is what he shouts. What's going on here under pressure? Amos seems slightly fragile, cracked, and nearly hysterical. Ha ha he screeches. What's going on is we open tomorrow? Yes, yes, yes George rolls his eyes. Amos, he says as he strives to be compassionate patient, and, kind, Amos sticks around in the filing cabinets, 
that whatever he's looking for remains hidden, come here, he coaxes, come here, buddy, still searching for the unknown and hidden something, Amos takes George into the men's restroom located in the back of the dusty and cluttered workshop, it's a true men's room complete with urinal and tank, it's masculine with the scent and sight of thine unflushed porcelain throne, testosterone inspired literature, and eight x ten inches glossy pinup calendars plastered from wall to floor, for some inexplicable reason, Amos pulls an old dog-eared issue of Star Magazine from the pile of her old supermarket tabloids, and thumb-worn pornography, that drape over the white porcelain toilet, Amos starts flipping through the pages, George is restless, sit Amos orders, as he plops down on the white toilet seat, George rolls his eyes, he still says nothing and waits for Amos to speak, look, 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 Amos says, flashing the dog-eared pages, what do you see George shrugs, I don't know, people, I guess, a dim light bulb flickers in the restroom, okay, I get it, I see celebrities, Amos only shakes his head to indicate that George is still clueless, yeah, okay, Amos, George says, they are good photographs, right, boiler Amos nods, yeah, right, he says, good photographs, candid photographs, he flips to another page, or, look at Britney yawning, so sleepy, and fucking yawning he enthuses, and look how interesting that is, she's on a freaking talk show yawning, the fans just eat it up, George is still baffled, so you're making fun of me, he asks, right Amos shakes his head, no, idiot, he scoffs, the point is, it works, we can do the same thing and make money from it, just like freaking Britney and fucking Oprah do, even at this final moment, George is still skeptical, yeah, but, he says, we're talking about unknowns, not celebrities, Amos gloats, yeah, man, he says, we're talking about unknowns, we're talking about creating something to know about them, like they're celebrities, we make it so people want to know it, we get people talking, George remains dubious, how he asks Amos smirks, by creating a little controversy, slowly, the whole sleazy scam starts to dawn on George, although it doesn't make him any less skeptical, oh man, Amos, he moans, I don't know, Amos soothes him, listen, George, he says, it's like you say, we don't have the money to pots around, so we need to work with what we have, in the midst of Amos pitch, Cleo walks in on them, she's even more doubtful than George, she looks back and forth between the two men, in disbelief, she sighs, whatever it is, she says, I don't even want to know, the two of you despite his own doubt, George tries to reassure her, no, Cleo, he says, you really do want to know, Amos second of the motion, yeah, Cleo, he says, it's all good stuff, trying to be friendly, warm and intimate he steps closer, but Cleo instinctively backs off, hey, Cleo, Amos soothes her, sorry I kept him so late, I need to go fuck up some faces, as Amos walks away, he continues to chant, thank you, George, thank you, for whatever, man, whatever, wherever, whoever, just, thank you, man, wanting to make up with Cleo, George sticks out his hand, but Cleo pulls him up short, George hems and haws, I'll tell you when we get home, he offers, Cleo looks George right smack dead in the eye as he replies, it better be good, George, it better be good, so you see, Bane, it's like I have these schizophrenic blue movie skits, and sleazy hardcore video clips, flashing through my nightmares and daydreams all of the time, night and day, and day and night, it's not like I'm making them happen, it's not like I'm writing the script, it's not like I'm a director or producer, or anything, it's more like, I'm just another spectator or bystander out there in the invisible studio audience, watching the skits and clips flash past, or maybe I'm the invisible cameraman behind the invisible video camera, just rolling along and shooting the pictures, and watching and waiting for whatever happens next, I can't switch the channel, or change the script, or rewrite the scene, or even make the whole stupid thing just stop, you see, Bane, it's like those schizophrenic blue movie skits and sleazy hardcore video clips just keep playing over and over again, in some kind of continuous tape loop or endless cinematic flashback, they're stuck on instant replay, or whatever, and sometimes the same scuzzy characters show up and the same crazy scenes keep playing like it's deja vu all over again, you know, like there's 
George Shifa, okay, there's the Fivian Babylon, and there are maybe three or four other characters who keep showing up in different bodies or different echoes, even though I know they are really just the same creepy people, they are the same creeps and perverts, the same suckers and chumps, the same bitches and whores I already know, and they are always stuck in some kind of perpetual jilted lover's quarrel, or some self-destructive and abusive relationship, it's like they just can't get out of the same stupid trap, or get away from wherever they are, or even just make the whole world stop. So sometimes, you know, Doc, sometimes I think that maybe they are trying to tell me something. Maybe they are sending me messages and beaming me signals through my daydreams, my fantasies, my nightmares and my wet dreams. Maybe, someday, it'll add up to some kind of message or moral or something, like in those old-time movies and old-fashioned radio plays or, maybe, like those fairy stories, folk tales and myths. But you know, they just don't fit together. Those schizophrenic blue movie scripts and hardcore porno clips, they just don't fit together, no matter how I try to write them down, or how I try to play them out, or how I try to shuffle them and juggle them into some kind of storyline or movie plot. And then the whole stupid thing falls apart like some jump cut, film splice flick or cut up video clip that didn't really work, and it won't get taped up, or glued down, or somehow stick together again, ever, no matter what I do. So then, you know Bane, the only thing I can think is that maybe the whole world is crazy, and maybe I've gone crazy too, and the whole world's getting crazier and crazier, every day, and in every way. Or like that George Schieffer says to his shrink, somewhere in this whole crazy mess, in all his NYU undergrad, and Harvard graduate education, and all that Wakefield prep school jazz, and all of that psychology, those humanities, that literature and art, it just makes him think how ridiculous he really is and how absurd everyone else is, too. It makes him think how the whole world is just wacko when you get right down to it. The whole world is stupid, and meaningless and empty, and then I think, well, if the whole world really is absurd, and everybody else is just as ridiculous as me, then why bother to write, or paint, or do anything? Why bother to make movies, or tell stories, or even get out of bed for that matter? Why even bother to go on living? You know what I mean, Doc? Yes, Benny, I know exactly what you mean, you should know too, that it's not just you. Many other people sometimes feel like the whole world is crazy, and that they are crazy, too. A lot of people think the whole world is ridiculous and pointless, and that their entire life is just as meaningless and absurd. Some people feel like everything is falling apart around them and they don't want to go on living, and they don't have any kind of cosmic blue or spiritual super goop that'll stick it all together and make the whole world work for them so they can just go plugging along. Maybe they just don't have what it takes to make the whole world stop being ridiculous and meaningless and stupid and absurd and make their whole life seem worth living again, too. But, you know, Benny, maybe you're right. Maybe those schizophrenic blue movie skits and sleazy hardcore porn flicks, as you call them, are trying to tell you something. Maybe they really are like fairy tales or folk tales, or old-time movies or old-fashioned myths with some kind of message or moral hidden somewhere inside them, like fortune cookies. Maybe they are sending messages from your deeper self and beaming signals from your subconscious mind, your libido, your ego, or whatever you want to call it, or even from the whole collective subconscious of the human race. The message they are sending you, as far as I can see, Benny, the moral they are trying to tell you, is really pretty simple. Despite all the self-destructive, abusive things and all the hateful, hurtful things George and Vivian, and everybody else, do to each other, and despite the absurdity, ludicrousness and ridiculousness of it all, the message or moral they are sending is really pretty simple and pretty straightforward, you know? The message or moral of the whole story, as I see it, Benny, is this, they are trying to show you what it's like to get stuck in hell, and know that you're stuck in hell, and still not be able to find the way out when all along, Benny, the way out is right there in front of you. All you have to do is look for it. All you have to do is want to get out. You can raise yourself out of hell, you can make a new life for yourself, and you can make the whole world over again, Benny, whenever you want to, and all you have to do is want to, because, you see, Benny, in this crazy, mixed up, stupid and absurd world, everybody needs somebody or something to make everything whole. It's to save them from the absurdity and meaninglessness, the ridiculousness and stupidity, have their existence. 
for some people, that somebody or something is a person, a spiritual teacher or holy man, a great lover or secret soulmate who makes their whole life complete and becomes the entire world for them, for other people, that somebody or something is a spiritual teaching or religious doctrine, a secret philosophy or work of art, that makes the whole world speak to them and convinces them they can live forever, George Schaefer and Vivian Babylon, as you see them, Benny, our people who want to find the whole world in a significant other, and build a whole world around that other person, to save themselves from the stupidity and absurdity of their empty, meaningless lives, of course, George and Vivian struggle to discover the whole world in each other, and build a world around themselves, a tragically doomed to disappointment and failure because neither one of them can really fulfill the other's fantasies and dreams, neither can carry the whole weight of the world they are building together, because neither George nor Vivian can really accept the stupidity and ridiculousness of their significant other, or the absurdity and emptiness of their great fantasy, they get caught and trapped in their self-destructive and abusive relationship, they are stuck in a self-perpetuating cycle of hateful and hurtful acts, and they just keep repeating the same self-destructive actions, and playing the same stupid scenes, and somehow they just can't break the cycle or get out of the loop, or take a deep breath and tell themselves to just stop. George Schaefer and famous Amos de Dallas on the other hand, are people who build a whole world around a creative delusion or a life-changing illusion and try to transform the stupidity, absurdity, emptiness and meaninglessness of worldly human existence into an immortal sculpture or an eternal work of art. The problem is that the world they want to create, to save everything from absurdity and meaninglessness, and save themselves from stupidity and ridiculousness and emptiness, the Hall of the Unknowns in George Schaefer's one and only original, classical wax museum, can't really support their spiritual aspirations and artistic illusions, so, their statuesque, classic sculptures and wax and talking heads of self-important small-town celebrities, and unknown street people, finally become just as stupid, absurd, meaningless and ridiculous as the world they are trying to escape, so as much as everybody, just like you, Benny, needs somebody, or something, to make the world whole for them and save them from their solitary, empty lives, it's also important to remember that no single person in the whole world can support your whole solitary, empty existence, they can't make the world whole for you if you can't do it yourself, the world is what we make it, and so the whole world is only as we allow it to be, as we make it to be, as we name it to be, if it's what we make it, then we can make the whole world over, and make ourselves over, too, but only if we want to, otherwise, the whole world really is just as absurd and stupid, just as empty, and meaningless and ridiculous as we think it is, also, Benny, it's important not to take those eternal works of art, or immortal wax and sculptures, those great passionate love affairs, or our secret soulmates too seriously, or to take yourself too seriously, either, which is maybe the only real message or moral that George Schaefer and Vivian Babylon, Sir Tony Haldale and famous Amos, Stevie and Mary, and all the others are trying to teach you, Benny, their only real purpose, meaning, or reason for existence as far as anybody can say for sure, is to teach you how to laugh, does that make sense to you, Benny, or am I getting too moral, you know, you can make me stop, too, or you can make me do whatever you want me to do, can't you, if you really want to or have a will to do it because you, after all, are the author, which is as close to the gods, or god, as we get in this stupid, absurd, meaningless, empty universe, and whatever you do, Benny, it's all up to you, so, Benny, no matter how bad things get, no matter how stupid and ridiculous and absurd the whole world seems, even if the whole world goes crazy, remember, Benny, don't forget to laugh, well, okay then, Bane, if you're so smart, and you think you know everything, let me ask you a question, what does George Schaefer really want, that's a simple question, Benny, I can give you a simple answer, you see, George, like countless other American men of this psychological profile, weight, age, and character type, simply wants to find a perfect and flawless, beautiful and untouched, pure woman whom he can worship and adore while arriving and groveling at her feet, someone he can love with his entire soul while she treats him like dirt, you mean like Vivian Babylon, Doc, or maybe it's like George Schaefer's idea of Vivian Babylon, you see, Benny, because no actual sweating, breathing, menstruating woman could ever possibly hope to live up to George Schaefer's supreme stereotype and highly repressed sexual fantasy of his ideal woman, George Schaefer is subconsciously obsessed, and compulsively driven, by the unspeakable need to desecrate, defile and compel a perfectly beautiful woman, to submit to his self-punishing, psychological abuse, and sometimes 
sometimes to actual physical torture, so that he can feel superior to her and make her what he wants her to be. You see, Benny, just like you, George Schaefer, no, Mo, now, wait a minute there doc, let's not get personal, I've got another question for you, okay, Benny, go ahead, shoot, what I want to know is this, doc, if you're such a psycho guru and know it all shrink, and of such keen insight into the male character, why don't you tell me, what does famous Amos Day Dallas really want, that's another simple question, Benny, I can give you a simple answer, in a nutshell, you see, Benny, like countless other sexually repressed, emotionally frustrated, and secretly homosexual American men, famous Amos simply wants to create his own supremely idealized stereotype, and subconscious sexual fantasy, have a perfect woman who will end up be his sublimated and spiritual ideal, and still submit to his disgusting, pornographic fantasies, wait a minute, okay, yeah, I get it doc, so you'd say, doc, that because Amos can't ever really find some perfectly beautiful woman, or flawlessly pure babe to live up to his sublimated sexual fantasies or spiritual ideal, or whatever, then he tries to make a perfectly beautiful, flawlessly pure and ideal woman by carving her out of wax and making her into a department store window display, or wax museum mannequin, or something, you got it, Benny, however, not even a perfectly beautiful display window mannequin or flawlessly pure wax museum sculpture can ever hope to live up to Amos' perfectly sublimated stereotype and high repressed sexual fantasy, Amos, like George Schaefer, is subconsciously obsessed and compulsively driven by the unspeakable need to desecrate and defile, to debase and mortify, even his own supremely beautiful stereotypes and flawlessly pure images of the department store, mannequin or the wax museum sculpture, to shit on her, you might say, hey, vain, right, Benny, so, like George Schaefer, and maybe like you, Benny, he can prove to himself how superior he is to those mere sweating, breathing, and menstruating mortal women. He can then reign supreme as the sublime creator god, and highly spiritualized wax sculpture artist, within his own private universe and fantasy world of the wax museum. Well, you know, Doc, I have to admit you have a point, there. It seems like you know George Schaefer and famous Amos pretty well, now, don't you? You know them, too, Benny, even if you want to admit it. Hey now, knock it off, Doc, it's nothing personal, you see? Sorry, Benny, I'll be good now, good enough. Because you see, Doc, I have one more question for you. What I want to know, Doc, is this, what does Vivian Babylon really want? Well now, Benny, that's a little more difficult, isn't it? But you know, Benny, despite the fact that Vivian Babylon is a pretty complicated character, and maybe she isn't just one woman, but an amalgamation of a bunch of women, all lumped together in two one, I really think I can give you a fairly simple answer to that question. Okay, Doc, go ahead, shoot, but watch where you're pointing that thing, will you? You see, Benny, Vivian Babylon, like George Schaefer, like famous Amos, and maybe even like you Benny, oh come on, get off it, Doc, like everybody else in the whole human world, Benny, Vivian Babylon really just wants to be loved, loved wholly and completely, for who she is as a real, live, sweating, breathing, and menstruating woman, complete with her flaws and imperfections, complaints and complexes, with all her cruelty and perversity, her craziness and insecurity, and despite the fact that she really is something of a bitch, isn't she, Doc, I mean, she's, a difficult woman to live with, just like we all are, even me, Doc, women and men, even you, Benny, but nobody can ever really give us the complete and unconditional love we want, Haddock, except maybe our mothers so, we get stuck in these self-destructive, abusive relationships and failed marriages, we do hateful, hurtful things to each other and just repeat the same stupid psychodramas over and over again, like George Schaefer and Vivian Babylon, right, Benny, so do we really think, Doc, think what, Benny, we could just snicker and chortle and snort, and chuckle and snigger and laugh our way out of it, and smile through our tears and the whole thing would just disappear, and the whole world would be a paradise, a heaven on earth, and we'd all be perfectly beautiful and perfectly sane human beings, it'd be worth a try, wouldn't it, okay, Doc, here it goes one, two, three, ha, 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 and he, he, Mr. Schaefer the secretary is standing over him, she waves her pencil in his face, Mr. Schaefer George looks up, he smiles at her, that's what people do, right, they smile, she jerks the pencil toward a heavy widow, the doctor's ready for you now, she says, she walks back to her desk, her tight little ass traveling smoothly in a clinging gray skirt, 
She props her yellow pumps up on the desk as she watches him, she cremaces and pulls out a nail file. George shuffles slowly over to the door, trying to keep his feet from lifting off the floor. He leans over to open the door with his elbows, wanting to avoid the static shock he can feel rising in the roots of his hair, the electric charge traveling up his leg hair and his white, commercial grade, psych ward pants. Then he realizes that same people don't open doors with their elbows, same people just get shocked. George takes the shock with a snort and pushes the dark door open, before him is Dr. Abrams, a middle-aged man with salt and pepper hair. Good afternoon, George, Dr. Abrams says. Good afternoon, Doc, Dr. Abrams, George replies. George raises his left foot and his right knee quivers, it's trying to hop, or something. He looks at the man seated behind the polished mahogany desk, with a silent growl. George places his left foot on the floor, in front of the right. He sinks into the small, leather chair, and smiles tentatively, to be continued.